right now for the David Feldman show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're a go for landing. Over. Welcome. Now you can hear me. Now we can hear me. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm David Feldman. DavidFeldmanShow.com. Please friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and subscribe to the newsletter. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Big announcement. Wow, we have a big announcement. February 13th, the day before, the day before, the day before Valentine's Day, Martha Previtt takes on Robert Smigel, Rick Overton, and Diabetes. Comedy genius Martha Previtt is taking on Diabetes. Diabetic Fury number five with FBI informant, the brilliant Jim Earl, Emmy award-winning comedy writer and actor, Rick Overton, and comedy genius, Robert Smigel. Go Dave, to Dave. I've never informed on the FBI. Oh, okay. That's I have your your files. I'm a treaser. I'm I'm a traitor. I'm guilty of treason. Yes. Diabetic Fury number five with Robert Smigel, Rick Overton, Jim Earl, and comedy genius Martha Previtt. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Hit the pay per view button. It'll take you to Eventbrite. It's pay what you want. We'll go through the tiers later, but they're selling. You know, you can for a dollar you get downloadable Valentine's Day stickers, but uh, anything above that, you get a Lefty from Way Back sticker, a Be Strong Protect the Weak sticker, and then it goes up and up. You're 
at the $50 level, you get a moose main merkin. Yeah. Me, main yeah. moose merkin. We'll go over Me. all the tiers. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll go over all the tiers later. Uh, please join me, the the Speaker of the House, very busy person right now. Please welcome Nancy Pelosi. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you thank so you. much, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I know how busy you are. We'll, we'll try to keep it short. I understand you're, you're watching your daughter, Christina, her dogs, and you're watching what, Alexandra. What a week. What a week. What a week. Some, it's something else, right? What a week. How are you holding up being forced to look at the tapes of the, what was it called? An insert? What is it called? The, the insurrection. The what? Insur- oh, those dogs. What, what is ins- it called? Insurrection. Oh, it's, what's going on with those dogs? First of all, Wolf, I, I appreciate your questions. Okay. I really do. I really do. But, 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 but by the way, Yes. Let me just say that April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, and uh, uh, stirring dull, um, dull I'm sorry, what is it? You, you, you seem to be... I, 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 I said, excuse me, I said... <laughs> stirring... <laughs> Tall roots with spring rain. Oh. Now, certainly you understand that, don't you? I, I, I'm having trouble hearing you over those. Uh, That's do- my daughter, Chris, Christina's spaniel, her springer spaniel. Oh, okay. Uh, it would be nice to be. I don't know why, why she's suddenly barking all the time. Shut up. Stop! Stop with the barking! Please stop! This is insanity! Insanity! I tell you, it's it's so nerve-wracking to see babies sitting from Springer galaxies, Springer spaniels. I don't know why they'd be barking. Maybe there's somebody at the door. What do you think? I should probably go through look out the windows and see if there's somebody out there. I, I, you're going to look out the window and what? See if there's somebody. somebody. You're going to go out there and see if there's somebody out there? See if there's somebody out the window. It's Speaking my my daughter's Christine Christine Spaniel. I'm sorry. What is your daughter's name, and what does she have? Alex and Christine. I'm, I'm dog sitting for Springer Spaniel. Stop! Stop barking! Stop barking! I, I don't you know I. I'm 
You you told me before we started that the that what is your daughter's name? Christine, and I actually have a daughter, Alice. Why would they be barking? I have no idea. And, and what are the breeds? Sorry, interrupting. What a week. What, what, a, what week. are the speaker, Pelosi, what kind of dogs are they again? A singer Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just love. I'm sorry. Please stop. Did you have any questions? Yeah. What is what is the name of your Springer Spaniel? Sophie. Sophie, my fierce Sophie, Sophie and Sally won't stop again. Stop it, Sophie. Okay. Okay. Sophie, you stop. I need to put them in, in the other room. Let me put oh, well, you know what? Why don't we come back? You know what? I have an idea. Yeah. Excuse me. I have to. You know what? We'll come back to you later in the show. Can you give me. Can you. Uh, can you so much to say. It's so important. You have so much to say. And what is the name of your daughter again? My, my daughter's Alex and Christine. Okay. Okay, thank you so much, Speaker Pelosi. Come come back later when when the dogs stop the barking. I can still hear them. Can you still hear them? I still hear the barking. Excuse me. Thank you. Thank you, Speaker Pelosi. You're gonna just set the dogs off again, and it's not right. So yeah, that's it's animal cruelty when you speak in front of the dog speakers. So I'm so sorry. I apologize. Stop it! Stop. All right, all right. Thank you, Speaker. I'll be talking to you later. I hope. Yeah, I hope we speak to you. Prepared a special speech. Okay, you you got. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Speaker Pelosi. Okay. All right. Thank you, Speaker. Thank you. All right. Uh, now let's go to Deerfield, Massachusetts, where gentleman farmer and comedy writer, comedian Johnny Ross is standing by. And let's go. Let's go to Kenny Bunk, Maine, where Peabody and Emmy Award winning comedian and FBI informant Jim Merle is standing by. I'm also uh, co Dave. I'm also co uh, winner of the uh, 1990. Uh, Napa Valley uh, comedy uh, competition. Oh, okay. Nice. nice. Your your resume is more padded than 
uh, a Biden appointee. Hey, uh, how funny is Martha Previtt? How funny is that? I can't say if she's funny or not because I live with her. And then, you know, people will think I'm prejudiced. Well, you are prejudiced, but not because you live with Martha Previtt. <laughs> Plead the fifth. John Ross, how funny is Martha Previtt? How funny was that? Very funny. Very funny. <laughs> just, she just... Is anybody doing Nancy Pelosi the way she does it? Is anybody doing it? That's a good question. Yeah. Nobody does Nancy Pelosi. John Ross, have you been yes. what have you been watching the impeachment? I have. How about you? I read about it and I watch the highlights, the highlight reel. I've watched because uh, I, I have to I'm say watching. the Capitol Police had the homeland, the home field advantage. And they did not do as well as the visiting team. They could not hold the line. I thought the Pratt boys were able to break through. And uh, kind of disappointing. Especially since well, the Capitol Police really, everyone was rooting for the Capitol Police, you know. But uh, I think the Pratt boys really gave it their best, the, the Oath Keepers. Think everybody was rooting for the Capitol Police? I don't think that's true. I think so. Well, you know, I didn't think they would pull it out at the end. They they did surprise. They did surprise everybody. Well, I don't, you know, it's it's a bummer, man. I It's like it's hard to even be funny about it. I, I don't know what to say. I'm a little under it. I got a shingles vaccine yesterday, and it uh, laid me out, man. So um, shingles, shingles, you know, what shingles is, I didn't know. It's chicken pox. Yeah. After you get chicken pox, it goes dormant in your, in your system. And then if you know, you're compromised, you could, uh, it could flare up and it's supposedly super painful. I asked, and my doctor said, we're recommending people get it. And I guess the vaccine lasts for your life. So I was like, all right, give it to me. And it felt like somebody punched me in the arm with a roll of quarters in their fist. Right. And uh, I woke up this morning and I was just groggy and felt pretty crappy. So I'm not going to be on my game totally. I, and, and also the whole, I don't have an angle on this. The, 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 the riot stuff is so depressing because it's, it's like, how can you expect to convict Donald Trump when it's like, his co-conspirators are in the, the jury. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they're all the ones who were yelling big lies, the election stolen, just as loud as he was. They were all saying, yeah, we got to recount. It's all fake. And now you're going to have them sit in judgment of him? Well, hey, what, 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 what have Democrats been doing for the last four years besides saying that uh, Donald Trump is an illegitimate uh, president in the uh, – the election was uh, fraudulent, and uh, he's a that. he's a That's traitor. Uh, the Democrats have been saying that. Adam Schiff, Adam Schiff says it. Uh, Nancy Pelosi calls him incompetent, Ill- illegitimate. Incompetent. Four, years, four years of it. Four years of it. Traitor, treason, fake Russian conspiracy. Hey, hang on, bullshit. Jim. If you're gonna oh, shout, bullshit. hang on for one second. This is my show. If you're gonna shout, turn your microphone up. 
It, look, that, to, say that, to say somebody's incompetent is different than saying that the election was stolen. And they, they said they also said the election was stolen from the very did. beginning. Hillary did. The leader of the uh, Democratic Party did. Adam Schiff has been saying it for four years. They've been charging him with treason look, for the last I guess four this years. This is good. This is how I get my numbers up, John. Start screaming. Just scream at him. Attack him personally. Talk about that, that girl he roughed up in 1983. Bernie Sanders has been uh, talking about revolutions since uh, before 19, uh, 2014. Well, you know, if, if you're going to uh, start uh, convicting people on uh, speech uh, alone and, and the things that could possibly incite violence, then you're, you're going to have that backfire on us, you know, and, and progressives. OK, just let like me let me let me get my arms like around this. Cold. This is the kind of show I want to do, John. Yeah, oh, I, not me. John, Jim Earl, one of your oldest friends, just accuse you of driving drunk in in the barrio in San Francisco in 1983. You and your girlfriend ran over a a woman of the night and her pimp and you drove off and uh, never turned yourself in. How do you respond to that? Uh, Sure. Sure. Yeah, I yeah, I'm sorry. This is this is not the kind of show I want to do. I never I'm said sorry. such a thing. Okay. Can we have a, a, a an unreasonable ask, me, co- right, ask me, me what I think about the impeachment hearings if if I've been watching them. Listen, we had an existential threat to our capital and we have to oh. go ahead. How, how does it make you feel? I could care less. I could care less about it. I could care you less. Couldn't uh, care less. You no, couldn't I could, care less. I could I could couldn't care less. I could could not care less about it. Okay. So you're I don't saying care about the impeachment I think is a big f- fucking waste of time. It will produce nothing. No one will get uh, convicted of a damn thing. No one's going to go to jail uh in in the you know in the Republican uh, Congress, uh, Trump is not going to if if he is convicted of anything, which will is like light years away. And no, he will never see the inside of a prison cell. So it's all a bunch of performative symbolism, the kind of performative symbolism that the whole party uh, accused people uh, who were trying to force a vote on something that people have been suffering trauma trauma for for the last few decades, and that's lack of health care. That's okay. the trauma Jim. that people should be talking Jim. about. Not not these fucking uh, people who had rioters uh, confront them. You know, I'm sorry that happened to them. But, you know, that's not the fucking worst thing that's happening in this country right now. Jim, Nor it is. is it, it the is. worst thing that happened this century in this country. It is. You know why? How's that? Because no, it why? affected them personally. You know, yes, that's and, and 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 that's all of us have to rally behind Congress, because for the first time. Their in action affected them personally, and now we must hear their call and rally yeah. around them because they would do the same for us if we could donate 50 grand to their party. So we owe it to them. <laughs> They were affected personally by their inability to pass meaningful gun control. Now they're seeing firsthand what it means for for school children. You know, remember how Diane Feinstein mocked the, the kids 
who who want gun control and climate change legislation. Well, now they were affected personally. And I think the lesson we can learn from this is what, John? Put a bigger fence around the Capitol. Yes, we have to protect our the people. Yeah. John, are you in all seriousness? Jim has a bug up his ass today. Today? Okay. <laughs> and it's not covered by Medicare. I think what Jim is saying, John, it's a luxury to worry about Congress. It's a luxury. Certain people, if, if you're not living under the sword of Damocles, if you're not worried about getting evicted, a hundred million Americans right now are facing a cold snap and eviction and hunger. They can't get the $1,400. So why would that be? a? It's a luxury. It's a sporting event for anybody who has a roof over their heads. This is a that's a false equivalency. Those things can all be true. And, you know, if you watched any of it, which sounds like you don't really, it, it came unbelievably close. What what if 10 senators and, you know, uh, 50 Congress people were, were dead? What if they had hung people? What if they had mur- they, they killed a, a, a cop? They killed him. Another guy. Well, they're, was, they're, 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 hang well, on. I agree, with, I agree with that. I agree with both of you. I agree right. with both of you. I'm just right. hosting a show here and trying right. to keep it going. They killed a cop, but they're not absolutely certain. Let's tell the truth that he may not have died from the fire extinguisher thrown at his head. He may have. Right. So they, they're, 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 you have to tell the truth. You have to tell right. the truth. Yeah, of course. But and, and so don't lie to me and tell me that he was killed because they threw a fire extinguisher. Did I say anything about that? No, 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 no. But, but th- what they're doing is they do misrepresent, the Democrats do misrepresent what happened. You know, they had that guy in Nancy Pelosi's office and he had a stun gun. Did he use it? So what? <laughs> Let's, I just want the truth to get out there. Who said they, they, are they saying he used it? They didn't. They didn't. They could have taken hostages. They 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 had opportunities to take the police as hostages. Why didn't they do that? How do you know they weren't bringing all those zip ties in there to chain themselves to the toilets? Or there may have been like bags of food in the refrigerator that they wanted to seal up so that they would stay fresh. Right. They may be why they have the zip ties. Listen, I hate the people who stormed the Capitol. Okay. Oh, yeah. I do. And, 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 and it was an insurrection and it was ignited by Trump. And there is a problem with the right wing militia, but they could have easily have taken police officers hostage with the zip ties. So they, they, they had guns. They had stun guns. They didn't shoot the police officers. They didn't because Trump hadn't been telling them to whipping them up, saying that the police officers are our enemy. That, that's not they, he, people. Uh, the half of the country thinks that Democrats are satanic and eat babies and and want to turn us into some kind of I don't know what exactly. I mean, it, this misinformation has well, one out of three ain't bad. <laughs> right. But we the, should speak the truth. And and the truth is. Trump is the worst president this country ever had. 
But no. he never explicitly said, go storm the Capitol and hang Mike Pence. He didn't say that. You're right. He didn't. And and that's a trick that he plays. He planted the seed. He obviously wanted that to happen. But it's going to be hard. I don't know. Uh, you know, you can't light a fire uh, without a match. No, you can't. He, the kindling was not set there by Donald Trump. Okay, the t- kindling was already there. There was the, the fire was set to go off, combust at any time, and this has been something that's been building up for for decades. And that's you know, not true. I mean, that- oh come on, we we, we have. <laughs> We have uh, decades of, uh, of well, wait a ter- minute. terrible economic in- inequality. Sixty percent, right. even though the Wall Street uh, Journal, which is not known for being a, can you raise your voice, please, Jim? Even the Wall raise Street your Journal. voice. I'm trying to do a show Washington here. Raise Post, your voice. Sixty percent of those arrested storming the Capitol had uh, bad uh, economic problems yeah. and and Absolutely. money problems. Absolutely, but. But look, nobody's more angry or bad at it than you are. How come you're not like lighting a torch and going and uh, taking people and, and ramming through doors and killing people? Because, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't mean that I'm saying that these problems don't exist. They've existed for a long time. But it's kind of weird that it all of a sudden, just very suddenly after this guy said, hey, I, I won this election. There's no way I can lose if unless it's rigged. And then which creates this situation where it's a no lose. Either he wins and he wins or he loses. And then he goes, Hey, this is bullshit. I didn't really lose. Come on, let's get him." And he's, and he, and the whole time he was just over and over and over saying it's a rigged election. It's fake. It's phony to the point where even our, our elected officials believe that it's it. That's insane. And then Adam Schiff, Adam Schiff, Adam Schiff in November, uh, a week or two before the election said exactly what Donald Trump said, practically said that there's no way Donald Trump could win the election uh, and, and have it be legitimate. I think what here's well, the thing. That I'm, is I'm, what the polls showed. That is what the polls showed. Let me just state for the record. I'm just trying to do a show here. And, you know, you have to do. And, and I want to point out the danger of alternative media is that you want to offer a different spin because the the networks are telling you one thing. This is how you end up being reckless. This is why Alex Jones, because Alex Jones gives you a different interpretation. All I want to do on the show today is have an argument, a fight where it's personal And it's something that you can't see on CNN or MSNBC. That's all I'm looking for. So it doesn't matter if anybody speaks the truth as long as people are throwing flames. And no, in all seriousness, uh, it's fun to shout and scream. Let me pull back here for a second, Jim. Uh, Both of you are right. And it's priorities. I call it, it's prosecutorial prosecutorial discretion is what I call it. You're both right. It's what we choose to prosecute. So we've we've decided that Donald Trump tried to overthrow 
the government. And I do believe he did. I think there's evidence that the president of the United States honestly wanted people to storm the Capitol, make a stink and scare the hell out of Mike Pence and the Democrats. And when he was watching it in the Oval Office, the only thing he was upset about was the way they looked. And he's a crazy man. And we knew he was a crazy man before he ever came down the escalator. This is what happens when you have a useful idiot in the Oval Office. He's part of a much, much larger picture, a much larger problem. Just don't bring the Russia into this, please. No, but he is part of a much larger problem. And, you know, the dog shit on the carpet. Yeah, but he's got an intestinal problem. There's something internal that's far, far worse. And, and John, it does upset me to see those Capitol Police officers treated that way. Uh, it does upset me to see the, the Capitol trampled upon. But it was trampled upon starting in 1980 when the lobbyists and the big money got in there and Congress became a wholly owned subsidiary of corporate America. And you should not be allowed to do what they did. It was disgraceful what they did. And they should be locked up. But they weren't. And that's the question we should ask is... Why weren't they being arrested? Why weren't the police? Because there were there weren't enough cops. Because they they weren't even allowed to bring in more cops because they kept getting shut down. That's why Trump put in all his lackeys at you know who could turn down the assist uh, the requests for assistance. They asked for like more. I have um, friends. I have white friends. Forget forget the fact that had we. I mean. There were, there were thousands of them, and there was only like a handful of fucking cops. How are they going to start arresting people? They could barely. They didn't know, because they, they were they were outgunned. Yeah. They they were outgunned. So we have a problem where the NRA and the Republican Party has allowed these militia to spring up, and the cops are terrified of them. Yeah. So they didn't arrest these people because but they couldn't. How could they? You could grab a couple and and make. No, there was there was way too many. You haven't watched it. You need to watch it, man. I, believe me, I believe me. I, I've watched it over and over again. I'm well, talking about when things settled down, and they were they were they were leaving peacefully. A couple of hours into it, when they started walking out and you know putting up their their fist and and wow. saying we did it, they should have been arrested. The reason they weren't arrested is they didn't want to trigger more violence. The cops were afraid. They were outgunned. That's were, the problem. Well, they were outgunned, but they were also, at that point, they had spent hours just trying to survive. At that point, when those people were leaving, they needed to just reestablish. They were trying to get the, the, the electoral count back going. They needed to just reestablish the perimeter. They could start grabbing people and start reading them their rights and going, you know, out of one out of a thousand guys, I'm going to pull this guy aside. Like that, that would have been just a a gesture, you know, at that point. But why do you accept that? But I'm not trying to start a fight with you and I'm not trying to team up on you. I'm just raising this question. It's not an argument. I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to argue. 
I agree with what you're saying. The cops were caught with their pants down. They didn't have enough. Why? How is that acceptable? How is that acceptable? Well, let me ask, had it been uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protesters who were going to come, you think they would have had enough cops? Oh, yeah. (laughs) They were there. We saw the we saw the National Guard out in force. Why? Why are we not looking into that? We spend a trillion dollars on defense. We have militarized our police. And those clowns are able to storm the Capitol. And look, if even if you can't prove that Donald Trump literally said, "Okay, I want you to march down. I want you to break through the door. I want you to go in. I want you to grab Nancy Pelosi. I want you to hang. Even if he didn't say any of that, you can't prove that he said exactly that. The fact that he could have picked up a phone or even tweeted and said, hey, you know what, guys, back off. You know, maybe don't do that. The fact that he didn't do that. And in fact, he said, where the fuck is Pence? How come you can't get him? You know, that's what he was doing. Like, that's it right there. He was the one guy who could have put a stop to it. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to pour gasoline on the fire. Right. But but, but don't you think Muriel Bowser, the the mayor of D.C., uh, Mitch McConnell, Schumer, McCarthy and Pelosi, kind of knew what was going on in the lead up to this and that they should have made preparations. They, they, they laid were, back and they said, OK, our security is going to be in the hands of this cretin. It's up to time. We have this crazy. Everybody knows that Donald it, Trump is a sociopath. Nobody was nobody was depending on him. They they were trying to get you know, the the requisite forces, but they kept getting turned down. And the Capitol Police were saying, we got it because they're, you know, not well run and filled with idiots. I mean, and they said, no, we got it. We know what we're doing. Don't worry about it. So, you know. That to me is the, you know, listen, it's, it's, it speaks volumes to how out of touch the Republicans are and the Democrats are with ordinary problems Uh, if if we knew john if you in the city that you live in if you knew there was some kind of protest coming wouldn't you have wouldn't your city prepare properly for this and make sure that the government buildings are secured and protected i don't know i don't know i don't know what the police procedures are in this town I, i you know that's not my job it was like it was like uh, remember Charlottesville as bad as Charlottesville was. Were they able to storm Were they? I know that people died on the streets. Yeah. What what would they storm? But they didn't storm any government buildings, did they? I, maybe uh, didn't they burn down the co- the police department or was that another town? That was Minneapolis. I don't think they were there to uh, they were there to just stir up shit. There was no there. It's a college. town. It's a that's where I went to school. There, there's no government buildings or anything, uh, you know, a, a tiny little police department. But the it, police like, were out in force. They allowed the police allowed a lot of shit to go yes, down they stood there around and, and let it happen. But they protected the institutions. The institutions there were no were, institutions. There were no institutions. It was just a it, university. Wanted, yeah, I mean, they could have burned down the university, but that wasn't their target. They just wanted to, you know, stir up shit. They oh, just they, wanted to fight. They just wanted to beat up people. They should have gone to K Street. 
Yeah. That's that's what they should be fucking breaking into and burning down K Street, looting that fucking hellhole. Yeah, well, somebody's going to... You know, I'm sorry, but again, you know, when those people were inside the Capitol, uh, vandalizing, looting, whatever... Uh, afterwards, one of the uh, Democrats said, these people just came in here like they own the place. Well, they do, along with you and me and John and and and, and uh, Dave. You know, we all own a piece of that. And, and that's kind of what the fucking problem is, that those people who work there don't think we own it anymore. They don't. And I and, in you know, of course, the people who who raided the, the Capitol, mistreated our property, but it's still the same principle. We do own it, and they own it too. This is what Janet Yellen, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, said. She's now the Treasury Secretary. She said, we have 24 million adults and 12 million children who are going hungry every day, and we need to provide them with food. She said this last week. We have people suffering, particularly low-wage workers and minorities, and through absolutely no fault of their own, they are suffering. We have to get them to the other side and make sure this doesn't take a permanent toll on their lives. Now, I do not advocate violence, and I do not advocate storming of the Capitol. I do not advocate anything short of locking up everybody who was part of that insurrection. And I do believe that Donald Trump is pretty smart at egging people on. You know, the right, the, the authoritarian right knows how to say things through dog whistles to get people to do things with plausible deniability. But it's really hard to ask the least among us, and the least among us are becoming a majority you know, more than 50% of Americans <clears throat> are uh, underwater when it comes to rent and mortgages, putting food on the table. So it goes both ways, especially for the Democratic Party. I personally am appalled by what happened on Capitol Hill. But if you're one of the 24 million adults or 12 million children who are hungry, why would you expect them to give a rat's ass about Congress? Congress is not protecting the 24 million starving adults right now. They can't even get emergency, the emergency $1,400 out. How do you get the American people to care about the security of of uh, of Congress when when they don't care about the security of ordinary Americans. It's a two way street. I do, I believe anybody with a gun should be rounded up and be put in, in, a, re, in a yes in a reeducation camp. I think gun, the gun should be taken away from everybody, including the police. I believe uh, in nonviolence. Even, even the Black Panthers. Well, we wouldn't have had gun control had it not been for the Black Panthers, who who had the the wisdom to go to the state capitol in Sacramento 
and walk around with guns. And all of a sudden, the racist Ronald Reagan came out Mm -hmm. in favor of gun control. To backtrack, Dave, I think we got to stop labeling Donald Trump as some kind of three-dimensional chess genius, evil genius uh, guy. No, he's pretty smart. For, he's pretty smart. No, yeah, I, the, the opposite is true. He's a he's a dumb. He's a moron in his, his sociopath. He can't be a smart, g- evil genius and a sociopath, idiot, incompetent idiot at the same sure, time. Sure, sure, he could. <laughs> He parses his words very brilliantly. The the speech he gave to animate his supporters on January 6th was pretty smart because you cannot point to a single word. Okay, but you can't have a you can't uh, execute a speech like that without somebody laying up the 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 biggest lob for you to smack into the. In, into the uh, end zone or whatever the fuck I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> you, he is a, he is not a mastermind. The problem was the Democratic Party and the fake opposition were completely incompetent and complicit in his victory. That's the problem. And then with, with those kind with that kind of so-called opposition, that you can have some people like Trump rise up all the time, and and another will absolutely. You know? Three in 20 Americans under the age of 18 live below the poverty line. Do you know what the poverty line is? Living above the poverty line means your parents are making $8 an hour at Walmart. One in five black or Hispanic children live in poverty. What kind of country is this? And, And we're talking... Like, and we're worried about the safety of our Congress people. Yes, we should be. We should be. I'd like a little conversation, just maybe one one hundredth of the coverage of the insurrection to be about the the 50 million Americans who are who are staring down the barrel of an eviction in March. What yes, you don't st- you don't storm the Capitol. It's wrong. But that's not the only story it, in America. Fair enough. But if if somebody could have walked out of the Capitol and said to those people, all right, listen, we just if go home. We just passed Medicare for all. There's Medicare for all. Joe Biden's going to be president, but there's Medicare for all. You think they all would have went, oh, okay, we got all right, good enough. We don't care about Trump. And uh, that's a weird thing to say. That's well, just but that's, that's true. That's, that's not what those people wanted. They don't want to yeah. feed young. Uh, you think anybody's going to believe somebody coming, walking out of the Capitol and saying something like that after well, being lied to all their lives? Right. But but let's let's say they could prove it and, and, and there was a piece of paper and it was stamped and it was proven. Let, but if, if they said they were going to feed, you know, the starving black and brown kids, that's not what those people wanted. They're not on our side. You're so everybody. So uh, 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump are just virulent and racist. And that's the sole reason they voted for Donald Trump. No, I would say somewhere between 25 and 30 million. <laughs> 
And how many racists are there in the Democratic Party? How many racists voted for a, a segregationist who is now in the White House and who keeps saying things like, if you don't vote for me, then you ain't black and uh, all this other crap. But what, how come we don't pay attention to that and, and label everybody 25 to 50 million? Well, Democrats they are. They are white. For the, people, for the people who stormed the Capitol are white nationalists. They are. They, yeah. they had the Confederate yeah. flag. And they're idiots, and they should and all. Every one of them had a Confederate flag. Auschwitz Yeah, they're anti-Semites. They hate. Every one of them. Every one of them had an Auschwitz. There wasn't uh, one black person. Every, every one of them had a uh, Confederate flag. Okay, but if, all right. If I, if I was there, all right. If I was there protesting with him and I look and I turn and I see a guy with an Auschwitz shirt and another guy with a Confederate flag, I go, you know what? Maybe I don't want to be on this side. Maybe I don't want to be with these people. That's true. But you and I, if we were there, John. Yeah, we'd go. <laughs> that's pretty, you know, until it got violent. It's kind of funny. Uh, you and I have different ideas of what's funny. Last four years, people have been posting. Uh, many of our peers have been posting things like guillotines and and whatnot and nooses, hangman's, hangman's nooses when it comes to uh, uh commenting on what the corporate America is doing to the average worker in this country and talking about revolution, 42, uh, you know, uh, how many people, 60 million people voted for, uh, for Bernie Sanders revolution. A lot of the people now, hang on, both, both of you are right. Two things can be true. And we were talking earlier, nearly 60%, according to, I think it was the Washington post. They studied the, I think 150 people have been arrested so far, and the Washington Post looked into it. 60% of the people charged in the Capitol riots have had financial problems. 18% of them filed for bankruptcy, including the woman who flew on the private jet. And I said that at the beginning. I said, everybody, when people were saying, oh, they're rich, she flew on a private jet. And I said, if some woman and her husband are taking a private jet to the riot, trust me, they have financial problems. They're not good with money. One in five of the people charged are either getting evicted or are uh, have uh, couldn't pay their mortgage. The uh, Ashley Babbitt, I talked about this the day after it happened that her business had, had gone under. Yeah, and people were making fun of her. But why well, she's 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 in the upper class because she has her own business, her own pool cleaning business in San Diego right. she, or wherever. So, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe you should wait a little while before right. you. I make said it the day after. I I I said it the day after she was killed. I found out the day after that she was underwater and had financial problems. The Proud Boy guy, uh, Pizzola. $40,000 in back taxes. So both things are true. They're idiots because they blame they blame black people and Mexicans for their financial difficulties or Jews. So F them. F them. They're effing idiots. And so giving them Medicare for all, they're too stupid to, you know, they have financial difficulties because they're idiots. And they've been convinced that's socialism. They don't want Medicare yeah. for they're, they're effing idiots. Well, that's not really true either. They're John, effing idiots. The majority of Republicans polled uh, favor government run health care. Uh, that's that's not true. Run that's not true, Jim. You, 
That's not true. The majority, the majority of Americans today want government run. That's not true. That is not true. This is a stupid country, Jim, and they fall prey to push polls. This is an incredibly illiterate, stupid populace. And and there are other polls that show that the the, the ignoramuses who live in this country want to save. I can't argue with that kind of argument when you just dismiss something as this is a nation of morons, of mouth breathing morons who watch the Super Bowl. That's just an opinion. That's the truth. And, And when you poll them, there's another poll. That shows that a, a vast preponderance of Americans want to save Obamacare before Medicare well, for all because it's a also, stupid country. But they're also they're being they're being fed yeah misinformation by you know Fox News and OAN and right. Newsnet. They're getting it's impossible. It's probably left out CNN and MSNBC and ABC. You left out those great entities. Those pieces of shit. They're not news organizations because they won't explain what Medicare for all is during the debates, during the presidential debates. The only place where Bernie got to really spell out what Medicare for all would look like was when he did the town hall on Fox News. So we have a stupid country. They've been dumbed down by the corporate media. Okay, then if the country is so deplorable and stupid and ignorant, then why should you care about them? Because uh, it's not their the fault. Because it's not their the fault. It's well, not their care fault. about them storming the capital of a nation that's just a deplorable, stupid, ignorant? Because I think, I think Pelosi and Schumer and McConnell and uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the Ron Paul, Rand Paul. And I think they're more evil then the people, I don't think the American people are evil. I think corporate America has turned, has stupefied, has the past 40 years, they've stupefied Americans into thinking they're exceptional. Yeah, we are exceptionally stupid and unhealthy and broke. Well, that's what that brings me back to. Donald Trump is not a genius. He is just an exploiter. And he exploited the moment. The moment was given to him by the so-called Democratic opposition and liberal opposition, which is now just it, it, the part of the Democratic Party. It's all one big neoliberal melting pot of horseshit that is in league with right-wing Republicans and what's left of the Tea Party. And that's the future, as long as so-called opposition candidates continually try to change this cancerous party from within. And that's why Bernie Sanders is, is an ineffectual old fart right now, uh, barely mumbling any uh, opposition to Neera Tandon's uh, appointment. Yeah. And you AOC, know, AOC is, my, you know what is my feeling is a pox, uh, $7,000 uh, burial uh, benefits instead of two thousand dollars that she promised and everybody else promised, and now it's fourteen hundred. So she's part of the bullshit too. It's Fuck all them. bullshit. You know the Parkland school shooting, Newtown, and and Obama crying, and and all of a sudden we're supposed to shed a tear, and I do about the, the metal detector in the Capitol and how Nancy Pelosi wants to find. The, the QAnon Congress people, $5,000 because they won't go through the metal detector because they're carrying guns into Congress. But they can't. Now they know what it's like to be a student. John, you have a kid. 
you you know about the 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 the, the fatalism of American yeah. school children before the pandemic. They don't have to go to school anymore, but they've just accepted the fact that there's going to be a school shooting. Remember you told me that? Remember you told me that your daughter, that kids today in high school and elementary school accept the fact that there's going to be a school shooting and these clowns in Congress take money from the NRA. They can't pass an assault weapons ban. And we're supposed parents of teenagers who are terrified are supposed to feel sorry because I feel sorry for the Capitol Police, but we're supposed to feel sorry for these frauds because all of a sudden they now know what it feels like to be a student. I mean, you know, yes, nobody should storm the Capitol and nobody should carry a gun into the Capitol. But uh, these pieces of shit in Washington, they want sympathy. Where, where were they after Newtown and Parkland? Well, there were plenty who wanted to. It's not there's not 100 percent. They weren't all against gun control. It is 90 percent that the Republicans and they're the ones who are, you know, that the NRA supports. Yes, there are some Democrats, but it's mostly Republicans. So, yeah. You know, I mean, what can we do? I mean, we just have to fight harder and get more people who are on the side. There are plenty of people who want to, you know, have gun control or even get rid of guns. You know, more, I would say women, but like you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and that uh, that other nut, you know, there's plenty of crazy women, too, who want who love their guns. I don't know what the answer is. But there are people who are on our side. Well, the, the answer is all Congress. The, the, the answer is a party, a Democratic party that truly represents the American people and isn't run by middle of the road lawyers who will take the side, you know, will will go work for the Obama administration or the Biden administration and then go work at Covington and Burling and defend gun manufacturers. Uh, you know, right. you, right. you, so you, how do we get there? you need purity tests in the Democratic Party. You have to start throwing out. Uh, never, never happened in the Democratic Party. Well, that's right. Well, you know, it's got to be taken over by labor leaders. And Dr. Harriet Fraud was telling me, and I want to look into this. Did you know that in, in Europe, you, you labor leaders can't make more than the rank and file? Like if this was a European, like if the AFL-CIO were in Europe, Richard Trumka would not be allowed to make $300,000 a year. And get, and get speaking fees. So, you know, we, we have to we have to get back to a celebration of the middle class and, and saying that people who are middle class should aspire to be middle class. That it, that I don't know what middle class is anymore. It doesn't exist. I say it never existed of the, of the working class. But we have to come up with a number. And I don't know what it is. And we have to define what poverty is in this country. What is poverty? How much should people be living? They they tell me 20. If you make more than twenty seven thousand dollars a year. You're above the poverty line, I guess. Uh, You know, if you know, you don't want health. 
Huh? Makes a big difference where you live. You can yeah. live on $27,000 in some places. Right. Man. That's the fucking bullshit that, that it's the nuance and the great. We have to decide what is poverty, what is middle class, and what is rich. And that's the, the bullshit that I keep hearing is, you know, $25,000 a year if you live in Idaho, you're a millionaire on twenty. Well, you know. I didn't say that. You didn't say it, but but this is how, this is why you can't get a straight answer from anybody. We need to decide what is middle class, what is poverty, and what is wealth. And we need to celebrate living within your means. Let's say, I don't know, $75,000 a year across the board in every state makes you middle class. Well, and that should be celebrated. That if you make $75,000 a year and you have health insurance... And, and free tuition that you don't have to worry about. That should be a great life in America. You shouldn't be aspiring to anything more because anything more is corrupt. I mean, if you want, if you want to, per, like I'm the kind of person, if I could make more than so, I would pursue that. But it's, it, it should not bring you happiness. Unfortunately, in America, it does. It brings you peace and quiet. If you can make more than $75,000 a year, you can get away from your noisy neighbors and the leaf blowers. You can find solitude or time to spend with your family. If you're blowing leaves, you should see a doctor. Well, the problem in America is if you're not making enough money, there are forces at play that make you miserable. They've set it up in America that money makes you happy because if you don't have money, there's a hammer hitting you over the head all all day. I'd like, I'd like us at the very least, I would like a speaker who represents the democratic party who doesn't own $200 million in real estate. And I, and, and I'd like, at least half this country to be offended by that. I, I'd like ha- at least half this country to say, really, the, 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 the Democratic Party represents the working man a- and Nancy Pelosi owns $200 million in real estate and is a landlord? I would just like people to be offended by that. Well. They're not allowed to in this party because then you're uh, by default supporting Donald Trump or the Republicans if you criticize the Democratic leadership in such a way. So we want we want change. You want things to change, right? I mean, and we have we have a flawed system. It's the worst system in the world, except for every other system that there is. So we that's want- not true. What? That's not true. Well, I mean, I'm just talking about d- democracy. You're defending. You can't defend this country. I'm not defending this country. I'm saying democracy, the system of, you know, how are we going to affect change? How are we going to make things different? And all I'm saying is if you're getting to a point where um, we're setting this, 
the precedent, the standard that an election, somebody can just say, hey, I won this and fight it, you know, um, by by, you know, violent means. That's why I'm saying, you know, we can't ever get unless we establish at least some norms that you can't storm the Capitol and change votes and do like, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying I, I, I get that everything's fucked up and the democratic party is terrible and people aren't offended that Nancy, Pelosi, but if you're going to make change, how are you going to do it? You're going to do it through the system that we have, you know, and we have to at least have it so that, you know, we believe in elections, but if elections are now the, the norm is, Hey, you know, you can just deny that you lost and fight and get your, um, like, like Hillary Clinton denied that she lost and has been she, denying yeah, that yeah. she lost for the last four years. She's, she's but, denying yeah, it. She, she conceded. She immediately conceded. And that was that. Maybe she groused. She groused. That, groused. That's so different okay. than what Maybe Donald Trump's grousing, too. Nah, that, oh, that's what a false equivalency. Fuck false that. equivalency. The only, th- the only thing that Hillary Clinton hasn't done that. Trump has done regarding the election is incite people to violence. Oh, oh well, that's a little and, bit of a big. But, but, but when you can for four years, say the Russians elected Donald Trump, and then the, the Democratic Party impeaches the elected president. Sorry, but he was elected. But we, we have to wrap it up. Contest and on on those. Will you terms. raise your voice, please? I'm trying to get numbers on this. Uh, show. I can't hear myself. I have uh, John I'm Ross. I have one question. I'm yeah. showing pictures of Kevin James' new 14 million dollar home in Florida. Uh-huh. Now, I believe that Kevin James is an amazing actor. I do, and I think he's really funny. Okay. And I also believe he's entitled to live in a $14 million home like this, even uh-huh. though it makes you sick. It cuts you off from the world. You know, Martin Luther King often said that segregation is a sin because anything that cuts you off from humanity is sinful. Drinking is a sin because it cuts you off from humanity. Any drugs cuts you off from humanity. I believe that it's people fight. people should be allowed to, to drink and, and people should be allowed to gamble and people should be allowed to live in a $14 million estate like this. I also believe that I have an obligation to tell Kevin that this is sinful. This is I sinful. I, I, that's I, right. You shouldn't live this way because right. it's not good for your kids. It cuts right. them off. It's not healthy, Kevin. And, and if you're going to live this way, keep it a secret and get a better place that isn't on a service road. Look what look at look at how effed up this country is. Fourteen million dollars. And and he still has to listen to the, the traffic noise. What does it take for peace and quiet in this in this effing country? Fourteen million dollars. And there's still the noise of cars. And he has to and he has to listen to this show. He's a listener to this show. That's I know. I like Kevin. He's a it good looks guy. like a Motel 6. I mean, look at that. $14 million, you can't even get beachfront property. You're, it's separated by a service road. This country is messed up. All right. It's a service road to his kitchen. By the way, let me, let me officially say. He's a big man. Just so we're, so we're clear before I turn this over to Grace and Henry. 
and we get a semblance of decency and morality on this show. It was wrong to storm the Capitol. And the people who did it are white nationalist racists. And I apologize. <laughs> and you shouldn't have done that, John. They are, they are bigots and they're idiots. But don't expect the, the 50% of this country that can't make rent to have sympathy for Nancy Pelosi, who owns $200 million in real estate. She is a landlord. It was wrong what happened. Maybe you should pay more attention to the people you represent. It was it wasn't a spontaneous event. They didn't just come together and and happen to they were incited and organized and funded by Donald Trump and his people. That would not have happened without Donald Trump orchestrating that whole thing from the beginning. So and, and Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell uh, should have been smart enough to know that this isn't going to end well. I think we all knew that. Spontaneous or planned, you wouldn't you wouldn't find anything in it that was valid. Right. Period. Right. You know, it doesn't matter if it's spontaneous or planned. It's 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 planned on something that was spontaneous or is spontaneous after his plan. What I mean, who cares whether it was planned or not? It happened and it happened because people felt the way they did and people felt the way they did because of 40 fucking years of this shit going on that no one will stop. Okay. Let us now go to Great Britain. Bye. I love you, John. Thank you. This was fun. Let's do this more often. It's good. Fighting is good. It, It gets the blood boiling and nothing, you know, it's just frivolous. Uh, by the way, everybody go to davidfeldmanshow.com. This Saturday night, the genius Martha Previtt takes on Robert Smigel, Rick Overton, and Diabetes, along with FBI informant, Emmy and Peabody award-winning comedy writer Jim Earl. Let's go to Great Britain. Okay, we have to, I'm sorry to keep everybody okay. waiting. Let's go to Great Britain, where Grace and Henry are standing by, and we have a very special guest. Thank you. Thanks, David. I'm sorry you had to hear that. That's okay. I only got the last five minutes, so I assume that was the the juiciest bit. Just want to get Um, some screaming on the show to boost the numbers. That's right. So thank you, David. Uh, I'm really, really honored to be here uh, tonight to interview our guest, who is Dr. Vijay Prashad. He is a historian, an editor, and a journalist, uh, the director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and a senior non-resident fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. He has written more than 20 books including The Darker Nations and The Poorer Nations. And his latest book, which was out in the autumn of last year, is Washington Bullets, which features an introduction by none other than Eva Morales. So thank you so much for being with us, uh, Dr. Prashad, and, and thanks, Henry, also for joining us. Henry has already interviewed Dr. Prashad for Guerrilla History, and if listeners haven't heard that interview, they should 
go back and check it out. I think it was one of the first episodes you did, Henry, right? It was It was the first episode with a guest. We had a pilot episode where we introduced ourselves before that, but VJ was our first guest on the show. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun since then. So nice to see you again, VJ. It's great to be with you. It's a pleasure. Nice to be with you, Grace. And uh, hi, David. Nice to be on your show. Thank you. Uh, very nice to be with you. I'm sorry you had to hear what was before you. There is a certain misery, David, in the state of politics in the United States. And I, I feel the misery uh, deeply and I feel it in that conversation. Um, I think there's a certain circularity which finds it hard to break away from the fact that in the last U.S. presidential election, the bill for the election was $14 billion. You can't use the word democracy um, in the same sentence as $14 billion. It's just antithetical. So when your guest said, you know, it's the best system there is, it's the best system you can buy. And it's a system that has been systematically bought up. $14 billion. Imagine, imagine the things one could do with $14 billion. Imagine if politics didn't have so much money in it. What would that look like? You know, Henry Huckamacki, I don't know if you know who he is. He does the show all the time. <laughs> he said some, and then I'll be quiet. I just want to quote Henry for a second. The other day I was reading that in the lead up to the trial, the Democratic Party spent half a million dollars on ads linking certain Congress people to QAnon. And I thought, $500,000 for what? And Henry has said that the appeal of the, the right the, the, is that the Republicans are tied in with churches and the religious community feeds people. That the Republicans, the reason people vote Republican, a lot of them, is because of the religion and because churches are linked to the Republican Party and they go out and feed people. Where is the Democratic Party? I'm just parroting what you're saying, Henry. Yeah, but when David, I, can I just finish the point then, that like uh, to finish the thought that you, that you started there of mine. My point is always then the follow-up is that the left needs to do mutual aid, much in the way that the Black Panthers used to have their free breakfast programs, used to make sure that people were housed, et cetera, et cetera. This is what the left needs to do. That's the punchline to that point. And of course, this is what the left does outside the United States. Um, the example that I will give you is close to my own life, which is in Kerala, in the southwest of India, where at the start of the pandemic, Nobody waited for the state to act, although the state must play a key role because the state has scale. You can't give up on the state. Uh, the mass organizations, trade unions, women's organizations, youth organizations came out there, started feeding people, going door to door to make sure the elderly had what they needed, you know, set up sinks in public. Uh, you see, this is an interesting thing. When the WHO gives a advisory, wash your hands, Many parts of the world, you don't have running water. There's a, it's not easy to just go and wash your hands. This was a situation in Brazil. In fact, in Brazil, it led to a court case at the International Criminal Court because the current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, dismissed the fact that in large parts of Amazonia, there is no running water. And he said, oh, it's not important. But 
when the WHO has given an advisory to wash your hands, it's actually a human right to be able to wash your hands in the middle of a pandemic. Didn't have to, you see, wait for anybody. The left organizations, the trade unions went out there and conducted mass activity. I'm not actually sure what trade unions did in the United States. And I understand trade unions are under a lot of pressure. But it would have been, I think, if not symbolic, it would have been extraordinarily important because, you see, to be fed is not symbolic. To, to be fed is an act of human decency and it's real for the person who's eating um, because hunger rates have gone up. There's nothing symbolic about these things. These are real. There's nothing merely political. These are human things to do. And mass organizations, I mean, it strikes me that this is precisely what one does, one is organized to do this, uh, to be there, to be, you know, the wind underneath people's wings. And I think this is what the left does globally. I'm going to jump in there with a quick point, Grace, if you don't mind, just because you mentioned uh, trade unions and David had mentioned the AFL-CIO before. And uh, this is a point that we brought up in our episode of Guerrilla History with you, and it's in your book, Washington Bullets. People, if you haven't already read it, go pick it up right now. It's an essential reading for, for what's going on today and what has been going on for decades. But something that I think a lot of the listeners are going to find interesting is uh, the AFL-CIA, <laughs> as you write about in your book, because uh, the people that listen to the show are all going to be, you know, left, liberal, progressive, socialists, Marxists, communists, etc. They're all going to be on relatively the left side of the spectrum. And we always think about unions uh, and trade unions particularly as being good. You know, this is how we want to build our forces. This is how we want to bring people together to affect change. But that that isn't exactly what's happened with a lot of these unions. And you write about the AFL-CIO, or as I believe it was a, a, a Brit said, the AFL-CIA, um, and what they were doing in Chile. Would you like to recount that briefly for people if they're unaware of it? I mean, f first, I'd just like to uh, be a little nuanced about it. This is not a condemnation of trade unionism in general, which is, of course, essential and important. It's also not a condemnation of this union or that union. I mean, the history of the United States and trade unions is a very complicated history. And, you know, I read Mike Davis's book uh, years ago, classic, amazing book about the history of the American working class. And you know that, you know, the American trade unionism has a noble history, uh, whether it's the IWW, you know, people in northern Massachusetts organized the textile workers, um, you know, etc. There's a noble history of the mine workers, the railroad workers, and so on. I, I don't want to paint a picture that's, that's you know, with big, thick, uh, you know, paint. Um, on the other hand, after the Cold War gets underway, um, the AFL-CIA, as, as, as the centralized leadership under Lane Kirkland, made a deal with the U.S. government basically to participate in the McCarthyism. And they developed this strategy of business unionism where they said, look, we won't, we won't confront the bosses. We'll negotiate with the bosses. And there's no better or worse example than Detroit, where the unions essentially just kept negotiating downward. It was just concession. What became known in the literature is concessionary bargaining 
bargaining, where you bargain by giving concessions. It's it's extraordinary that in the so-called industrial relations literature, this is a it's a hallowed phrase, concessionary bargaining, as if this is a good thing. Why should unions give things up? They should be demanding things, you know, for the safety and the livelihood of of working people. But no. It's concessionary. There's, the there's, the problem time, is I belong to a union. And the problem, Dr. Prashad, is they sell the wealthy leadership to the rank and file. They, they'll say, because we had, I belong to the Writers Guild, and we had John Wells, who was the executive producer of ER and the West Wing. And the union would say, this is good. John Wells is a producer. He He has access. He knows what the books look like. He can help us. We have, we fall in love with our oppressor as opposed to saying, no, anybody who works and who heads the union can't make more than the rank and file and is middle class. You're not here to build, (laughs) you're not here to pad your resume. We don't need a lawyer representing us. Lawyers are like plumbers. You can look them up in the phone book and hire one and get a good one. But we need a union thug who represents the rank and file. In America, we identify with the wealthy. We aspire to be what we're not. Well, yes. And, you know, old Lenin, a hundred years ago, coined a phrase to describe this as the labor aristocracy. A cream, the creme de la creme of the working class gets sucked in and absorbed. And the worst thing, what Henry was talking about is that from the 1950s, they began to collaborate with the CIA and they started bringing in right of center trade unionists from Guyana. That was one of the key examples, bringing them to the United States, training them in the same way that the U.S. military, for instance, at the School of the Americas at Fort Benning, Georgia, brought mid-level officers from South, mainly South American militaries to train. That's why it's the School of the Americas. And people like Manuel Noriega and so on were trained in Fort Benning, Georgia, sent back as essentially assets of the U.S. military, the liaison, you know. And so you had these trade unionists who were liaisons of the AFL-CIO. And when it came time to do a coup in British Guyana against Chedi Jagan, in this particular example, the unions under these leaders were asked to go on strike. Now, the U.S. government is asking trade unions to go on strike to paralyze the government. And that was the weapon used in the coup. And a British um, state, you know, a British uh, diplomatic official coined the phrase AFL-CIA in relation to the use of trade unions uh, in this malicious way. So one has to be very careful. You know, one of the reasons I wrote Washington Bullets is I was quite maybe, let me just say directly, I was very, very pissed off uh, when the coup took place in Bolivia in 2019 because I felt there there was one, maybe two generations of people who were just not, being schooled to understand the way in which these operations take place. And I mean, I'm using that term advisedly, operations, because it is an operation. You know, there's a cliched way in which these coups take place. And I wanted to suggest, listen, please, people, from at least the 1940s, at least, it actually has an earlier history, but at least from the 1940s, a grammar 
of coup d'etats develops, a grammar of destabilization develops, let's at least acknowledge that this is part of the toolkit of the United States government. And it has been utilized from Guatemala, 1950, you know, 54, uh, Iran, 1953 onward. You know, the, the, it's just so cliched and the similarities are so extraordinary. And, you know, I've interviewed about 20 or 30 pretty high up people in the CIA. I recognize and, you know, I mean, Grace, Henry, I know the CIA is not what it used to be. Now one has to look at the NSA and the National Security Agency and the Defense Intelligence Agency. I understand that the CIA really is the sort of it's 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 almost like your uncle in the room now you know it's not it doesn't drive the agenda it's it's the nsa and the dia that really drive things nonetheless i interviewed people who were director of operations in the cia you know paris bureau chief people like chuck cogan and so on and you know it's incredible the stories they tell you because what they tell you these are guys who have blood on their hands and they want desperately to wash it before they die and okay i'm not a priest but you know a journalist is the closest thing to a priest that some of these guys are going to get you know so they tell you their stories and and they're disgusting stories and just reprehensible and then they warn you, like, you know, Chuck warned me. He was like, don't write about Afghanistan 1978. <laughs> and I thought, oh, good God. He said, I, you know, I worry for your health, he told me. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's... <laughs> okay. Um, is it, if it's okay, I want to just change the subject a little bit, although it's it's basically on the same trajectory. Um so Dr. Prashad co-authored a great piece uh, recently with Noam Chomsky, and it was published in Counterpunch. And in this piece, they argued that the neoliberal leaders who have failed to protect their own countries from COVID-19 should be investigated. Um, and indeed, that we should have a citizens tribunal impaneled to investigate possible crimes against humanity perpetrated by leaders like Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Jair Bolsonaro, and Narendra Modi, and to try them in the International Criminal Court. Um, I found this piece thrilling, <laughs> being uh, here in the UK and, and having witnessed the kind of abysmal uh, response of the UK government in the past year. So I wanted to ask Dr. Prashad to just elaborate a little bit on that and talk about the correlation between neoliberal economic policies and ineffective pandemic responses. Um, sure. I mean, this, uh, look, the, the evidence is clear. Let's leave China out of this for a minute, because I know there's controversy and people somehow sniff at China and, and I don't know. I, I don't want to get involved in that debate. But let's take Vietnam and Laos, very poor countries, very poor countries. Both of them border China. In fact, Vietnam has an extremely long border with China. Just do me a favor, go and go to COVID-19, any, any website that keeps COVID-19 statistics and just look at the up-to-date statistics of infection rates and, and mortality in Vietnam, Laos and the United States. Just take these three. Look at per capita deaths in these countries. It should shock any decent human being. These are two countries that share a border with China and they had a minimal, minimal death count. 
if you compare it to the United States, which has oceans that divide it from China and therefore had so much time to prepare, uh, something should have been done. You know, the United States was informed on New Year's Eve of 2019-2020, New Year's Eve, the Chinese head of the CDC called the head of US CDC. New Year's Eve, that's the 31st of December, if you're counting, of 2019. That's a month almost before the um, they knew that it was human-to-human transmission. That was on the 25th of January. Uh, just after that, the WHO declares a global health emergency. There's no pandemic declared till March 11th. Mr. Uh, whatever his name is, I've forgotten now, he was Trump's health uh, secretary. Okay, I mean, one would imagine during a pandemic, this person would be a household name. He vanished. He is on record as having said in January, he was too scared to tell Trump what was going on. So they waited four or five weeks to inform Trump. You know, it's one thing to go after Trump. Trump is has a buffoonish manner. It's one thing to go after Trump and say Trump hid this, Trump hid that. It's as likely as 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 you know as the evidence shows that it's as likely that the people around him just didn't inform him, they didn't brief him adequately. And you know he's not the king. You don't have to brief him. What was the Health and Human Services Department doing? They were doing nothing. There's a criminal conspiracy, you know, and I'm using these words. I'm generally fairly clear and precise with my language. I'm trying to be as clear as possible. There's a criminal conspiracy here because, you know, Mr. Alex Azar, that's his name, by the way. I I knew his name. I just was trying to see how many people remembered the Health and Human uh, Services Secretary's name. Alex Azar is on record as saying he didn't tell the chief executive for several weeks about the severity of this virus. I mean, that's extraordinary. Now, on the one side, for decades, you've eviscerated public health in the United States and Great Britain. You cut the NHS, cut it to the bone. In the United States, there are, you know, it's about half the level of nursing staff needed in these private sector hospitals, half the level. Public health workers, you've sliced it all. So first you've destroyed public health effectively. Um, You've actually eviscerated the ability to test people because you privatize testing completely. You know, in, in the United States, there is no real public sector testing. It's all private sector testing. And these private sector places are also cut to the bone. You know, they are, they are basically blood testing and so on. And there are very few places where you can get tested. There's not enough people out there. So there's no surplus capacity. That's neoliberalism's genius. There's no surplus capacity, no surplus beds, no surplus testing, no surplus nurses. The moment you have any, forget pandemic, you have an epidemic. You don't have the personnel. You don't have the infrastructure to deal with it. Somebody has to account. Somebody has to answer for this. You know, when you have half a million people dead in a country, you know, I mean, it's just, it's unnecessary. Look at what the Chinese did. I'm now coming straight to China. That's where the pandemic was said to have emerged. The Per capita death count is is so low. I mean, because what did they do? In Wuhan, they went and built two hospitals immediately, shut the whole place down. There's also public action in these in these societies. You know, there are neighborhood committees and so on. In the capitalist countries, you've actually commodified public action. 
through private foundations that create private NGOs. So people lose the habit of acting in a volunteer capacity in their communities. You sort of wait for, you know, Bill Gates to fund some private NGO to, to do the work that people should do as volunteers in their community. Volunteerism dies out. And I mean, David, you mentioned churches earlier. Churches do things, but it's not at the scale that you need it, you know, because half the people in your country don't go to church. So what happens to them? You know, a, a church has a, has, a, has a membership. It's a membership organization. And there's what a price not that, a member? There's a price that comes with that. You have to sit through a, a sermon or be proselytized <laughs> to eat. David, may I add something? So Vijay's talking about the response in, in China to, to COVID. And I, I find that the example of Vietnam is even more fun. So Vietnam has... I believe 90 million people in their country. I, I could be off by a little bit on there. They've had, as of last count, I think 36 deaths due to COVID uh, across the entire country. And here's an example of, of why. And it's one of my favorite examples. But during the summer, there was a city. So at that point, Vietnam had completely eradicated COVID from the country. Vietnam is a, a socialist country. They're governed by a socialist party, of course, and they haven't achieved communism or anything like that, but they're, they're governed by a socialist party. And during the summer, they had completely eradicated COVID from the country. Now, there was a family in a city of about 60,000 people that came down with COVID. I think two or three members of the family came down with COVID. So what did Vietnam do? They didn't say, ah, you know, we got to skimp on our testing and we got to... No, they said, okay, we've got one family in this town that has COVID. We're going to quarantine this family in their house. We're going to bring them their food and other essential supplies. And we're going to evacuate the other 60,000 people from the city. And they did. That city was empty while that family had COVID. And they waited until the family no longer had COVID to allow anybody to come back in. It's actions like that that allow a country like Vietnam, very poor and with a fairly large population, it's roughly, it's just under a third of what the U.S. has, somewhere between a third and a quarter of what the U.S. has. And they've had 36 deaths due to COVID at this point. It's not because they have some secret vaccine that they've been giving people that no one else in the world had access to. It's public health will and governmental will to do things like this. Now, Vijay, I'm going to, uh, uh, you mentioned NGOs, and this is something that I wanted. Oh, well, let's have Grace. Can I just interrupt? I yes, just want course. to supplement this discussion because I, I, it's fascinating and I, I I agree with everything you and Dr. Prasad have said, but I do want to just add for the record that there are a couple of exceptions to the rule. There are a couple of capitalist countries that have done really, really well with COVID. And my I've been thinking a lot about why, because my background, Dr. Prashad, is in Taiwan. I lived there for a couple of years and um, I'm really interested in Taiwanese political culture, um, particularly after their sort of transition to democracy in the 80s. And <clears throat> I think in the case of both New Zealand and Taiwan, um, and Taiwan's ha had seven deaths, it's, it's more a kind of function of their political culture and their, the fact that these are societies that have been able to reach a consensus about public health and they're both countries that have, you know, I'm sure there's, they've got their fair share of kind of neoliberal approaches to the economy, but in terms of healthcare and kind of community response and that spirit of voluntarism that Dr. Prashad was mentioning, I think it's kind of worth remembering that 
although that tends to be the case in socialist countries, it can also be possible in other kind of setups. And I think, and the reason I want to mention that is because it's very easy for us to despair. Um, but I think the more that we can imagine our political culture changing, that's kind of a start, right? So, sorry, Henry. Would South Korea also be an example of people who are capitalists, but they take their democracy very seriously? They're often mentioned in the same uh, sentence as Taiwan in that respect, yes. Um, And I think they haven't done quite as well, but they definitely had a pretty robust response. Some of it has... Sorry, go ahead. Please. No, I was just going to say some of it has to do with... It is true that, that... Taiwan and South Korea uh, had a much more robust response than, say, the United Kingdom. Some of this has to do with the fact that they've already been through the SARS experience. And so mask wearing is is very much um, something that people understand and respect. And in, and in fact, in many countries, people didn't stop wearing masks. You know, um, mask wearing just continued after SARS. Um, that's a very important piece of it. Um also, I mean, look, I, I just don't accept the whole Confucian culture stuff. It just it's all nonsense and gibberish. But it is also true that um, there is a healthy respect of uh, state institutions. And this comes because the state is relatively efficient, not in everything. And South Korea is a good example of quite an inefficient state in many respects. Democracy, it's just a recent thing in South Korea. It used to be for a long time a terrible dictatorship. And, you know, the violence of the government against people in Gwangju, for instance, the historic violence, it's it's within, you know, living our living memory. Um, you know, gangster president of the country. I mean, you know, it's it's not that, but the state is relatively efficient. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you a quick example of this. In Cuba, very poor country, under immense blockade, the beginning of the pandemic, they did something quite interesting. 29,000 medical students left the dormitories and went and tested 11 million people. If I ask somebody in the United States or the United Kingdom, has the state knocked at your door? You know, you pay taxes to the state, so you, you you send your tax money off. You do all kinds of things. But during the pandemic, has anybody knocked on your door and taken your temperature, seen if you're okay, tested you? It just hasn't happened. They have something like one doctor for each citizen in Cuba. It's not exactly one, one to so one. No, no, I'm sorry. One, yeah. I'm sorry. Two hundred do- one doctor for 200 citizens. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's about that, correct? Yeah. Um, and and you know, in 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 many other countries, it's fifty, hundred times. Uh, the ratio is hundred times worse. But these were medical students because the issue is you don't actually need a doctor to knock at your door. Uh, you need somebody to come in, just make sure you're okay, take your temperature, and perhaps that sets up the infrastructure. That ex- that experience sets up the infrastructure for vaccinations. Because if you go, if you have somebody who goes, takes temperature, that person can immediately start getting trained to give a vaccination. And because they know an area, you're now building a public health infrastructure in the middle of a pandemic. They didn't even do that. Because in this country, we hate each other. We're, we've been so militarized. We've been so trained 
to look for an enemy because our economy depends on it. We have to spend at least a trillion dollars a year building weapons. We hate one another. We don't want somebody knocking on our door. <laughs> well, this is why we need a tribunal, an international tribunal, to just save to this, open to, the question. To save America <laughs> from itself. I, I've used this as an example before. So Vijay is hitting on a very important point is that trust in institutions, trust in public health institutions, trust in the government is an important thing. That's why places like Senegal, another super poor country, has had a very good response to COVID uh, compared to many of the much richer countries. Um, one of the reasons, again, also, as Vijay mentioned, they had experienced a public health emergency before. They had the Ebola outbreak in 2014, 2015, and, and had formulated a plan during 2014, 2015 that they could enact as soon as the pandemic hit. But they went out and they educated people and people listened to them because they knew, ah, our government's been thinking about this. They care about us. But the, the inverse is also true. You can easily cause a loss in trust in public health institutions. And this is something we talked about. I've used it as an example on your show, David, and I talked about it in an episode of Guerrilla History before. The U.S. actually uh, provides a very good example of how this can be done. When we were looking for bin Laden in Pakistan, the CIA set up a apparatus where they were giving out, uh, they, they said that they were going to be giving out hepatitis B vaccinations. But what the real idea is, is they were going out and they were testing the DNA of people to see if they could find bin Laden's children. And if you find bin Laden's children, ah, you find bin Laden. Well, it came out afterwards. That is not how they found bin Laden, by the way. It was mm -hmm. an expensive measure that they did that didn't get any results. But after bin Laden had been killed, this came out. And the people in Pakistan, especially that area of Pakistan, became very suspicious of any public health officials because they had seen, ah, these public health officials, they say that they're coming in here to treat us, to make us healthy. But really, it was the CIA coming in to try to look for bin Laden because that's more important to them than our health. So what happened afterwards? Vaccination rates plummeted. Cases of polio spiked. This is what happens when you lose trust in public health yeah, also, in, in, uh, in, in the government, and it's much harder to regain it than it is to lose that. Because of snow. Grace, can we, uh, we, in our limited time with Dr. Prashad, we keep promising to explain the farmers' strike. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Because I don't understand it. In America, it all gets down to Twitter being censored by the government. So it's yeah. always about, oh, American corporations, freedom of speech, it's, it's, we filter it. The only way they make it mm -hmm. interesting in America is it how it affects Twitter. Yes, it's all about you, David, yes. um, and Rihanna and Greta Thunberg and, yes, all of that kind of media drama. So what is the story with the, the farmer's strike? Well, let's ask Dr. Prashad that first, and then I just I do have a follow-up question about something that he's he's written about recently. So, yeah, Dr. Prashad, if you would just explain for us. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, India, like many places, um, basically subsidizes agriculture because you just can't do agriculture under a capitalist system without a subsidy. It's just not possible. And we don't have time to get into this. In the United States, you spent about $20 trillion 
subsidizing agriculture over the decades. In Europe, they spend 65 billion a year to subsidize agriculture. You know, I'm just these are unbelievable numbers. Um, under some pressure from the um, International Monetary Fund and others, India has gone in this direction of trying to cut subsidies, and this has been over the last 15 years. In uh, during the pandemic, the government decided to ram through three bills through Parliament, which essentially takes the marketplace where farmers come to sell their produce, takes that marketplace where the where the government had produced a floor price. so that prices don't fluctuate too much downwards they had a floor price and there was a public distribution system for food so the government bought excess capacity from farmers to distribute to the hungry these were two very important pillars of protecting agriculture and fighting hunger what the government essentially did was give this marketplace the mandi over to the big corporates particularly to these big families the adanis the ambanis and so on this was late last year they just rammed it through parliament in a voice vote because they had the majority it's a very very undemocratic thing to do because even if you control 99 out of 100 seats you should allow the one person to stand up in parliament and make the case against uh, the bill you that's a democracy you got you can't just have a voice vote rammed it through i, I find that norm of democracy is very important the one two 50 people whatever who have a voice they must be allowed to articulate anyway on the 26th of november there was a call by the trade unions for a general strike 250 million workers came out on strike workers farmers peasants and so on struck on that day it's the biggest strike in world history recorded strike these strikes have been going for the past decade but that day the farmers started their revolt they came in tractors they came walking all the way to delhi from neighboring areas and they surrounded delhi from the 26th of november till the 26th of january they sat on the outskirts of delhi the crowds grew bigger and bigger the government really didn't want to negotiate with them tried to call them terrorists tried to call them anti national and so on their children you see what is a what is a military so what is a soldier a soldier is a farmer in uniform So these farmers children who were in the military started coming and joining the protest saying you're insulting my parents you're insulting my family um police officers who a policeman is also a farmer in uniform in India where the bulk of people are agricultural farm the police officers started coming and saying these are our family members so the government found it backfiring 26th of January is India's Republic Day when our constitution was brought in on in 1950 so farmers entered the city on the 26th of January you know they broke through the barriers and so on there was a lot of police violence against the farmers the farmers by and large were were peaceful but come on you're going to go, run up to a farmer with a stick farmers deal with sticks every day friends a stick is nothing they carry all kinds of implements they are going to fight back you impose violence on a farmer farmer is not like you know a, a church activist who says you know i come in peace christ uh, you know eye for an eye and so on you try to hit a farmer they are going to hit you back and of course the media then says the farmers are violent this is nonsense um one tv channel called news click covered this thoroughly last month 40 million views to news click over the last 55 hours 
the enforcement directorate of the indian government has raided the offices of news click and has said that they are money laundering front and so on this is press intimidation and i am actually on a crusade to get reporters around the world to condemn this action and stand with news click because you know there's one thing for a protest to happen you know you guys know that these things happen if nobody reports a protest it doesn't become a social story the reporter is as important as the protest and here the government has gone after the reporters because they failed to stop the protest these farmers 140 plus farmers have died of the cold because it's bitterly cold in delhi it's bitterly cold 140 have died they are not going to stop the agitation government won't concede farmers won't concede when you have two equal forces colliding it is a very combustible situation and that essentially is what's happening with this farmers revolt we're going to have to continue this i have to do some housekeeping cuz we're running behind schedule i want to thank rodrigo for booking you dr prashad rodrigo say hello to professor prashad hello professor do you have a I, I we have uh, professor ben burgess is here so we're eating into his time but uh do you know professor prashad professor burgess because the oh, two I do not know. The professor two. burgess is a real professor i am not a professor uh i'm merely a journalist who has a doctorate so nice to see you professor burgess and it was quite funny to continually be called dr prashad because i somehow feel that that must be somebody related to me okay <laughs> Well, if you don't want to be called, if you don't want to be called Professor Prashad, I'll take, I'll take it. Uh, Rodrigo, thank you for booking. Uh, Vijay, Vijay, I have trouble calling people by their first names. It's a Vijay. Whole... Do you want to pitch your your upcoming work on anti-fascist struggles that you and your comrades at Tricontinental are working on right now? Well, we're working on a lot of things, um, but uh, I would like to say that I want people to visit our website at thetricontinental.org. I admit it's a mouthful, but it's quite easy. Thetricontinental.org. Um, we've just released a terrific dossier on Marxism and national liberation. I'd like you to look at it. But the dos the newsletter from this week is on the three apartheids of our times on money. medicine and food and i would really appreciate if you read it and you know share it and hold conversations with friends and neighbors about this because this issue of medicine money and food is so crucial for our times yes thank um, you Vijay, sorry briefly how can we support uh, the journalists at newsclick right so um Well, you mentioned Twitter already. I would really like it if people went on Twitter and just said I, we stand with NewsClick and and tag at Narendra Modi, the <laughs> Prime Minister of India. Say, dear Narendra Modi, I stand with NewsClick. Great. And Thank he you. stands on NewsClick, I believe. And everybody's sitting download- on it. <laughs> All right. We have everybody to. Everybody should download the episode of Guerrilla History that we did with VJ. Just go to your podcast player, look up Guerrilla History, G U E R R two R's I L L A History. Great. And just scroll down and download that episode. Great. Thank you, Henry. VJ, please come back when you're when. Enjoy, are you going to Chile? Yes, I'll be in Chile for about a month. Uh, um, very qui- very quiet times. Election. Very quiet in Chile right now. Very well, it's upcoming <laughs> president's election as well, and I'm meeting the right. presidential candidate of the left. So I'd like to come back and talk about that. I would. Lo- I would be 
Yeah. Oh my God, that would be. Thank you, thank you, Grace. Great job. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, VJ. Let us now go to Michigan. I don't know where you Michigan. are. We only have thirteen minutes. I apologize. Um, okay. But, uh, Professor Ben Burgess joins us. He is a columnist for Jacobin, also had a piece in The Nation this week, and he is host of Give Them an Argument. And I wanted to pick a fight with you. I wanted to get better at arguing. You have a piece coming out in Jacobin today or tomorrow where you're saying to get rid of the filibuster. Now, why would you who can... I've watched you on YouTube talk for six hours straight without interruption. Why would you, of all people, see what I'm doing? I'm starting with an ad hominem. I like it. You, of all people, would be against the filibuster. The hypocrisy. You're a hypocrite. Well. Yes, I'm name calling. I I like it now. (laughs) You want to get rid of the Senate filibuster. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I mean, ideally, I'd like to get rid of the Senate, but failing that, I'd like to get rid of the filibuster. Um, but doesn't know, that, say, where's your sense of your obligation to Madisonian principles, the, the fear of the mob? Um, <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's AWOL. Uh, I don't like Madisonian principles. Like Madisonian principles are bad. I, I like... Uh, Having uh, having criticized him last time I was on your show, I'll I'll praise uh, the uh, constitutional scholar Eli Mistel, who uh, had a uh, article about this where he said that uh, abolishing the Senate should have been part of the uh, conditions for surrender at Appomattox, uh, which uh, you know, which 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 seems you know I think is frankly right, you know that it's a uh, it's a counter majoritarian uh, institution uh, by design. Um, you know that the uh, the slaveholders and aristocrats and bankers, you know, who uh, who framed the Constitution, uh, you know, like wanted it uh, to be uh, a place that would you know would cool the passions of uh, of the immediately elected representatives of the common people, so they wouldn't do anything crazy like take away their property. I, I thought, and you t- you touch on this in Jacobin that oh. the Senate is the the saucer with the biscotti on the side. So if it's too hot, it, it spills into the the saucer and the biscotti absorbs some of the tea. And isn't that what George Washington said? Don't we need somebody to yeah, cool yeah. off? I mean, Washington may or may not have actually said that, but the, uh, the analogy has been around for a long time that, you know, the Senate is uh, the cooling saucer, which I guess is something that people used to do when they make tea that they, uh, they would pour from the cup that they brewed it in into this bigger saucer to, so it would cool off a little bit faster. And uh, What do and, you have against tea? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm just a coffee guy. Uh, but in all seriousness, isn't the filibuster... Yeah, yeah. so, 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 what's so the history of the filibuster? When was it... It's not yeah, in the yeah, Constitution, so, is yeah. it? So uh, it's not in the Constitution. And in fact, I don't... I wouldn't uh, lay too much stress on this argument because I think that, honestly, I think as you you kind of maybe jokingly said, but correctly said earlier, the the spirit of having a filibuster is like very Madisonian. You know, this this uh, you know having the Senate in the first place was supposed to be 
kind of a cool, you know, this this cooling saucer, as you say, for uh, the you know passions of uh, of the immediately elected representatives of the people for the first you know hundred years and few decades. Uh, it was the Senate wasn't even elected. Uh, senators were appointed by uh, by state legislatures, um, and so uh, the and the filibuster is almost like a secondary cooling you know cooling saucer in case the first one doesn't cool it enough. Uh, but just as a matter of historical trivia, Madison was actually very explicit about thinking that the Senate should have a simple majority rule. And um, for the first few decades of the Senate, there was a uh, there was this previous question motion rule that allowed them to end debate if uh, one side seemed to be spilling over from trying to persuade people to just try to obstruct it and delay the vote. Uh, and then in 1806, they changed the rules for unrelated reasons. They just did a big overhaul of the rules. And so this kind of accidentally created the loophole that the filibuster came to live in. Uh, but nobody took advantage of the loophole that it was now technically possible to just keep talking and delay bills until the 1830s. And uh, the the guy who was really the big innovator of the filibuster was Calhoun, uh, who was the one uh, who was a super adamant uh, defender of slavery who was really worried that the anti-slavery movement was starting to impact, uh, you know, public opinion and politicians and that the tides of history were running the other direction. Uh, He was a big advocate of nullification, the idea that states could just decide which federal laws they didn't want to follow uh, to, um, and, uh, and yeah, Calhoun is a piece of work like Andrew Jackson, uh, who I wouldn't normally praise, said that uh, Calhoun should be hung, you know, for like the right reasons. Uh, and uh, in and uh, Richard Hofstetter, the historian, called Calhoun the Marx of the master class, uh, you know, as as like the sort of social theorist of. of the it's interesting because Calhoun was Andrew Jackson's vice president. It seems people so, want to hang vice presidents. I don't understand yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So. Uh, so yeah, and uh, it was so. This was the purpose for which it was originally uh, it was originally used, and it was it was used later, uh, like in the twentieth century. Uh, it was used extensively for decades to stop any legislation that Southern uh, senators thought even vaguely smelled like civil rights. Uh, and it's actually pretty remarkable that even like at the end of the nineteen thirties, Gallup was already doing polls. And the Gallup polls were showing widespread you know, majority support for things like abolishing the poll tax, things like a federal anti-lynching law. Uh, and those things all had majority support in Congress, and they would have majority support in the Senate, but they were all filibustered uh, as a matter of course. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's true, right? Because I can see somebody hearing all of this and thinking, okay, Ben, but just because terrible people came up with something – that's not in itself a reason to think it's a bad idea. That's that's a, a logical fallacy. It's the genetic fallacy. It's the what um, fallacy? A genetic fallacy, thinking that because an idea comes from awful people, that you know that therefore that's enough to say say that it's it's wrong. Uh, but I think that something a little bit different is going on here. What I think, how I think we should think about this, is that this is a. Um, that it's not a coincidence that these are the causes that it's been most used for. And of course you can find instances of good progressive people 
doing filibusters for good progressive reasons. But it's not a coincidence that this was the favorite tool of antebellum slaveholders and Jim Crow era uh, Dixiecrats, that, that these were the people who were using it, because ultimately this is a tool that's best suited to foil democracy. To, if you're defending a cause that you know that most of the population uh, is not going to be convinced is in their interests, uh, which was certainly the case with slavery, uh, that you know that, that slavery was uh, was you know the movement to abolish slavery was a, a mass democratic movement. Like Matt Carp always likes to quote that line from uh, from William Seward, you know, who's probably the most important Republican uh, before Lincoln, where he said, you know, he's uh, using this like almost proto Occupy Wall Street language to talk about the threat posed by what he called the slave power to the right to uh, to everybody, not just you know not just slaves. And, you know, where Seward said that, you know, this is not even one one hundredth of the American population, you know, owns slaves, but everybody else is expected to bend their will and make laws that are, that are in their interests. I think you say very similar things about the uh, the defense of, of Jim Crow uh, in the uh, in the South in the 20th century. And so I think that it's telling that these are the causes that it ended up being used the most for. And I and I think. Uh, so I made two arguments in the piece about why why it should be abolished. One uh, is about you know well three really because one is just about our democratic principle, right? We shouldn't you know we, we should if the majority wants something, you know you you shouldn't have this institution to allow minorities to just permanently obstruct. Uh, which by the way is 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 also what I thought back in the Bush years when the partisan valence of this was the other way around. And, but then the two pragmatic arguments are first of all that that us right you know people uh, you know on the left should obviously you know want to get rid of this because uh, the same way that it was used by those other minoritarian causes it would a hundred percent for sure be used if we we're ever in a future situation where there were like Berniecrats who are a majority in the Senate and were in a position to to try to get through uh, any of what we want. Uh, but also that even from the perspective of centrist Democrats who might be reluctant to get rid of it, because, look, they'll, they know that it's not in the interests of the donor class to, uh, to, to, get, to get rid of this. They know that it would be useful in the long term, you know, when they're trying to stop the things that we want, you know, to have this around. But I think that even there, though, there is a, there is a really immediate argument because in the next two years, if the filibuster is still in place, I think it's going to be very hard for the Democrats not to get wiped out in the 2022 midterms. Right. Because it's almost like a law of nature that uh, after you win a presidential, you know, you take the presidency. Two years later, you have a loss in the midterm. The only recent exception, recent the last couple of decades, I think, is 2002 when you know when when Bush, George W. Bush's Republicans were still riding that wave. Well, they got lucky with 9/11. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, well, you so know, we have to wrap it up and we should continue this next week, Dr. Yeah, Phillip. well, I was, I was here to say, assuming that nothing like this happens, I think that it has to be, I think the only way that this, uh, that the Democrats could avoid having this happen to them in 2022 is if they're really doing concrete things that make people's lives better in the next two years 
And it's not some sort of convoluted, well, technically, if you look at the details of this, we did help you out. Right. But it's some clear, unambiguous, look how much better things are now because of what we did. And it's going to be very hard to do that with, you know, with the filibuster in place. Um, there's there's reconciliation, you know, which, which you could use as a workaround for a lot of things. But basically, read the article when it comes out. Read the article, and, and we'll talk about it next week. It's interesting you bring up reconciliation, because we always fear that the Republicans are going to control the Senate, and without a filibuster to stop them, the Democrats will be powerless. However, the only thing the Republicans want is to lower taxes, and that's filibuster-proof. That's done through reconciliation. The, the Bush tax cuts were reconciliation. The, the Trump tax cuts were reconciliation. Most of what Reagan accomplished with the budget, with the taxes, was through reconciliation. So the fili- there was nothing, the filibuster offered nothing to the Democrats to stop those tax cuts. The Republicans don't stand for anything else, really. So no, I, no. I mean, I, I think that I think that is always the bottom line. You know, they'll they'll throw social conservatives, uh, you know, judicial appointments. Uh, but uh, but that but I think that what makes them get out of bed in the morning is tax cuts and deregulation, and, which is has nothing to do with Phil. But we, Dr. Philip Hershberg, you have a you have a. I, I have, have a, a comment. Yes. Even though I'm not a a, a, a great political like you guys are. I'm not. Uh, okay. Did either of you guys see Mr. Smith goes to Washington? I did. I, I, I that's 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 how how the piece starts out yes, by it, talking about Mr. Smith goes to right. Washington. Okay, that so so Mr. Smith, Jimmy Stewart is the lone cowboy with the filibuster. He's the American hero, and I think that fantasy is one of the things that makes it hard to get rid of the filibuster. The filibuster. Yeah, I, yeah. But my other comment is something I heard from an epidemiologist this week. And yeah. I think he was obviously talking about COVID. And he said to try to change somebody's mind through logic yeah. who did not get to their position through logic Yeah is a waste of time. Wow. That's yeah. interesting. That's no, I mean, look, to yeah. keep in mind. Okay, fair enough. Look, I think and this uh, is this is the man this to the man who wrote give them an argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, but it's so I mean, on the first thing, I I do think that it, it might help diffuse the uh, Mr. Smith fantasy a little bit uh to find out that uh now like you don't even have to do the old-fashioned talking filibuster literally uh, the uh, Senate leaders just send out emails. They call them hotline emails uh, for uh, for bills and nominations uh, to see if anybody you know wants to place a hold, which is what a filibuster is now. Uh, and you you can have like a junior staffer then call into the cloakroom in response to the email to say, uh, yeah, my you know Senator X wants to wants to put a hold on this. So that that definitely makes it seem a lot less like the uh, the lone cowboy fantasy. Uh, I, I, look, I, I think that what you say, you know, about persuasion is is right. I mean, I've I've always like I think that getting the arguments right is a, is is important to me because I think that should be a tool in our toolbox. But 
there are definitely limits to this and you and you do need to pick your battles if uh if you like people will tell me things like oh my you know uncle is convinced as a, like a convinced QAnon believer now and you know he thinks all of this crazy bullshit you know what what, what should i tell him and, and i'll say probably nothing right like 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 i don't think you're going to be able to convince him at best maybe you could tell you know you could try to be a supportive presence who in case he's ready to uh, to come around you know will will not immediately dismiss you but uh, but no I mean like I, I think uh, I think getting the arguments right is an important is an important tool but it's it's not going to work for everything. Fantastic, Professor Ben Burgess. I'm sorry we we, we got a little screwed up. Well, I hope you'll come back next week. You are the author of Give Them an Argument host of Give Them an Argument. You teach at Perimeter College and you are a columnist for Jacobin. I'm telling you that sometimes you forget. Okay. So okay. I, I, uh, David Feldman is a, uh, is a comedian. Uh, he has written for uh, John Stewart, <laughs> my... Brian, that's all the comic dog, uh, Bill Maher. Uh, he's the, uh, he's the host of the David Feldman show. Really? Yes, that's right. Yep. I have to tune in. Thank you uh, so much. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld. We will be back with them in a second. I'm going to grab a cup of coffee. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty. From way back, that's mutiny. Yeah, what the hell? It's time right now for the David Feldman show. To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. I love this theme song. Mike Steinell. Mike Steinell wrote it, sings it, and plays the, the trumpet solo. I feel like he might even have recorded all the other instruments. Like he might just do it alone. I'm not sure. Okay. Hey, thanks, Joe. I will sign up for one of those office hours Saturday morning. Did you have a swim today? I did. I was in for just I did I did sixty strokes of breaststroke. That was it. It was it was wicked cold, but it was it's beautiful. It's time right now. It was very sunny. The, day the water was pretty still. Loki walked up on the frozen dune. It was really beautiful. And what you get now on the beach is you get. Um, you get sand and then snow on top of the sand and then like the beach grass covered in snow it's really it's beautiful welcome back to the David Feldman show we are welcome. joined by Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and his son Ethan Hershenfeld I hear a dog barking in the yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna that's alright no that's okay David, we, we were talking mutiny in your absence. Unity? 
Mutiny, mutiny. Oh. We were talking about just taking over and kicking you off the show, just so you know, full disclosure. Well, isn't that human nature? Isn't that, is it, would it be conceivable I, 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 if this show were on a network Yeah, and there were money involved? There's no money? Well, I'm making a fortune, but the rest of you... People okay. would be at each other's throats. There would be no way to do this show without everybody hating one another, right? Huh. It, it, have you ever seen Ethan? Wait, what? What? Wait, who hates who? I, I <laughs> no, no, I'm saying if this were a, a a television show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a staff, and everybody here was <laughs> making money. Yeah, people would start hating one another, right? There's no question. I, well, I, I don't know. I've I've never been able to hold a job. You know, one of the first times I was ever in an office. This was weird. It was summer after uh, freshman year in college. I had an internship at CNN Business News, and guess who my boss was? Lou Dobbs, Harvard man. Lou Dobbs, <laughs> Harvard Lou Dobbs man. is the he was he was grotesque even then. He was one of those bosses who. He would come in, yell, and then when he left, everyone would talk about what a dick he was. So, anyway, D didn't he? Isn't he a Harvard graduate? I'm afraid uh, he might be. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Let's not. How does that happen subject. to a person where you have to believe that if he is hypereducated, and how do you go that way? That's mental think, illness, right? Well, yeah. There's, the only like way Lou Dobbs can do that is if he's mentally ill. Can, by the way, um, can I just uh, say someone in the in the in the chat asked how I wonder how Ethan got that job. Yes, I slept with Lou Dobbs. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're getting at, and fine, I'm, I'll come clean. Uh, he did not come clean, by the way. Uh, <laughs> another thing about him. So, um, yes, Lou Dobbs. Um, yeah, gross. That was gross. Um, it's the extreme end of the bell curve of entitlement, white privilege, uh, ego, and and a lack of, I think, just a lack of empathy for anybody. I'm, um, I, I, I'm not saying this because your dad is here. I'm saying this. Oh, yeah. I would say this even if he weren't here. The only explanation is mental illness. Tucker Carlson. Did you hear what he, he said? And he's, you know, up until recently, he was a, a, thank you. He was, you know, really popular over at Fox News. He claims George Floyd died of a drug overdose. Remember George Floyd, yeah. Officer Chauvin, wow. pinned him, held him down. Did he really say that? This is what, I, what, what's that? the, uh, you have a, 30 seconds, I'll read you the quote. I, it's, got, it's, uh, I, got, I got six months till the vaccine, 30 seconds. What are you talking about? Uh, he says, for an answer, think back to last spring, beginning of Memorial Day. BLM, do I sound at all like him? BLM and their sponsors yeah, in corporate America completely changed this country. They changed this country more in five months than it changed in the previous 50 years. How did they do that? They used the sad death of a man called George Floyd to upend our society. Months later, they learned that the story they told us about George Floyd's death Death was an utter lie. This is this is what Tucker Carlson said. That 
Months later, they learned that the story they told us about George Floyd's death was an utter lie. There was no physical evidence that George Floyd was murdered by a cop. Except for the video of the <laughs> entire murder. What? Anyway, look, the guy, yeah, he's, that's mental illness for sure. But that guy, about, I think. How about it's just severe self-servingness? Right. Well, there's that, because I was going to say these two guys, well, now Dobbs lost his gig, but they're some of the highest paid people uh, in television. They, they well, I hope he's getting a lot of money to say that. Well, because you know, he has he has he, three, I, he has a few kids to raise on Park Avenue. It's not cheap. So, you know, he's got to say what he's got to say. He's looking out for his kids. Millions of people last night heard Tucker Carlson say, quote, the autopsy showed that George Floyd almost certainly died of a drug overdose. And he made that up. And there are no consequences. Well, I mean, what do you do about this? I'll ask Ethan, what do you do about a corporation that spreads what are incontrovertible lies? Like Philip Morris Corporation. Well, one, one thing yeah. you could do is, uh, yeah, you could just stop smoking or stop watching Fox. I mean, that's the, the most basic way to vote with your with your dollars and your, your eyeballs. Um, I don't know what to do. David, if I knew what to do, would I be sitting here? Look at me. Well, I don't know what, I don't know how to do anything. I can, I can make a fire in a fireplace. That's about the only, I can't change a tire. I can't, I mean, have you ever tried to floss? It's like toothpicks. Like toothpicks. Oh, I, I've always wanted to ask you. Yeah, well, go ahead, go ahead. Toothpicks, you, it's one hand. You can do something else. You can text. You can change channels. You can do something. Flossing is a, a disaster. I don't even know. How, how do people do this? It's, uh-huh. it's insane. It's, a, it's, it's aerobic. It's anaerobic. It's triceps. It's biceps. It hurts. It's not easy. I don't know how to do anything. You're asking about how to take down Fox. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about flossing versus water picks. Yeah. You, you came to the right place because all of our cousins... <laughs> All of our cousins are in the gum and tooth business. Uh-huh. There are so many. Like you could come to our family and have a different dentist for each of your teeth. <laughs> like that's how many there are. What is yeah? Um, so what yes. what what is your position on flossing versus water picks? I think I think that you, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to floss. Let me explain why. Because a lot of what you're doing, it's not just removing stuff and bacteria and food particles. It's the actual uh, massaging of the gums to increase blood flow to those tissues to keep them young and healthy. So, like, you're, uh, you're, so you prefer, in terms of an activity, what do you prefer? Flossing? Oh, an activity, you know, I, I prefer just eating a box of Oreos. <laughs> What if they made edible dental floss? Uh They have that for dogs, those little things called chewies. They're Mm -hmm. little uh, dental sticks, which there's no way that's a scam. But what are the the dogs? They don't know. They don't know. Life is wasted on dogs, right? What's Well, I don't know. Is it? I mean, they don't know how good they have it. Oh, right. Yeah. They're happy. So, Dr. Hershenfeld, are you optimistic you seem to have a lighter you seem lighter in your step 
with Biden as president. Then who? But then, then you were in the lead up to. Uh, do you think the people? This is an uncomfortable question. But do you think? Can I before you ask that? That uncomfortable question. I just wanted to point out part of the lightness is you're looking at this guy has been vaccinated. That's like looking at a superhero. Absolutely. Yes, that's like a superhero. That's like when you when you meet like Aquaman and you're all <laughs> at the beach and there's Aquaman and he can he can do it. You know, he can talk to the fish and swim underwater for hours. This guy's been vaccinated. How so many times? That's a very important point because yeah, four really- four times. He's, that's, he's a real hog. He's a vaccine hog. He's addicted to the stuff. He's the first guy. He's a, he's had the, the the AstraZeneca. He's had the Moderna. He's had the Pfizer. He's going for the Sputnik. I mean, this guy, he is, it's unbelievable. Just let someone else have a vaccine. I mainline them. So it does relieve a burden. It absolutely does. And you're not even aware of it. But that was a very good point by my junior colleague here. <laughs> Absolutely. However. How many have you had, two or one? Two, I've had my second one. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Kryptonite, kryptonite. Yeah, yeah. Which Are you wearing a mask? But you, but you still wear a mask. Absolutely, no, I still wear two masks, which right. I would urge everyone to do. Right. All the time. Because the latest studies show that the vaccine give 95% protection, which isn't 100, and two masks give 95% protection. Hold on, on. get the bell ready. That's 190% protection. 190% protection. Yes. I I was testing to see if the the bell worked. Oh, okay. So you were going to, I interrupted you. You were going to say. So, yeah, I'm a little bit more optimistic because of Biden, because I I and many other people got or are going to get the vaccine. But then you read a, a piece like was in the Times today about prophecy. Did you see that? No. It was, well, I read it online. Maybe it's coming out tomorrow. It maybe you, hard. maybe it actually isn't even online yet. And you just saw into the future <laughs> that, that article. I prophesied this article. There are prophets popping up all over this country with huge followings and they prophesize stuff. And sometimes it's right. And they say, oh, look at me. And when it's wrong, they say, whoops. And it doesn't bother any of their followers. It's the the same thing. That's how Wall Street is built. You know, you look at a guy like James Kramer on CNBC, buy this stock, sell this stock. Nobody ever says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Last week you told me to. No, but the whole the whole economy is built on false profits. Well, I mean, and that really worries me. The, the, The primitivization of thought. People don't think critically. And they'll, any huckster comes along. Because there's no accountability. There's accountability in several, in your profession, there's accountability. Uh, But there's no accountability in law. There's no accountability on Wall Street. Nobody has ever asked, hey, you you failed. 
why did you fail? Why didn't you do? They, they yeah. always have an excuse for why they failed. All well, of Wall you, Street is, there, there was a, there was a, I saved it. I wish I could find it. There was an interview with the, this woman who is the head of Merrill Lynch Financial. And she gave this interview, I don't know, in the Wall Street Journal last week saying, cyclical stocks will go up. Everybody should buy, you know, Boeing, but don't buy my, and I'm thinking, this is a woman who makes at least seven figures a year she has a corner office and a title and she's respected and she's completely completely full of human excrement there is no way that anybody can say in the next 12 months i believe oil stocks are a good opportunity and the economy will grow at three percent the whole it's all a lie. They cannot predict the future. Well, all I will say is in defense of some people who practice as financial advisors who aren't making profits on the fees for the individual trades, those people do have accountability to their clients. No, they don't. No, no. Absolutely, they do. Many of them, they will lose their clients if they don't perform well. Of course they will. No. Yes. No. Wait, get the bell ready. <laughs> uh, how did Larry Summers do running the no, Harvard and them? And I'm not talking about these big names you hear of. I'm talking about people with a with a mom and pop size practice where they have 12, 15, 20 clients. They get it all day from their clients. If it's not working, they, they vote with their feet. They're out of there. I guarantee you they don't because it's so complicated <clears throat> and they circle the wagons. The financial sector circles the wagons and they explain why, in fact, you're doing well. Well, I'm they, just they, they have it down to a science where well, they go, wait, 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 stick with me, wait another six months, it's going to turn around. And the other uh, arrow in their quiver is, I didn't say that. You, that's what you wanted. Well, what you're talking, you're describing an unethical approach, and certainly there are tons of people doing that. But let me give you another, from another, another realm. Uh, my father, this guy, he had a knee problem and he went to a knee surgeon who said, do not get knee surgery. This was a knee surgeon who was saying, do not get knee surgery. And let me explain to you why. Now, there are people in various fields who behave that way. They're not in in it to make the fee and do the thing at the expense of the patient or the client. They're doing it because they actually want the best outcome for the person. And there are financial advisors who behave that way similarly. Maybe they he will, wasn't really a knee surgeon. Maybe he was a financial advisor. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I'm not a lawyer, but I I want to offer my services before you go to a lawyer. I will charge $50 an hour to tell you, let it go. Let That's it go. Pre-law. That's a pre-lawyer. You have to do is study pre-law. <laughs> <laughs> Let me save you a lot of money because I like that. You're going to hire a lawyer. Yeah. And after they go through the retainer, they're going to say, you know, there's really I mean, I can get you justice, yeah. but you'll be broke. You, it's like a nurse practitioner, uh, uh-huh. the, the doctor. By the way, a great book. I don't know if you've read it. Nurse Practitioner Zhivago. <laughs> <laughs> the movie was like half the length. 
That's what I was going to say. It's a lot shorter, a lot more pictures. Right. It's just, it's fun. And you get the same thing out of it. That's the nice thing. It was written by Boris Past, <laughs> I believe. Yeah. yeah. Also, you, um, you mentioned retainers. Um, yes. We, have all, we also have a good orthodontist in the family if you need. Okay, sorry. There we go. Dr. Hershenfeld, dentists <laughs> have a high suicide rate. That's what they tell me. Yes. That's not fair. Dentists deserve more respect, don't they? That's not the issue. <laughs> why? It's not why people kill themselves. Sorry. No, I think he was saying they deserve more respect because they kill themselves. <laughs> that's, that's what he was saying. <laughs> yeah. That, you, you just earned my respect. Yeah. Well, is there... Listen, ophthalmologists have a very high suicide rate also. And I don't know why dentists do, because I've never looked into it, but I would guess it has something to do with the underlying personality of who goes into dentistry. Not, not all of them, but whatever it is. With ophthalmologists, I have a suspicion no proof whatsoever, but a certain percentage of people who are really interested in eyes, in, in seeing, not all, certain percentage, are people who are paranoid. Hmm. If, you, if you look at the drawings of paranoid people, the eyes are extremely prominent. Hmm. So maybe, this is just a guess, but maybe a certain percentage of the ophthalmologists who kill themselves are in fact people with paranoid characters and therefore are more subject to uh, certain kinds of behavior. And they, uh, you know, you're... Constantly I'm not asking. saying that's for sure, but, I, but I'm saying that's the kind of thing that I would be thinking about when somebody says, well, so many dentists kill themselves. It's not because of the lack of respect. It's not because of the, the, their, their hands are in somebody's mouth all day. You know, there's a lot. There's also a lot of dentist on dentist crime. <laughs> a lot of interdental violence. Uh, so that's something that needs to be explored. I would okay. think an ophthalmologist, I, I think you spend your whole life asking better now. How about now? How about now? Better now? Better well, that's an optometrist. Uh, what's an ophthalmologist? You, you operate on eyes? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're an MD. Optometrists are not MDs. They work specifically with visual correction, glasses, lenses, things like that. They can really operate on eyes, right? All the time. I used a Jewish laser from outer space. Yeah, me too. I've invested in that. Yeah, yeah they're great. Dialed laser. Absolutely. <laughs> we can just pick off people <laughs> at will. But I got my LASIK eye surgery done by a Rothschild <laughs> laser. The, uh, the Marjorie, what is it? Marjorie Green, the congresswoman? Yeah, yeah. She's a friend of ours. She's a secret friend of ours. Who, who doesn't love her? She loves everybody. She had a polyamorous affair yeah. with a tantric sex guru from her gym. 
and a goat and a goat. Yes. And um, you know, I, I've I've never had tantric sex, but I have had tantrum sex. <laughs> Which is <laughs> anyway. Go ahead. We can figure it out. Don't go. Does, does it surprise you that somebody who believes in QAnon does she? Do you think she really believes this stuff, or she's an opportunist? Do people? It's hard to know, but but this is just what I was talking about a little while ago. After I read that article about prophecy, right. I, I got very discouraged about the state of our civilization. Do you believe these stories? There are these stories that are appearing in the New York Times, and I think it's not true, where people who storm the Capitol are making statements. I was lied to. Donald Trump misled me. And then there are these stories about people who didn't storm the Capitol, but were QAnon devotees who, when they saw Biden inaugurated, threw up their hands and said, I've been lied to. I was told that that this would never happen. Now I, I, I've turned my back on QAnon. I don't believe those people either exist or are telling the truth. I believe that there's a small percentage of them. Just like with the prophecy story, a lot of people who believed in these prophets, when the prophecies didn't come true, especially about Trump, a lot of them lost their faith. But I think most of them did not. And most of them come up with some rationalization like, well, it didn't come true now, but it's going to come true. We don't know when, but, you know, maybe he'll be reincarnated and then he'll be the president or or who the hell knows. They've done stuff. Go ahead, Ethan. Oh, I was just going to say a lot of the people who believe in QAnon are actually on Q alludes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so that's not something that's discussed the drug component sorry go ahead the uh there was i think the pew research people did a, a study and they find that republicans hate the democrats whereas the democrats don't approve of the Republicans. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't have needed a study for that, but that that kind of nails it. It's kind yeah. of interesting when you meet a Republican because I, you know, I hate the Republicans. I hate Trump. It's a visceral reaction. And when I meet a Republican, I think I hate this guy. And then you start talking and you go, but this guy wants to kill me. This person, re- this guy really hates me. There's just this blind. And I can't help but wonder if there's been some kind of, uh, not a conspiracy, but they they know what they're doing. The people who control the Republican Party, that they, they're in bed with somebody like Bernays, that they, they have figured out how to, that while the while the people who vote for Trump are desperately in need of psychiatric help, they won't no, get. They're, des- they're desperately in need for assistance, recognition, things that, that that they're owed. And he has promised them these things and they have fallen for it. That, that That's and. 
I think Trump's the kind of guy who just instinctively figures this out. He didn't need a publicity agent to do it. And and, and it becomes sort of a co that's co-created between the customers and and the purveyor. Right. Right. And the Republican Party is just going to get worse and worse, more and more. semi-reasonable people are going to leave it. And in two years, we're going to be left with the Ernst Rome's of the world. It's just going to be. And and it's not going to weaken them. That's what I'm worried about. And we cannot predict the future. That's also true. Right. I've stopped reading op-ed pieces to tell me what's going to happen down the road. Right. Because nobody knows. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins Hello, us. Hello, Barry. Hello there. Reverend. How you doing? Can I, tell, can I tell the Reverend a quick story? Before yes, please. I sign off. So we were talking about psychoanalysis last week. Right. And the seminary. Yeah. That you attended or almost attended i did attend you did attend okay so my most influential teacher in psychoanalysis was a descendant of i think like 12 or more generations of rabbis who he could trace Mm. back to toledo spain before the expulsion and he was born in the bronx which is the seat of all intellectual ferment these days in the 1930s. Sure. And he starts reading Freud as a teenager, gets completely captivated by it. And he goes to his grandfather, who was like the 13th or 14th in this row of rabbis and says, Grandpa, I'm really sorry to have to tell you, but I'm not going to be a rabbi. And his grandfather says, well, what is it you want to be? And he says, a psychoanalyst. And his grandfather says, same thing. <laughs> I think that's true. It could, you know, let me talk about prophecy for a second. Please. Um, one of the most well-known contemporary uh, so-called prophets was Gene Dixon. You remember Gene sure. Dixon? Absolutely. Sure. Well, Jean Dixon used to live very close. She lived in Washington, D.C., and she lived right around the corner from where I used to work. So one day, she's walking down the street. I'm coming back from lunch. She almost runs into me. I am not going to believe any prophecies by somebody who doesn't even know where the hell she's walking. Right. (laughs) Because that's not... But you're right about prophecy. The, the famous prophecy issues, the Millerites. These are people who had set the specific time for the end of the world. They went to a mountain in New York State. The world didn't end. And most accounts are that they got more members when it failed. And then, of course, they predicted it again. It didn't happen. Right. And then they started to lose members. And you know where most of these cults in this country originated? New York State. Yeah. The Mormons started there. All sorts of different. I think it had something to do with fires. Wasn't there? There there were there were horrible fires in upstate New York. 
I have no idea. Maybe, maybe it was a water. I think it, a, it was a climate change issue. It might have also had to do with the borscht belt. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Bye. Philip Hershenfeld. See ya. Thank you, Sorry. Ethan. Are, Ethan, are Thank you going to be at office hours? I will. I'm going to. And uh, Dr. Barry Lynn. I'm going to take a, take a slot. <laughs> oh, but let me say one other thing, and then I'll go. So the Reverend and I did that successful fundraiser for those candidates for um, movement.vote, uh, the Movement Voter Project, MVP. And that's the answer to any of these anxieties people are talking about, what's going to happen in 2022 with, the, with Congress. The answer is to support grassroots organizations to, to, to keep winning, not to just assume that we're going to lose Congress. We might, but MVP, that's the way to go. Movement.vote. Absolutely. Yeah. Or is it still... It's or the one the, political action committee that does the right thing. They collect money and directly give it to grassroots organizations. I, there are so damn many PACs. They were supposed to clean up politics. I don't think they've done that in general. Yeah. And, uh, and now I get a lot of PAC requests to expel Congresswoman Green and her closely allied nitwit Lauren Boebert from Colorado. I don't want to see them expelled. It, I'm kind of agnostic about that vote the other week when they decided that Congresswoman Green couldn't sit on the budget committee, but I don't want them to do anything to get rid of them. I want them to be what they are, the face and to the extent that it's possible, the soul of the Republican Party. Because that's exactly what they are. But what I don't if, want to leave. What if, leave. <clears throat> what if they become who they are? What if the Republican Party, I just said, if everybody who is semi-reasonable, yeah. the sassies or the sasses, leave, the gastroenterologist, uh, Cassidy, well, he, he just won. He's got six years. But you start losing the, the reasonable Republicans, and you're left with... The QAnons. What happens? Well, you know that I don't see that as our problem. I well, see but, our problem. But they have a is, they have militia. They 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 are an armed party. Yes. We have a party that is armed. Yes, but we do with the reasonable people. You don't think that Ben Sass or Adam Kitzinger or any of these people that are now being treated like they literally deserve their own chapter in volume two of Profiles and Courage. These people are just as bad fundamentally as the QAnon people, including on guns. They love guns. So they're There's becoming really who they are, but now they have an army. It's but a, they have an army now. Not if There's you... So many, what? Well, hang on for one second. I don't think Senator Cassidy... Uh, Murkowski, I don't think Senator Sue Collins, as horrendous as they are, I don't think they want a militia, a, a party that has its own militia behind it. So if you get rid of the moderates, I agree with you that it's hard to call them moderates, but, you know, I'm in, I look forward to this crack up of the Republican Party. 
I don't think it's going to crack up. I think they're going to get stronger and more powerful. All the senators who voted for the impeachment being constitutional are being reprimanded by their party, yep. the state party delegations. I mean, it's this is the Republicans' Trumpism. It's all intertwined. It's nothing new. And now they have a militia. But, you know, these people, these militias, um, they have been around for 25 years. They're getting a little more vocal. But I, I remember when I was doing that radio show 20 years ago or so with Pat Buchanan, we had on one day the head of the Michigan militia, mm -hmm. which still exists. And so Pat foolishly asked the guy, um, because he was he was general somebody or other, are you a general in the National Guard and the Michigan militia? And the guy goes, no, just in the militia. So I, of course, interject and said, oh, since you answered that way, would you refer to me as Admiral Lynn from now on? Right, right. Well, uh, you can make fun yeah. of them, but they take it very seriously. Well, they do take it seriously, but, but they take it seriously, and they have been taking it seriously, and they've been owning these guns. They, they used to be the Ku Klux Klan. Right. But now that, and, and so they took off their robes, they put on a flannel shirt and a MAGA hat, and they still have the same number of guns. So I'm not worried about them taking over the Republican Party. I'm just worried that we won't be able to beat any Republican Party, because the Republican Party is literally, it is corrupted beyond any possibility of redemption. So when you see that papers a couple days ago, dozens of former officials of the Republican Party are thinking about forming a third party. I mean, I, I guess we should all go, that's great, because then there'll be a third party and they'll drain off votes. But there were but no big names associated with there it. There were no big names. And, you know, it's very difficult to set up a new political party. As those of us on the left who have flirted with that idea know very, very well. It's almost been institutionalized so, that there have to be two parties and it has to be the Democrats and the Republicans. There's, there, I don't know, I, I, I'm worried that the Republican Party has cracked up the same way, I hate to bring them up, the Nazis cracked up in 33. Sure. That they're. I, I want to ask they, you. I, I want to ask you about something that I articulated earlier in the show, and I feel guilty about it. All right. Um, yes. I said that the insurrection was wrong. They they are white nationalists. They were provoked by Donald Trump, and they should be locked up. But, and this is what I feel kind of guilty, it's hard to ask half this country to give a rat's ass about the security of our senators and our congresspeople when they don't give a rat's ass about us. 
that I think back to Newtown and I think back to Parkland and the school shootings. And uh, now they know how it feels to be a middle schooler, a high school student. Am I wrong for saying that? I, I maybe I'm missing the point. I'm sorry. That but. that <clears throat> that it's hard to ask half this country, yeah, to care about the impeachment and the security of the Capitol when the people in that Capitol don't care about half this country. Yeah, I, I I think most people care, and I think one of the things that was so done I'm wrong so for saying am I am I wrong for saying that? I think I think that your conclusion I believe is wrong. Well, remember one of the things that happened uh, in the final day of the of the prosecution is that they talked about all of the people in the Capitol who had nothing to do with governance, not just the staff, but the custodial staff, the cops. And I think one of the most uh, memorable lines, I'm sure that uh, he did it deliberately, one of the managers said, it's so disgusting, African-Americans who predominate in the lowest paying positions over there literally had to clean up the feces of a bunch of white so-called revolutionaries. I think that does resonate with lots of people. Even if you're not African-American, you just go, to have to clean up the crap that a bunch of rioters left on the walls, that's so disgusting. I do care about that. Yeah, I, I think I'm you a, do. You know, uh, I spent a, a, a year ago during the other impeachment, I spent a week walking through the Capitol. I got very patriotic. Mm. And I remember when I first saw the insurrection thinking, that's my Capitol. That's my, that's the people's house. How dare you do that? Mm. But I come from a place of privilege. I think it's a luxury to be offended by what happened. I feel bad for the police officers. And I know, thanks to the police officers, we dodged a the spectacle of Mike Pence getting hanged. But uh, I think it's a big ask to get the American people who are uh, six weeks away from eviction uh, to sympathize with the security of of the House of Representatives in the Senate. Well, the, the same people of privilege, um, of course, are the senators who are not going to vote to convict him. So I think it just transcends it. I, I, th- I think you're f- kind of fundamentally wrong about it. I think that there are lots of people, who, even though people who 
They wait for their a lifetime to come and visit Washington. They respect. They want to go on the White House tours. They want to get a ticket. Those are you know, privileged. Those are privileged people who can afford a ticket to Washington. No, I know. Look, I know people. When when Joanne, who you know, when she was working for the District of Columbia's Health Department during the Obama administration, there were people so poor that. From African Americans from as far away as Alabama and Mississippi who drove or took buses for two days. Now, part of it was they finally have an African American president, but part of it is just the place itself. They never and thought it's they'd free. Come you can here. go into all these places. The Smithsonian free doesn't cost. Seriously, it's amazing. But if yeah, you, it's a great vacation, DC. Right, but people want to come. Not just privileged people, people who, if they have one trip to make during the course of their uh, adulthood, they often want to come to Washington. They want to see Washington. They care about it. They care about the Lincoln Memorial. They, they are reminded of the images that they saw back in the 60s, Martin Luther King's famous speech. They want to see these places. And I don't think they have to be privileged to want that. And I think that there is a fundamental risk that these Republicans are taking that they will so alienate so many people that are marginally Republican that they will not vote for them again. And that and more power to them. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, all these people, these are these are truly despicable human beings and they don't deserve to get those marginal votes and maybe they're going to lose them where are the ideologues in the democratic party because the the republicans are lousy with ideologues who some of whom actually believe their own crap and we don't have any ideologues in the democratic party where are the parliamentarian experts you know, if the Republicans wanted to get rid of the guns, they would figure out a way to get rid of the guns, especially since most Americans want us to get rid of the guns. Yes. So, yeah, the Republicans are the party of guns. Yes. Why can't the Democrats do the right thing, figure out how to get rid of these guns? Well, because I think they've already given up. I think a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was months ago, who's counting. But I talked about why I used to be on the board of something called the National Coalition to ban handguns. It doesn't exist anymore. First, they changed their name. They're so obsessed with the fact that there was a five to four decision about a decade ago called the Heller decision that allowed for the private possession of handguns in the District of Columbia, based on the idea that the Second Amendment guarantees the private right to own handguns. Five to four. When Roe versus Wade came down, the people who didn't like the decision said, we're going to do two things. We're ultimately going to try to repeal it. We're going to reverse it. But in the meantime, we're going to eat away at it, which, of course, they've already done successfully. But the gun control groups, I I literally don't give any money to gun control groups anymore because they're all they want to do is. Raise money. 
Well, I don't want to. I don't want to go that far. But th- there's no plan. They don't say what we're going to do. We we hate assault rifles. We're going to do something about it. But we're also never going to abandon the notion that the Second Amendment does not protect private possession of handguns. And we are going to work to reverse that Heller decision. And finally, finally, now I'm seeing ads on television. Um, People want to expand the Supreme Court. I couldn't get anybody interested in that for a very long time. Now it's become, it will not happen because Manchin is in the Senate and Cinema from Arizona, a Democrat in some name only, is also there. It won't happen. But you got to try. You have to take what I call the moderate view, not the long view or the short view, you have to have a plan and you have to find a way to get to it. And is it ideological? I mean, is Bernie ideological? Most of the time I think he is, but then he screws up other things and I'm not so sure. I don't think you need ideologues, but you do need people with plans and you need charities. I know you don't like charities, but I like charities because those are the people who can develop the plan, raise the money, and put the pressure on these elected officials who otherwise would never do the right thing. Well, never. The charities is a whole other issue. But the frustration that I have with this impeachment trial is the Democrats haven't seized this as an opportunity to talk about gun control. Right. We have a a gun culture that contributed to the the rise of these militia and these insurrectionists. They're allowed to to wander around with weapons. And how you can leave that out of the conversation right now is beyond me. Well, I mean, I, I not think you. I'm talking why. about the, I'm talking about the Democrats. This is an opportunity to say when uh, when the, when BLM says, you know, if we did this, you would have mowed us down. Sure. And it's the responsibility of the Democrats to say that the police didn't fire at these people because they were heavily armed. They didn't want a battle. The the police, at some point, only one weapon was fired. Right. At some point, you know, looters will be shot on sight. Remember that? Sure. Trump said looters will be shot on sight. Is it legal to shoot a looter? I think it is, right? Most places it is. Was the Capitol being looted? Why weren't they shot? The reason they weren't shot is because they were heavily armed. And the reason they're heavily armed is they believe that the Second Amendment gives them the power over a totalitarian government. That that by a heavily they believe that a heavily armed citizenry is is the is is what prevents fascism. That's what they believe. Well, and they do really believe that. I mean, of all, you know, endless debates I've had about gun control for decades. 
when people would call into these call-in shows that I used to do, and they go, uh, we don't, it's not that we want to hunt with a machine gun, but you have to be prepared when the government comes after us. They right. do believe that. They do they believe really that. They really do. That's the well, they thing. And what happened is they came after the government. They came after the government, the people with the guns. I'm sorry? Preemptively, they came after the government. Came, You're the, absolutely and, right. And the government was not going to shoot back because they're white and heavily armed. But we can't yes. have that conversation in Congress? Well, the question, I mean, look, I think we both know why this wasn't brought up by the Democrats during this impeachment. Because they had this view, I thought it was kind of crazy, that somehow they were going to get 17 Republicans to go along with convicting Trump. So they don't want to muddy the water. They don't want to add any But there isn't issues. one, ide- there isn't not a single ideologue in the Democratic Party who's out there talking about the problem of guns in this country. That is correct. And and you can't get these Cretans to go through a metal detector in the House, including Nancy Pelosi, by the way. Yes. She won't go through the metal detector, even though she wants to fine Republicans $5,000. Guns inside our nation's capital? And, And the argument is over a metal detector? Course. I mean, it, it just feels like the House of Representatives and the Senate is is irrelevant. They're, they're completely tone deaf to the needs of about 330 million Americans. I think I think 20 well, million they, Americans. I think there are about 20 million Americans yeah. who have have some skin in the Washington D.C. game. And the rest are worried about rent and their jobs, getting the vaccine, not getting the COVID, and uh, and a $2,000 check. Why are we having a debate about the $15 minimum wage? Why is Bernie, it, 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 it should be $23 right now. Right it's, now. And it's never going to happen. Not wait for five years for it to kick into 15. It ought to be 23. They, we ought to be looking for a 28 or $29 minimum wage. It's, and we, it's not going to make the, the stimulus bill. They're going to strip it from the stimulus bill. Yes, they're going to kick it down the road. And we yeah. will never get the $15 minimum wage. That is right, because the parliamentarian who is... And in my experience, is kind of a a moderate, I mean, a, a non-ideological person, will say you can't put anything about the minimum wage into a bill and use this process of budget reconciliation because it doesn't have anything to do with the budget. And the Democrats don't want to raise the minimum wage to $15 because they're convinced that not all state economies are equal. So it would be unfair to force the people in, you know, uh, Wyoming to pay their waitresses $15 an hour. When $15 an hour in Wyoming is 
equal to, you know, $4 million an hour in New York City. I mean, they have all these excuses. Of course they do. They will never, ever raise the minimum wage. Yeah, I mean, I think if you had a straight up or down vote on something like moving to a $15 minimum wage in three or four years, you would get a majority of real Democrats in the Senate to vote for, and certainly in the House. You would, but you're right that there's no pressure being put. Why Why do we not take seriously the need to do these things? These are not huge things. You know, it it was just an economic study um, earlier this week that said, you know, by a reasonably reliable organization that said there will be people who lose their jobs. You're the congressional, the CBO, the congressional budget. Yeah, the, the congressional budget. <laughs> they're, 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 they're the closest thing to God, as I understand. Well, yeah, and God might have a d- disagreement about that. But, but they said, but look, at, it would raise an enormous number of people out of poverty. It would cause some people to lose their job. But the overall effect, and every study shows, is every it rises, makes the disparity less. It takes people out of poverty. But maybe you're right. Maybe that's not enough for Democrats. But it ought to be enough for Democrats, and they shouldn't worry about it. It is it's shocking. I was in... Um, Australia once, and I was told never tip anybody in Australia because they get so much of a salary, they are insulted if you leave them another dollar bill on after you after you have a soda pop. We ought to have that system here. We shouldn't have a system where tipping is assumed to make up for the fact that we don't have a decent wage for the people who are serving our food. Who can deny that? And Joe Biden met with Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, to get his blessing on the stimulus package. Jamie Dimon was welcomed into the Oval Office along with other business leaders. Um, that, that, that's kind of ugly to me, a Democratic leader, the leader of the Democratic Party, getting permission from the bankers on the stimulus package. I mean, he's, um, I was troubled by that too, but on the other hand, (laughs) to go back to butts, but he's desperate to get 50 votes to pass any stimulus package. He can't be sure of Cinema's vote. He can't be sure of Joe Manchin's but vote. Why was the two point the the, the the CARES Act was something like two point two trillion a year yeah. ago? And I don't see the suffering coming to an end. And then the Democrat, like Larry Summers, writes an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. Yep. says this this stimulus package this Larry Summers Democrat right Democrat the the guru for Obama and Clinton uh, says you, sure. you, you don't want this you don't want to overheat the economy you don't want inflation this is a Democrat well, 
preaching fiscal austerity. Yeah, but he, I don't. I don't think that most people in the Democratic Party care what Larry Summers says about this. I think the it's Biden administration pro- does. Who does? I think the Biden administration would love to have Larry Summers. Well, they would, but the fact that he's not going to do the right thing, that he, he is now preaching this kind of weird voodoo economics, um, they're going to transcend that. You're not going to find, do you think Bernie cares or uh, Dick I think, Urban cares? I think Neera Tandon cares what Jamie Dimon thinks. She gets think her she money does. from him. I think she does. I think she's the one... Uh, you know, I like what Bernie did with near uh, near attendant earlier this week. I mean, they very cleverly held a hearing for her the same day that they started the impeachment trial, and uh, and he was very tough on her. And the insulting way that she tr- she talked about progressives, including him, and I think that's right on. It would not bother me one bit if she did not get confirmed because Bernie and one or two other genuinely more or less progressive people said, I'm not going to vote for her either. But uh, even Lindsey O. Graham. <laughs> Lindsey O. Graham. Lindsey O. Graham has a problem with it. I mean, she's an equal opportunity offender, but you would expect somebody from the Center for American Progress, a Hillary Clinton person, sure. to be on the side of the progressives or even pretend to be on the side of the progressives. Right. She's uh but well, what do you think? Does she get to be OMB, head of OMB? Yeah, I, I think she may not, frankly. I think she may actually lose out. I, th- I think, and I think she should, frankly. But I, there might be enough Democrats who will say, it's just the wrong connection. You've had too many things. You've said too many things. You've she deleted something things. like a, a thousand tweets after she got the nomination. She she deleted them. Yes. She deleted her tweets. Yeah. I, I think it's possible to recover tweets. I'm not sure about that. But I mean, but she shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to cover your behind, that's, of course, what you do. You, you get rid of anything in your background that is going to be scary to people. <laughs> so she doesn't. But I, I think... $38 million is- since 2014. The Center for American Progress gets $38 million from yeah. corporate America. So in yes, the past do. six or seven years, $38 yeah. million from corporate yeah. America went to the Center for American Progress. Where does that money go? Who's getting it? They have an enormous staff. Doing what? Studying. Thinking. It's a think tank, so they're thinking. It's a think tank. Hmm. They even set up a unit uh, to, to, to deal with church and state when toward the end of my tenure at Americans United. Uh, they set up a little unit. And they, you know, some interest, I mean, I liked some of the people in it, but they never were going to go after, among other people, Barack Obama for the terrible things he did to the principle of church-state separation. They were never going to be the people pushing him to support marriage equality. 
They, that's not what they do. You're absolutely right. They're set up in order to make sure that the, the Clinton worldview is there forever. So they form the Center for American Progress. They, they used to publish a magazine. I think they gave that up. And, uh, but they're just um, not my cup of tea. Not my cup of tea. What's, what, so you're optimistic about bot. What do you see that you like? There's talk of a, a child income uh, tax credit, $300 a month. I mean, I, yeah, the, the child tax credit could work, but there are ways that that could probably go terribly wrong also. But, you know, we're, we're what, three and a half weeks into the Biden term. He's, he's doing the right thing not to get involved in the impeachment, just to go and continue to do things. But just the other day, he announces that somehow we have now found 200 million more COVID vaccine vaccinate. Is it 200 million? Yeah, no, it's 200 million. Yeah, they just found yeah. it. I mean, he just but they found them. So that's a good thing. I continue to think what he's doing with environmental work is important. You can do so much by executive order. Trump did so much damage through executive. Are you there? Why did I lose you? What happened? Hang on. Am I the only one who cannot hear the Reverend? Hear you. You can hear me now. All right. Yeah, but we were trashing you for the Good. last five minutes. I don't yeah. know what's going on. I don't know why that we, happened. We were singing your praises. Yeah, we were actually just, we were, Wondering if you would like to be put on Mount Rushmore. Uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> why not? Exactly. No. You two talk. I'm trying to solve a, a, a problem. So yeah, we'll keep talking. Oh, in that case, um, yeah, I'm, I don't like Mount Rushmore for all sorts of reasons. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't like this this sort of uh, idolatry. There's an inherent that's feeling right. of idolatry. That, that's not what this country is about. Nope. And not to mention the destruction of, of beautiful nature for the that's sake right. of the ego and the that kind of hegemonic project of whiteifying the West. Yep. Uh, it's disgraceful. It's, uh, yeah, it's a... Um, I saw it once, but hmm. I don't have any real interest. It's not the kind of first place I'd like to go back to once I get my uh, second vaccination shot. Right. Can you oh, hear me I, now? Yeah. Yes, we can. I can. Okay. And you, got, and you got your vaccination? What did you get? Moderna? Pfizer? I got the first Moderna and I got this next one in about 10 days. That's exciting. It is. It's very exciting. And how me. free are you then? What, are they, what does your wife say about because Ethan's dad, yep. your dad got two, correct? He got two, and he's just putting on more masks. He's, very, right. he's just very careful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I think Joanne still expects that we would be wearing masks, that we'd be doing all the things to uh, that we're doing now. But that it does give you a psychological freedom to at least, you know, walk into a drugstore with a mask, and I would not take off a mask because I got the second shot. I would want to be respectful of the possibility 
that I could still be contagious. We, we still don't know have enough people vaccinated to know right. whether this is and a guarantee that you're not going to spread it to, to others. So I want to plug two things. One is Diabetic Fury this Saturday night, February 13th. Spend Valentine's Day Eve with the brilliant Martha Previtt, who just astounds me. She's got a Nancy Pelosi impersonation that is breathtaking. This Saturday night, 9.30, COVID, not COVID, uh, Diabetic Fury number five. We have special guests. We have special guests. The brilliant Robert Smigel will be mm-hmm. joining us. The brilliant Robert Smigel will be there along with Emmy and Peabody award-winning comedy writer, actor, and all-round genius, Rick Overton. We're raising money for diabetes awareness. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. I want to sell as many tickets as we can for this. It's pay what you want. Anybody who shows up will get Valentine's Day cards that are downloadable. And then the tiers go all the way up to $250. There, There's art. Martha Previtt is a brilliant artist. And if you, I think at the $250 level, she will do a portrait of your pet. They're hysterically funny. Then there are the, Merce, the Moose Merkin masks, which you have to see. Jim is modeling them. If you go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the pay-per-view button, It'll take you to the Eventbrite page and you can see all the tiers and you can pay what you want or trade up and get some nice gifts. Office hours starts at eight o'clock Friday night. What a lineup. We're not doing 24 hours, Reverend. We did 24. Mm. We do 24 hours once a month. We have Falco. Who's going to teach us about workers' councils? He's in Belgium. He's a union organizer. Then we have, do you know the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Reverend? Never heard of him. You'll be interviewing Grant Peoples, who will perform a song and a poem about politics. And you're going to discuss Nicaragua. What are you going to be discussing? Well, he lived for many years in Nicaragua and uh, very forming kind of a formative piece of why he is a, a good progressive. He's, he didn't start playing publicly as a songwriter until he was 40 years old. And uh, he's a marvelous guy who writes wonderful songs. And uh, we're going to chat a little. And we're gonna, he's going to play a song or two and read some poetry that he writes. I can't wait. Then Professor John will continue to analyze political songs. Texas Tom Weber will teach the principles of nonviolence. Ricky from Morning Marks will discuss socialism. And I believe Ethan Hershenfeld will be teaching how to swim in very cold water and why. But what, what, what are you talking about? Five in the morning? We're not going till five in the morning. Ethan? Oh, I don't know. That's uh, I just signed up uh, for an open slot and it was five. It was five thirty. Oh, in the no, no, no. That, that's a mistake. <laughs> We're going to be done by like. Take the 1230 spot after Rorikey. Okay. It's a deal. Switch me. Do you know that Ethan swims in very cold water? It doesn't surprise me. It's 
it's it's bracing you know that word bracing you can only use that for aftershave that word but also for swimming <laughs> very cold water yeah. well i didn't know that water could be warm until i swam the first time in the pacific ocean i thought it was cold like it is off the coast of Massachusetts. Right. Yeah. So the water right now is 39 here. And I, I saw this morning a friend on our Zoom morning workout. He's in Nicaragua and the water is 80. Uh -huh. So that's, <laughs> that's nice. Mm. So I read something about the impeachment that's kind of interesting. That is, if you get one uh, or two Republicans... The the eight there were how many Republicans voted on the constitutionality? How many eight or seven eight. said it was constitutional? Six. Six. Yeah. If you get six Republicans to vote for removal, that'll be more votes than any opposition party ever gave to remove their president from office. That, that usually yeah. you only on impeachments, you rarely, it, it goes down party lines. Absolutely. And you rarely get, you at best you can hope for like one or two That's to right. uh, vote for uh, impeachment, to, for removal. I want to read you something that Alexander Hamilton wrote. Do you know who Alexander Hamilton is? Yeah, There's well, a movie, right? There's a movie about the guy? On Disney yeah, Plus. Yeah. yeah, he's on Disney Plus. It, this is, you know, we we worship our founding fathers, and I don't play into that. This is Alexander Hamilton. He was the first United States Secretary of the Treasury. He helped write the Constitution, and he died tragically on July 12, 1804. He also was one of the three authors of the Federalist Papers, and this is Federalist paper number 65. He's talking about the powers of the Senate, specifically impeachment. Look how brilliant, the, 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 how prescient he is. Of impeachment, he writes, they are of a nature which may, with peculiar propriety, be dominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them, for this reason, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community. Okay, that, that's convoluted writing, and it, it's yeah. hard to decipher. But this, he's saying that when you have an impeachment trial in the Senate, it will divide into parties more or less friendly or inimical, inimical, that means against, to the accused. In many cases, it will connect itself. This is what's so brilliant. In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other. In such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. That's hard to understand, but he's essentially saying when you have an 
impeachment trial in the Senate, it'll break down along party lines. The votes will be political and the acquittal will be contingent upon the, the strength of the president's party. That he would know that. This was before there were parties, right? D- didn't George Washington, weren't they against factions and and No, they and, were. And, and they parties? Were. Yeah, it passed quickly. You know, um, this is, by the time people are listening to this, there will be an enormous amount of discussion <laughs> about by the defense of uh, of the president, ex-president, it will be based on the claim that there is a uh, yeah, there's a free speech right. Right. That all he's doing it, and it's it's such that the fundamental it's it's nearly a frivolous argument because an, an impeachment is in the best and worst sense of political act that does not require that you violated any statute. It does not require that you can cite something in a federal uh, code of conduct that you violated. This is an offense against your oath of office. And I do think that the, uh, the prosecutors did a very, very good job at trying to explain this. Maybe it went on a bit long, but to say this is not about a violation of a criminal statute. This is about a violation of your oath of office, which includes, in the case of the president, a promise to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And you can't be doing that if you're saying weeks in advance, come on January 6th, it will be wild. That's his word. Nor does it mean he didn't incite it, that he eventually got around to saying, I go, when you go over there to the Congress, make sure you go peacefully and patriotically. You will hear that phrase, peaceful and patriotic, out of the mouth of both of the people trying to defend the ex-president and make this completely bogus free speech argument. So and here's what I don't do. understand. Here, I can't wrap my head around. I, I've watched those videos and I've been reading the transcripts uh, of the uh, of the impeachment and I have a mild obsession with it because I cannot figure out what really happened so my do you think they really would have hanged Mike Pence do you I think they would have killed him but why but why didn't they I'm not defending them. Why didn't they take out their guns? The guy who was sitting in Pelosi's chair had a stun gun. Yeah. They looked menacing and and they did horror. I'm not, again, I'm just trying to figure out how close they, they actually came. I mean, officer Goodman, a hero. Yes. Why, if it was an insurrection, they would have, purposely I hate to say this I'm not defending them right why didn't they they were saying f the pigs they you know they were certainly again they were calling cops yeah. the n word and yes they were but uh 
in order to get to the senators and the Congress people, they would have to harm the Capitol Police. 140 were injured, but uh, you you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, but... I don't want to say it, but but it's like (laughs) if it was a real insurrection... Right. You... There's... You'd be better armed. Well, they were armed. They were armed, but everybody didn't have a weapon. Right, but those weapons were weren't really they they threw yeah. bricks and flagpoles and fire extinguishers yeah. but the guns weren't fired so I it's don't a, think, you know other than you and uh myself and uh insult the triumph the insult comic dog a lot of people don't know where they're going, and that was very clear from the footage that was released in the last week. They didn't know what they were looking for. They wondered, where is Nancy Pelosi's office? Where is this office? Is this the Senate chamber? They don't know. They didn't plan it terribly well. So they, they were unprepared to get as far as they got, and they, don't, they, they were not going to shoot police because the police were protecting Nancy Pelosi. They wanted to find Nancy Pelosi. They wanted to find Mike Pence and do damage to them. Okay, you know, I can't get my head inside the empty spaces where their brains should be. I liked, again, they should be locked up, but do you really think Mike Pence, had they gotten their hands on him, that he would be I think he would have been hurt very seriously. Yes, and I think if Mitt Romney hadn't been walked away when he was walking in the direction of the insurrectionists coming in, would have been hurt very much because they hate him. He represents to those people everything that's wrong with their Republican Party, even though, as we've learned, in the last week or so, many of these people didn't bother to vote at all. Right. They didn't even vote. God. Do, do you think? Okay. I want to watch what I say because. Okay. I'm going to be careful. So you're not going to say anything? Well, I I don't know if the Democrats... The videos speak for themselves, we're mm-hmm. told. Yeah. But are the Democrats described... Well, let me bring Emil Guillermo in here. He is the host of the PETA podcast, and he's a... a uh, columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Objectively speaking, we we know that the people who stormed the Capitol, they're white nationalists, they're racists, they're bigots, they're the basket of deplorables. They should be locked up. Uh, So why are you trying to defend them? Oh, you're trying to say that if if they were truly insurrectionists, they would have just 
screw it all. I'm passionate. Uh, I want freedom. I want to free Trump. I want the votes freed. And I'm just going to do whatever. And they didn't do that. So that says they were just suburbanites. With well, I, I, if you're going to, I'm just trying to put it into perspective. Well, why didn't, didn't they set fire to Nancy Pelosi's office? Why didn't they take maybe, cop? Maybe, why didn't they take hostages? They, they were, there were enough. Maybe because they, they came to their senses is, is, is what I'm, I'm getting at. I mean, I, I thought, you know, my first reaction when I saw that on January 6th was that this is going to be bad. And then when I saw them posing and taking selfies, I thought, oh, maybe it's not that bad, but it is bad. I mean, they, they stopped just short of, uh, they were riotous. They stopped short of being, well, you can't say it wasn't murderous or five people killed. I think that. Well, and hang on now. Again, this I, is I sac- hang on, hang on. Five people killed. That's sacrilege for me to say this. But it, it you have to point out that they died from heart attacks. They're not even sure if one of the police. Are, I, I just want the truth. And, sure. Okay. And, 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 no, the, and the, the, they're not so sure it was a fire extinguisher that killed the, the officer. So they, they think it All may right. have been the bear spray. Well, and 140 police officers. I'm not discounting. It was horrible. What, but in terms of destruction, did they break any statues, rip up any paintings? They they smeared excrement, yes, but they they tore they tore Nancy Pelosi's nameplate. I mean, they were. I'm just trying to. If you're going to paint this as an insurrection, does it meet the threshold of an insurrection? Is it, or, or really, what you're trying to get at is: Does it rise to this level of impeachment? I think. Uh, oh, I, of course it does. Of course it does. Yeah. Okay. So, it, and and that's it. That's a, that's end of discussion. Let's impeach a, a second time, and then live with the consequences of uh, of uh, what the the base being angry, and uh, maybe they'll get riled up again, or maybe they'll back under the rock again. Trump should uh, be locked. I, I up. That, Trump should be locked up. Uh, I don't think he ever is going to get locked up. And I don't think anybody who took part in the insurrection is going to get locked up. Legal opportunity to get locked up. But what what, I see, I'm trying to figure out what that insurrection was, what it really was. But, but, But I mean, just doing what you know they did, even with these ambiguities about exactly why someone died. Did he die from bear spray? Did he die from being hit on the head? It, you walk into this building, which is not a sacred building, although everybody says it is, a sacred building. It's a temple of democracy. And destroys, it breaks in. You can't get into that. You know. And Triumph of the Insult Comic Dog knows this, too. You can't just go anywhere in that building. Right. But they did. And they scared the heck out of not just the staff and not just the members, but all the custodians, all the police officers who were trying to do the right thing. I mean, if that's not an insurrection, what do you, what do we need? Do we need to have a bigger body count? Do we, we, I know you're not saying that, but I mean, it's bad enough 
to see what they did and to see what they thought they were doing, which is to follow up on Donald Trump's insistence that they come to have a wild time on January the 6th and then that he'd be with them. I think they really expected to see him outside the Capitol marching hand in hand with them in, in spite of his bones. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You know, it, it's like I have this block. I hate to belabor it, but I have this block of watching the videos and being deeply offended and then asking myself, what what is this? Like, what am I looking at? What, what how do you define this? David, whatever it is, you wouldn't just let them get away with whatever you were just looking at. You well, no, I, I mean, personally, away. I would have opened fire. I think, you know, looting. Uh, I, there, uh, we're taking a conservative stance by impeaching because you would kill them. Well, open looting, fire. aren't I'm looters, aren't looters. <laughs> if you're looting, right. isn't it? I remember Katrina, looters will be shot on site. If you're looting, isn't it legal? The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, you're a lawyer. Can't if if there's there, a, well, it depends where you are. And in Louisiana, you can shoot looters. I don't recall how many were actually shot, but of course there was a racial dynamic there too. The cops in Louisiana are mainly white, and the so-called looters, who are mainly people just trying to, you know, get enough diapers that they could get through the uh, hurricane. Um, you know that. They were mainly African-Americans. But yeah, you, and if you, you bring up what everyone, sorry, uh, Reverend, if you bring up what everyone else brings up, that, well, if these people were black, they'd be shot. Oh, right? my if God. Do you, do you think for one second if, do you think for one second if they were, bra- if black people were breaking windows and storming the Capitol, the argument would be they, they were, of course we shot them. They were invading the. So there you go, David. Not only is it racist, but it's justifiable. And the Reverend and I are, are right that your doubts. So you're having these second thoughts for some reason. And I have a minutes next week I can give you and I can we can work it out. I'm just asking people to ask difficult questions. Emil Guillermo, Asian American. Yes, David. There was an Asian American who was lynched essentially in San Francisco because of COVID, right? An 80 year old Asian American. I, you know, it's, it's coming down to so many instances of anti Asian American, uh, you know, instances of violence just within the last couple of weeks. I thought I saw one guy getting pushed. I don't know the lynching, unless you define lynching in the broad way of, say, a mob mentality going after an elderly Asian man. But there's been a lot of elderly Asian being uh, being victimized by, and this is not really mentioned, but you can see it from the video. Most of the perps tend to be fairly young to... American males. And there's this thing in our community, our, our broader community. I'm talking about the Bay Area, you know, in terms of how Asian Americans are perceived and who, where, where the violence comes from. 
I I don't know why exactly that that's the case, except most of the Asian Americans who are are victimized by the the violence tend to be older, more feeble senior citizens. When I say older, I don't mean uh, a sexagenarian like myself, but uh, someone who is maybe not. We don't need to know about you. We don't need to know about you. I know. My sex life is, yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to reveal what's in my red envelope for Lunar New Year. No. But. I'm telling you, David, I, I was stunned when I saw all these, these instances over the last, uh, really the last 10 days. I saw this one closed circuit TV video of a, of a guy, an innocent Asian American guy walking and just being pushed down to the ground. Another, another, I thought there was only one case. And then there was another case in San Francisco where a guy is uh, just walking around his building and uh, it looked like the sunset area of San Francisco and uh, a large African-American male pushes him down. I, I don't know, except. Um, now, I, now to, I, to, do, to play Reverend, to play into my phony uh, both sideism. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe they bumped into him. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't, it's hard to get. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Well, you know, I'd love to continue this, but I I, I, I promised my uh, spouse that at uh, about this time, I would, uh, do, we're working on a major cleanup in the room next door, and then I would help on this. That's and I'm going to keep my promise because wow. I will keep but my promise. Even though you don't want to. I didn't say that. Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> All right. Thank you, uh, Reverend. Thank you. Stay out of, oh, I'll see you tomorrow night. Yes, I will. Yes, thank you. Grant, you get a little poetry and... Um, and the Reverend. We're scheduled for, I think, 10 o'clock. Thank you for this conversation. Sure. The Reverend yeah. Barry W. Lynn. Follow him oh, on bye. Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Go to BarryWLynn.com for more information. So, thank you. How are you dude, feeling, by the way, now that you have your vaccine? I shot. Yeah. yeah. You know, thank you for asking. Uh, I, I hope I was audible when I was getting, I didn't know. I, I, it was, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I kept saying, take your mask off. Take your mask. (laughs) Come on. I'm doing a radio show here. Take your mask. Does that not prove what a common regular guy, common guy was. I was there with the peeps people. I, the, the, I think Fauci would have said it's okay to take your mask off. I, I don't know. I, I was I was glad I was double master. Look, that was a an interesting crowd. That that is really Stockton is one of the most diverse cities in the country. And they get it's glad that the people there were getting the vaccine. I feel all right now. I have not heard back about my COVID test, nor have I heard back about my second dose. And now that we have seen everyone's alarmed about it, you can hear. And I am so I'm concerned if I'm going to get the dose, that if they're going to tinker with the dose or if they're going to try to do something to make it more uh, uh, more uh, worthy against these new strains. But one thing, they, they're they running out of doses in, in California. L.A. just announced at Dodger Stadium they, they'd run out of doses today. Uh, so I don't – I'm not sure – I hope I get my – my second shot within within the four week span, and uh, hopefully uh, I'll be important enough so that we can stop everything on the David Feldman show, and I can right. 
I can get uh, a second shot. But I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, and I'm it's still perfectly only about safe. Fifty percent covered. It's perfectly I, safe. I think it is. I, I have not. Um, I, I have. I have not felt anything. I, I do take some doses of vitamin D because uh, I've heard a lot about D helping your immune system. Because the secret about D. I, from the reports I, I've heard, you know, reporters are instant experts. So I, I look at the reports. They say the D, unlike other vitamins, uh, is a mere supplemental vitamin that you take. It's also a hormone. And it goes to the cellular well, level, let's, which, let's which do makes this. it I have a, Hang on for one second. I, I, I don't mean to yeah. be rude, but I have a rule but, on the show where oh, we, oh, yeah. we don't talk, unless you're, you're a... You don't talk to virus? Well, unless you, unless, okay, yeah, I, and you are a journalist, but but uh, I rather yeah. hear it from. People. Uh, we could we could stay clear of that I'm I'm just I'm just saying that I take a lot of vitamin D and I have not filled anything about since the virus, or it's just the vaccine, and um, and so I'm crossing the, the, my fingers. I, and I will that I get say the, the second. Dose. You are a reporter. I am not. I will report that the the scientists who come on the show agree with you. Mm-hmm. They, they say D and zinc, but you should get your science from scientists or science reporters, like that McNeil guy from the New York Times. Is he still at the New York Times? <laughs> hey, look, McNeil, look, I talked about him. I was on office hours last week. And Tell everybody I, who McNeil is. Uh, Donald McNeil is an award-winning journalist for the New York Times. He's reported on all the all the viruses. He is a science reporter whom the New York Times was going to nominate for the Pulitzer Prize. Last year, uh, his coverage of COVID. It was last year. Yeah, yeah. They were going to. They were going to. They were for this current season. They were going to put him up for the prize, and it was revealed to them that he was on. A, a like a student group. The New York uh, Times trip. does this thing. Rich Stop kids, out. rich kids, right? Their parents pay something like five thousand dollars. It's a to, lot. Look, it's out of Putney, Putney, Vermont. Look, I and I, I'm not a rich kid, but I was came during the time when they gave out scholarships. This, and you uh, get Putney, to travel Vermont. with a New York Times reporter to Peru, or you take a river cruise down right. the Danube with, with... With some... Well, in this version, that's what they do. You go with experts, you go with reporters or art, whatever. I, I got to go to France and uh, go to whatever. So, so there was a group... There were a group of, of kids, high, high school I, I students. Mostly, high school students. I presume they were mostly white. Uh, no, well, there were stuff. some African Americans, and apparently McNeil is in his Use mid. The N-word. He's well, he's in the mid to late sixties, and he's a bit of a curmudgeon. Doesn't really want to hang out with the kids, and there was a, a there was a story related to him over dinner about a rapper who uses the N word, and I guess the conversation was. Is it ethical to use the N word during, you know, in a rap song? And you're, he, you're getting into a, a level of detail. Well, because it's important that, because he then well, instead it, of it saying is, but, the uh, N word, he said the actual N word. 
All right, but only because, from my understanding, from from reports, not from the New York Times, but from their competitor, the Washington Post. Right, that's what Bump. That, 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 Philip yeah. Bump wrote a piece, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 they, that he was using, he was talking about it in an academic way. He was not talking about it with any kind of vitriol. He was not talking about, oh, those darn kids. It wasn't even that. It was like, let's talk about it. And who knows how much alcohol was consumed during this uh, this dinner or how, how he, he he certainly felt a, 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 an amount of freedom to discuss it in in these in I would think in certain in certain situations you'd be free to say the n word if it was if it was just about talking about the the virtues of the n word as a as a part of free speech or as in, part in of rap music, but he tied it into apparently. He also said there's no such thing as white privilege. Well, yeah, I saw that phrase in the article, too. Look, we so, were there we, to hear entirely all of it, but but it, it came back from the students and the parents who were concerned. And the New York Times was concerned, concerned enough to not get rid of him the first time. But then then when the Daily Beast it, it reported, the Daily life. Beast reported yeah. it. The, 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 uh, the executive editor, who happens to be African-American, looked into right. it and said, this is fine. Like a mild reprimand, like say the N-word, don't say the N-word. And then the Daily Beast reported it, and suddenly they had a public relations nightmare. And, and, they, and they, ended up, they ended up getting rid of uh, uh, McNeil. But look, as I said in the, op- in the office hours last week you know there's more to this than each ci mcneil was um he was a unionist he was in the newspaper guild he represented the workers really um, yeah for a long time i'm sure that they were just waiting for him this is my speculation now they're, they're waiting for him to uh, to go into some gray area and they got rid of him uh, I, you know, he'll he'll have the last word because he's a talented reporter. He can speak for himself when he's allowed to, and when he when can. he when he goes to work for Fox News. Or you know, I don't think he is. Um, I mean, if Fox were a fair and uh, a legitimate news organization, I mean, I I would think that's the kind of place that that McNeil would work for. So a place that was legitimate, not a Fox. News. I, I would think when when McNeil shows up after an award-winning piece about COVID or something, I, I you know he's just a, a talented reporter, and he deserved better. And it's too bad that we live in this age where we can both say the N word and everyone knows exactly what we mean, and, and yet everyone is outraged because everyone knows exactly what, what we mean. Well, I, I think so, it, here here's uh, we'll, we'll move on. I have a, a general rule of thumb. Yeah. Say the N word. Don't say yes, the N word. Don't say the N word. And I've noticed. Say the, say, don't say the. Say yeah. N word. Don't say. Don't say the N word. Mm. Instead, say N word. Uh, I was told by some oh. people say the. If you know, it all depends about. It all depends about you know context, and uh, yeah. I, for me, I think you just say don't say don't say it. Say instead, quote unquote, the N word. It's 
given the history of it. We're talking about the N-word. Did did you know the Filipinos were the N-word? Did you know that? No. 1899, Philippine U.S. War, or U.S.-Philippine War, they called Filipinos the N-word. I mean, when I mentioned the Philippine-American War, you always mentioned waterboarding, which is what they did on the Filipinos back then. And that's true. People know that. People don't know that the Filipinos were the first gooks. See, we can say gooks, but they were also the first. I, 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 I wouldn't. I'm not John McCain. And I know you. I'm just saying, I'm saying that that was a, it's Black History Month. So in one of my pieces for, uh, for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, I talked about David Fagan who is in the African-American Buffalo soldier, right? He joins the segregated U.S. Army, goes to, go, goes to fight the Native Americans, right? And maybe he had some sense that something was wrong, but they were so good, those Buffalo soldiers, and they, the, the U.S. Army thought, oh, they would like the tropics in the Philippines. But first they sent him to Cuba, then they sent him to the Philippines, and the Buffalo Soldiers, and this, would, this is what makes David Fagan an important person to consider. He saw that he was told to kill the, the Filipinos because the Filipinos were fighting for their freedom from the imperializer, the U.S., which was trying to colonize the Philippines. And David Fagan realized that he couldn't do that, not as an African-American who born in Tampa, Florida, where they were lynching one or two people a week, where they were just passing Plessy versus Ferguson, right? Separate but equal, codifying segregation. He couldn't do that. He crossed the line and was a traitor. Some people would say a traitor. He joined the insurrectos of the Philippines. Those are the true insurrectionists. That's why David Fagan is my Black Black History Month story. I'm Asian American. I'm American. I'm the American Filipino. I say David Fagan all month. Talk about David Fagan. You can talk about the N-word. You can talk about how the Filipinos, how the F-word was the N-word. Because when when those soldiers wrote back, and I know this because it was all in the ethnic press, the black ethnic press. There's like, you know how there's this underground ethnic media there's the white media, the New York Times, Washington Post, but there was this underground ethnic media, like the Amsterdam black, News. Yeah, the the you know all the 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 black press, the the you, you wouldn't hear it like the Cleveland Gazette or the you know the you know, they had different names, the big cities, but they served the black community. And these letters, from Gerald, soldiers, Professor say, Gerald Horn is going to be on next week, and he wrote a book about the African American press. Yeah, I mean, look, I write for the I write for the Asian American press. We are the new underground press of this so-called diverse nation. And we're underground for reasons, because, well, if you're not in the mainstream, if you can't, you know, uh, smile on CNN or ABC or NBC, if you can't, you know, write for the New York Times, although Dean Becquet is black and he runs the New York Times. But, you know, and they're trying to be diverse over there. They're trying to like. There was a story there about a, an Asian American kid who was killed at Yale yeah. today by another Asian American kid. And I did notice about, one of the things that, about that new movement. 
I noticed that Dean Beckett runs the New York Times kind of like I, the way I run this show. But, uh, well, well, I don't have employees, but the employees have a very hey, vibrant. Hey, I've known. I don't know if uh, they have a very vibrant Facebook group, and they are consulted. The people, the people who listen to the show. Well, the, the 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 employees of the New York Times are very rebellious. Yeah. If they don't like something, they're encouraged to speak up, and they're. Maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like a lot of the decision making in terms of personnel, like Barry Weiss being given the axe, yeah, McNeil yeah, yeah. being given the axe, the other guy from. Or how about uh, the editorial, Cotton's, the editorial guys? You know, yeah, who he allowed right, Cotton, Cotton to write editorial. A, there is it, them, they, there's there's the, the appearance of a ground you know a people's they they manage from the ground up. Obviously, they don't, but they do care what. Well, their personnel things. One of those guys ago who lost his job with that cotton, they didn't lose a job, but got demoted was Jim Dow, who was an Asian American on the masthead, which was a big deal for a while, uh, for a long time. Um, Jim Dow, who came out of the ethnic press, the Asian American ethnic press. Anyway, to go back to Fagan, you know, whenever you think, whenever I think, I, I talk to people on, on Black History Month. I talk to Asian Americans. I say, mention David Fagan because he is the one who can who could, who shows you that when when you see where the line is and you see you're being told by your superiors to kill these Filipino uh, insurrectionists, he couldn't do it. He joined the insurrectionists. He became a general in the Phil. This is a an Af- African American in the you know, Revolutionary Army. They, they called him cap. He was officially a captain, but they called him a general. So I, my hat's off to, to David Fagan. And I, I also tell Filipinos to look at David Fagan when they try to lose their, lose their colonial mentality. And, he, you know, the, the colonial mentality of Filipino Americans is that everything white is, is okay, is best. Listen to the white guy. He knows everything, especially right. if his last name is Feldman. He knows everything. But, right. you know, if they, if they keep, David Fagan in mind, they know to challenge, they know to, to stand up, they know to speak out, and they lose that colonial mentality, which was there in 1899 and continues today among Filipino Americans. So, anyway. Great. I did that on office hours last week. You know, I fell asleep. Not during your office hours, but I did fall asleep. It was 24 hours of office hours, and yeah. it's uh, I get I, lulled I, to sleep. By so, some of the stuff is so comforting, I doze off. I it's pretty amazing, call, isn't it? You said, I, well, you said, I need someone at 12 o'clock. And I said, okay, for you, I'll do it. I hate 12 midnight Pacific time because it's 3 o'clock in, in the East. Hey, look. Lunar New Year. Are you going to? What year is it? Is it the year of the cock? I, it's the year of the, not the cock. You can't oh. have it every year, David. I'm oh. sorry. You can't have it every year. But <laughs> year of the, the monkey? Year of the ox. Oh, the ox. No, you can't have them. Ox. The ox. O-X. O-X. So loving kisses. O-X. O-X. And O-X. when does it start? So uh, it's actually started in January, but it, officially it starts on Friday. 
officially on Friday, and then it ends like February 20th. But it's it's a long period. It's based on the lunar cycle. Don't call it Chinese New Year. Goodness. It's okay. not the Chinese don't have a patent on this. It's it belongs to all the Asian people in the Southeast, and except for the Filipinos, who we have some Chinese blood, but you know the Filipinos we have Catholicism. We don't need Lunar New Year. We have the we have the the Christian calendar to deal with. All right, lunacy. Catholic lunacy is what we have. Emil Guillermo is host of the PETA podcast. Very quickly, what is your big story? Get rid of me already. I have to. You know what the other problem is? Uh, Your connection is horrible. (laughs) And it's freezing. Maybe it's me. Is it really? It might be me, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. What what are you talking about on the PETA podcast? All right, look, David, you know, we, we don't like people who test on animals. They free the animals, right? Right. Free, 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 the, free the animals. Right. And uh, the experimenters, we've done some research. How many experimenters do you think? You know, they, they say that if you, people who kill usually start with small animals right I mean, they always like say FBI they always said that thing. about jeffrey dahmer serial killers they kill small animals right right that's why when so i was a kid at, when i was a kid i killed large animals so nobody would think i was a serial killer you were beyond suspicion david yeah no no one ever for a second they said oh he's a big animal guy he, doesn't, he wouldn't harm a yeah so look uh, we went and looked at Experimenters, 17 experimenters had some kind of criminal background and past, including murder, molestation, Mm. and um, other hideous things. And it was almost like the Catholic Church when I mentioned uh, molestation, because the science, the, the universities that these scientists were a part of would try to hide them just like the, the Catholic church would hide the priests. So 17 instances, we talk about him on the PETA podcast and it's part of PETA's move to try to get the department of health and human services to psychologically examine all those who apply for, for federal monies, millions upon millions of dollars. We should know what kind of people are receiving our taxpayer dollars before they experiment on animals because we know that the experimentation on animals could lead to some kind of danger to, to human beings. We're talking about rape, molestation, murder, 17 instances. So that's what we talked about on the PETA podcast. Okay. Thank you, my friend. I'm glad you got the vaccine. Cheery. It's a cheery subject. No, you were cheery great. Subject. You yeah. were great. Thank you. Yeah. Emil Guillermo. Well, hey, look, Thank you, David. Hey, David, David, amok.com, my website. Just tell them to go there, amok. And, and then they can Twitter at Emil Amok. Asian American A-M-I-L-A-M. Legal Defense and Education Fund. And listen to the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Thank you for your work. Well, watch what I do, Thank Emil. You. Watch this. Watch. Look what I do. Well, Professor Adnan Hussein is in the attendees. And I'm going to, yeah, but this is how you do things. You publicly ask, so you kind of embarrass them. 
So watch, watch this. How shameless I am. Uh, Professor Hussein, Professor Faluna couldn't make it tonight. And so I'm going to say, I'm going to ask you in front of everybody, can you fill in for Professor Faluna? Um, I will do my best. <laughs> I'm not prepared. I was just a happy attendee uh, hanging um, out at the right. barbs. He tried to right. sneak in and... Uh, <laughs> That's, okay, thank you, Emil. That's good, David. That's good shame. Very shameworthy. Okay, see, see you guys. The, Bye. Thank you, Emil. The The rule on this show is if you want something, ask people publicly. Let me introduce our professors. Professor Jonathan Bick is here in from Massachusetts. Professor Marianne Cummings is back. She is a physicist as well as parks a parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois, and Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and hosts the Mudgeless podcast and Gorilla History. Welcome all. Thank you, Professor Hussein. I hate to put you on the spot, but you, you know, you, you haven't been here for a while. And I go, oh, well, okay. Uh, usually the way this works is I ask the professors to bring up a story and they talk about it, and then we ask them questions. What do you have for us, Professor Hussein? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're unprepared, are we? Uh, let's start with Professor Jonathan Bick, please. All right. Hello, David. I enjoyed your your uh, office hours on music. Oh, good. Too good. Bad. I, I don't. How much of that is public domain? So I was worried that. I would love uh, to do it on the show, but it's, right. I think union songs are public domain. It, uh, it depends. And I think it also depends on uh, the particular performance that you're playing. So if that's under copyright or not, uh, I'm not an expert on, on those things. So that's a good point. Anyway, what, what, is, what is on your, I'm always interested in what you have. All right. Well, uh, Yesterday, the chair of the Federal Reserve. Came you're you're out. pounding your. I hate to. Uh, oh, sorry. Your, I won't yeah. Be right. I, you know, when I don't have a good argument, I just pound the table. Right. Like right. A, any good lawyer. Um, no, but yesterday, the, the chair of the Federal Reserve came out and said that the official unemployment number uh, does not reflect reality uh and that the true unemployment rate is over 10 percent this is powell powell right jerome powell chairman of the federal reserve bank uh yeah which was enlightening i mean i've never heard an official of the government come out and say that you know official u3 unemployment number is is something that understates employments rather significantly um so, uh, you know, I thought that was important. I So he says the the unofficial unemployment rate is oh, double the, digit. The un, sorry, say that again. The unofficial unemployment rate would be double digit. Yes, he said you're right, over 10%. Yeah. That's like not good. No, not good at all. Okay. So compared to a year ago, for example, uh, there are 18 million more people claiming unemployment benefits. And over 11 million of them uh, will lose their benefits unless Congress acts by next month. 
So we are under the gun, as they say, uh, in order to stop a disruption in people's benefits. And there are a lot of people who are in, in desperate situations, uh, you know, on the edge of being evicted, uh, going without food. Food insecurity is rampant. Um, how is and, this not the most important story? How is this not the top story in the news? Well, we have a lot of uh, competition. You know, we do have a president being impeached for the second time for uh, inciting a riot or an insurrection against the United States, trying to overthrow uh, an election in Georgia. Um, so, you know, there is a lot of competition, unfortunately. Or opportunity um, to distract us from the plight of half this country. That that could be stated that way as well. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that it's important to take a look at the ways in which America is exceptional uh, in comparison to other advanced economies. And this is not necessarily in a good way. Um, the U.S., you know, compared to Western Europe and to Japan and uh, other advanced economies um, has a very skimpy welfare state. We have the highest poverty rate. We have uh, few and weak economic automatic stabilizers, things like a robust unemployment benefit program. Uh, our benefits tend to be too small and vary greatly from state to state, and they are too short. In, in regular times, uh, you know, they only last about six months. Um, and to get stimulus payments out to people took months. If you remember back to the, the CARES Act, uh, you know, it took so long and it was a haphazard mess. There's still people who qualified for the $1,200 checks that haven't received them. They have to wait until they file their... And who's taxes. giving out the money? I would think, I'm going to play stupid here. I would think... If you're going to give tax dollars to the citizens of the United States, I would think uh, who who administers most of these? Uh, well, the IRS has been in, in administering it, um, and of course, there's a problem with that because if you're trying to get out twelve hundred dollar checks to everyone who qualifies. Um, and you're basing it on a year ago, an in, their income from a year ago, uh, because that's when they filed their income taxes. If last. they filed there. If they filed, right. What if they have an extension? What if they didn't file at all because they didn't make enough money? Uh, or whatever, for whatever reason. Uh, it, you know, it's not a comprehensive way to get the money out. And so we should have something in place you know, we could have postal banking, for example, where everyone in the United States has a bank account with the post office. And that's they used to have that in this country. We used to have that. That's right. Um, and the, the government could just deposit the money into those accounts or they could um, uh, sign everyone up for a, uh, a federal uh, uh, direct account a uh, treasury direct account through the federal the reserve uh well that's what the u.s treasury actually 
Okay. Um, so the, the money could go out that way. Uh, you know, there are ways of doing it now electronically that is much faster. And if we had these things in place, we could just get the money out immediately. And we, they should be automatic. So if we have a, a this kind of a dramatic drop in the economy, whether it's because of uh, a natural catastrophe or the pandemic or a uh, an economic calamity, that all this money could get out quickly and into the hands of people so that their lives are not disrupted. And who was at the White House this week going over the stimulus bill with Joe Biden? None other than Jamie Dimon, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase. Biden is running the stimulus package by this piece of human excrement, Jamie Dimon, who somehow didn't go to prison after 2008. He crashed the economy. He should be in prison. If this were South Korea, if this were Japan, he would have had the decency to commit seppuku. And now he's giving the stamp of approval on the stimulus package to Joe Biden. And the reason we don't have postal banking in this country is because of Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon uh, will will tell you that government can't do anything right. And at the same time, we'll say, oh, no, you can't have postal banking. We can't compete with the government. Well, you can't have it both ways, Jamie. Either the government is inefficient or they're great at what they do and they would drive you out of business. The same way a public option would drive the health insurance companies out of business. This is so infuriating. It is. Uh, we, we should not be inviting, you know, the people in to to comment on legislation that is meant to address issues that are caused by these people in many ways to begin with. Right. I mean, it's amazing how many people continue to fail up and to maintain their influence, no matter how many times they get it wrong. You know, it's just incredible that these they, they just keep reappointing the same people, like going to the same people um, for advice where they've shown in the past that their they're advice cri- is- they're, they're criminals. They, they're, they're, it's not just they fail. They're criminals. They're guilty. Jamie Dimon is guilty of fraud, money laundering. J.P. Morgan Chase launders money for drug dealers. And that's something else. We don't hold corporate crime. Uh, you know, we don't prosecute it the way it should be prosecuted. If a corporation shows that time after time. How is Wells Fargo still in business? That, that was going to be my point, that you sh- they should not be in business or they should be taken over either temporarily by the government or permanently. Professor Marianne Cummings, Bob Dylan said, steal little money, they put you in jail, steal, steal a lot, they make you king. Yeah, that's right. You know, if you're a, if you kill one person, you're a murderer. If you kill a few, you're a serial killer. If you kill a million, you're a historical figure, you know. No, no make statues. Yeah, just go big. Uh, well, I think this is, of course, just this is the system. They're, they haven't failed. They are, they, the system is working as they've designed it. And it is a rigged game. Um, 
interesting that uh, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about the post office, was it under Obama or who was it under where they required the post office to pay their to pay into their uh, retirement fund 75 years into the future? I think that goes way back. I think that's that might go. Maybe it was even in the Clinton era, but I always thought that that was an insane thing to do so I've, that people were effectively people who were working for the post office. And this, of course, came out of the the paychecks of people currently working. You're working for the retirement of people who aren't even born yet in principle. Now, I think it would, I don't think they've replaced, who is it, Did Louis DeJoy yet? Uh, I think that's got to, I think the Biden people do have people on the board of the post office, if I'm correct. They can remove, yeah. yeah they, they can remove him, but it doesn't look like the guy is going to be removed anytime soon. And it's like, what the, what the hell? <laughs> What's well, going on? You can do a lot. You see, there is no sense of urgency. I think this. I, I think the biggest problem. There's a myriad of problems, but you would solve them if you had any sense of urgency. Like there's a real war. We've got to do something now. Like the uh, the Congress did when they felt when they all felt physically threatened by the uh, the melee that happened on, on January 6th. I mean, boy, they acted quickly. I wish they'd show a fraction of that um, alarm and that urgency toward us, toward getting us our Thank you for, yeah. The reality is, is that whatever happens is not going to affect the lives of anybody in my neighborhood. You know what it would have affected their lives? It's those $2,000 checks that we were promised would be immediate, which could have been immediate if that had been a priority of the incoming administration and the Democratic leadership. Um, you know, they're up to, I just looked it up, uh, we can, they can do reconciliation up to three times a year. And when Bernie Sanders said a few weeks ago that they could have done these emergency checks through reconciliation, he was on CNN or one of these shows. I mean, Bernie Sanders usually knows what he's talking about. Bernie Sanders understands the rules of the Senate, and he understands procedure better than anybody. So that's uh, just not a priority. But I had to – I was going to talk about something else, but when I was listening to John, um, I was thinking about how bad the Democrats are at optics because this past week – uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Chuck Schumer were out making a big announcement that that uh, there's a program that they're going to be running through FEMA that anybody who had who died of COVID and their families having a problem burying them will get up to seventy get up to seven thousand dollars to cover funeral costs. And I just thought, really, that's so macabre. I mean, first of all, that's $5,600 more than people who are alive who could, you, right. you know, you're even talking about giving them sometime, maybe by the end of, of, of Morticians uh, have a, a lobbying organization. Yeah, I don't know, but it's basically to the funeral homes to cover the expenses. And I'm going, what? I, I mean, I don't doubt that, yeah, for some I guarantee family, you that they, they the Morticians Association went and met with AOC and Schumer and said, you know, business has never been better, but we can't get anybody to pay their but bills. I mean, you know, the idea that they would, instead of quietly, even if they thought that was helping, the idea instead of quietly 
pushing that through, that they would make a big public pronouncement of this as if this were going to make people feel good about what they were doing. It just, it just reads as so just macabre on some level. I don't, these guys live in such a bubble. They are so disconnected from us. I thought they would be reimbursing the families that spent the money. Right. Well, they would be, yeah, but the families maybe didn't even have the money to spend and they're owing the people at the funeral homes. I, I don't know. Professor Hussein, do you have a question for Professor Bick? You have to unmute. No, but I have a story. Okay. And then we'll go to Professor Marianne. Uh, well, I guess the story that I would be interested in is, and it's a story perhaps you should have Timothy Ulrich on to discuss uh, since it concerns the media organization for which he has worked and he hasn't been on the program for a while, but China, uh, China Global Television Network recently lost its license in Britain, in the UK, um, and it retaliated by pulling... Um, uh, the sort of China National Radio and Television Administration pulled the license for the BBC in China, which was that was that happened, I think, today. It was reported today. But last week it was preceded by the UK government, Ofcom, the Office of Communications, saying that um, China Global Television Network was a creature, uh, not an independent media organization, but a creature of the communist Chinese Communist Party. And um, of course, uh, the BBC is a government, is a publicly held uh, news organization, but they draw a distinction between being a publicly owned uh, uh, and editorially independent media organization versus the Chinese uh, government one. So, you know, this is a distinction that may not seem uh, that credible to people who recognize some of the biases in the BBC's reporting. Uh, If we think, for example, even on domestic issues, uh, the way in which Jeremy Corbyn's, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, leadership of the Labour Party was portrayed in the BBC seemed like it was more wild propaganda than almost uh, than many things we might have seen on CG. uh, Well, let me ask you about this, because I love Timothy and he's given us some great reports from Beijing. Uh, He's an American who's working overseas for China, global television news. However, he said some things about the, the plight of the Uyghurs that you know, he's living the life. He's vacationing in Mongolia, but he said some things about the Uyghurs that made me question what were, what was your reaction? Well, to? I, I mean, I well, I asked him a little bit about it and I didn't want to put him too much on the spot. It was obviously uncomfortable for him to <laughs> confront, you know, some of the concerns that people have about, some, uh, you know, evident uh, abuses and treatment of the of the. Now, Uyghur. we had another guest on the show. I'm not going to mention any names who was talking about Tibet. And yes. And, and I add, you know, and. I, 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 I want to have an open. I don't know anything, and I know, you know. I listened to Richard Gere and Brad Pitt and Martin Scorsese, and my understand. I'm not being facetious. That 
being a product of Los Angeles, we were trained to believe that China was committing genocide in Tibet and is destroying the Buddhist religion. Is that a fair? And then this guest was saying, well, I don't want to. Uh, am I wrong? I mean, how much of that? Well, I'm no expert on the situation in Tibet or really about the situation of the Uyghurs in China. I'm not a China specialist, but I think it is possible to criticize policies of uh, other governments while at the same time acknowledging that these can be used maliciously and unfairly in some kind of uh, attempt to whip up negative uh, so it, it is conceivable that the dalai lama could go back to tibet that that he there are two sides to that story well i i don't know i mean i think your guests knew a lot more and um you know there are obviously some but he wasn't, complexities he, he, he said he didn't he said he was. He get, he get. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's that's. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't stake my reputation on figuring it out because I don't really know the situation. But what I, what I do know is that I don't think it's the uh, biased reporting about the Uyghurs that is really the central concern for um, you know the the British government. Uh, I think the British government was more concerned with. China's new security regulations in former British colony Hong Kong, and they right. reacted, you know, in this in this manner because this is one of the only mechanisms that they had, really, I think, to retaliate. Um, you know, it, it's it's of interest to the Chinese um, television network to have a base in in London, and this is something that they could deny in response to those changes. Uh, it's just, I think, very interesting that during this time when there's a lot of talk about censorship, um, that now when we're talking about state-controlled media, uh, that we we can see really, you know, the the possibilities for for censorship um, by both these two governments. And what I'm impressed by is how much. Uh, you know, Noam Chomsky taught us a long time ago to be concerned about the way in which the media manufactures consent and it doesn't in a democracy, whether, you know, actual or just formal in a democracy, um, it's much less overt and draconian and obvious a form of imposing um, you know, state policy on the way in which news will be reported. You know, it just sort of happens by other kinds of social pressure and people realize and recognizing that their careers will be enhanced if they happen to toe the line um, that is the position that power would like to see. So, you know, whether or not there's a formal intervention and dictate from the UK government or the United States government to the BBC or to the New York Times, for some reason you find amazing unanimity between the portrayal and representation of foreign affairs and of uh, UK or US involvement around the world that happens to accord with US foreign policy and State Department interests. And it's not because always the State Department issues some decree or makes it very clear. Um, 
So if there is a sort of crude uh, lockstep between CGTN and Chinese interests in how it wants to portray Hong Kong or the Uyghur situation, in practicality, there's very little difference, it seems, between you know, the BBC and CGTN. And so the Chinese, you know, very interestingly, uh, you know, their their point about it, the rationale that they used is that BBC was not a reliable, fair and impartial reporter and that that is necessary under Chinese law to have the license. So they they pulled it. And likewise, the BBC, the Ofcom, Ofcom, sorry, not the BBC, but Ofcom's decision about CGTN again was about how they're not a reliable and independent editorial, you know, entity. And so they can't uh, have in uh, neither of these cases. Is this a new analysis? What it is, is a response to actual political changes on the ground. That's why it's being done. And I think that's what should be recognized. And so I do hope you get Timothy Ulrich on because it'll be interesting to hear his perspective on this. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's great to see you again, Professor Hussein. Professor Marianne Cummings. Yeah, by the way, I, I do remember watching a movie, I think it was by Martin Scorsese about the Dalai Lama. Yeah, it was Brad and Pitt. Seven Years in Tibet. No, 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 no. It was another, it, it, there was another film. Goodbye, Dolly. Dolly. Goodbye, Dolly with Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Sorry. Guy Nicolucci is coming up next. I just wanted to. Oh, I see. You got it. Yeah, we got to get, you know. Do he's, a, he's a comedy writer. Anyway, that film uh, gave a little hint that, you know, things were not all that great in paradise before the Dalai Lama was, but before the uh, the Chinese took over Tibet. I mean, there was but, but, Yeah, but I mean, there's no such thing as paradise. No. But uh, anyway, there was an interesting thing that came up. I think it was this past week. I was reading an article about it. Um, there's a, a gal. Her name is um, Kathleen Hicks, and she was confirmed just earlier this week for the deputy secretary of defense, and which is essentially that position is essentially like a chief operating officer of the Defense Department, the person who's in charge of the biggest budget on planet Earth. Um, Anyway, one of the um, questions that... Uh, so is Senator, she from Raytheon or Boeing? Um, I think she's actually been... I, I don't know if she's been in these companies, but she's uh, she's mostly been in government most of her adult life. But she brought up an interesting thing. There was a question about... Um, you know, she... There was a question about the supplies that we have. Um the num for instance, the number of suppliers to the submarine program is down by 80% since the 1980s. You know, there's just, there is consolidation and mono uh, monopolization of the supply chain for the Defense Department. And suddenly the, um, the interests of the monopolists and the oligarchists are running into the, uh, are kind of running headlong into the interests of the Defense Department. And uh, she's this particular gal has an ideological uh, bent on that. She believes in competition among contractors, and she thinks that's an advantage that our uh, that that our, our our military has over, say, China and and Russia. 
Now, I think that's a little bit of a sham, as you pointed out. I mean, we, we have a Department of Defense, like every other department, that's captured by the industries that they're doing business with. But there, even among those elites, there's some, um, they, they, there was some competition among them. However, what's apparently really been the problem is that we, for years, we've had an industrial, a military industrial base here in the United States. The first hints of, of problems I, I seem to recall was back in the 80s when there was a backlog of chips of integrated circuitry for our submarines because they're the pointy end of a lot of our technology, and that uh, caused um, I think it was I think it was uh, Happy Bush George Herbert Walker Bush to set up uh, some uh, a council of competitiveness where they were able to bring some chip manufacturers back into the United States because we were ordering from Japan and there was a backlog in Japan and there were a couple other countries in front of us. So it's, you know, the New York times has a piece today about uh the N95 masks. There's a manufacturer in, I think Miami who's sitting on 50 million or so M N95 masks and he can't sell them to the hospitals because the hospitals in America are accustomed to buying the N95 masks from China, where it's made mm -hmm. cheaper, and there are incentives baked into the purchasing that uh, is anti-competitive. Yeah, well, that's the that's the problem, and not only that, but she also brings up the problem of all these industries, like all industries, have been. Um, have been finance dominated over the last several years. I mean, finance has dominated everything now. Like when we have problems with fossil fuel and our addiction to fossil fuel, we're up against the big banks. If we have problems in any sector, like our captured supply chains for um, hospitals, the, the, whole, the whole reason we don't have public health, we don't have a, a, a national stockpile is that it, does not it just does not make anybody money to make a whole bunch of things and have them ready for dispersal you know in case of a national emergency we just don't have the culture for that anymore and um she is they believe really they believe in the economy of scale they they believe in the myth that if you get on the masks if you get 3m mm -hmm. or honeywell to make the masks that'll be the most efficient use well of which is true. Yeah, there was also another uh, point that was brought up in in the article. Uh, this was actually Matt Stoller. Matt Stoller does a pretty good job covering um, monopolies, monopolies covering yeah. and, and, you know things like that. So he's his uh, uh, articles that are, are are centered around that. This one was from earlier this week, but there is a real mindset. Um, they, because there's a mindset of consolidation in the Defense Department, and one of the problems that she is pushing against now is that the uh, Biden administration has brought in a whole bunch of McKinsey types, the the big consulting firm that Pete judges um, old game. Yeah, Mayo Pete's firm. That's the Borg Cube, cube once that guy came from. <laughs> so it's you know. And this is part of the problem with our readiness is breaking down because the defense industrial base is uh, is having to do with monopolization and just financial corruption. 
I mean, these are huge amounts of money and somebody in a hedge fund sees this not as a national security issue, but uh, as a national security problem, but an asset on their part. It's like, wow, you know, like the government doesn't have a choice here. We get to make tons of money. So anyway, it's good to see, I guess, that there's somebody that has been confirmed that is at least um, articulating these problems in the Defense Department. We we have to wrap it up. This is great. Uh, There was a piece, I think, I I think I read this on the NBC News website. Our friends over at McKinsey, the consulting firm, had Mm -hmm. to pay something like, let's say, $400 million in fines Mm -hmm. this year because they were advising Purdue Pharma and other opiate manufacturers on how to convince doctors to over-prescribe opiates. And in principle, they were stripped. They were, you know, they were being stripped from the government cost schedule for cheating these public entities. They shouldn't even be, you know, doing business with the Defense Department, but they did a workaround. Right. And something like half a million Americans have died in the past 20 years from the over-prescribed opiates. Now it turns out that McKinsey, they have their fingers in so many pies. This is a story I read. I think it was mm-hmm. an NBC News website. They they agreed to pay, let's say, half a billion dollars to 49 states and settle this lawsuit. And all that money is earmarked towards rehabilitation. Well, but McKinsey, yeah, finish the the punchline is oh yeah they've got a uh, they've got a financial interest in all these uh, private for profit uh, rehab centers so they're getting their money back oh god god bless America yeah I mean you know yeah we, we, we know how to hustle the system what can I say yeah thank you Professor Jonathan Bick thank you Professor Marianne Cummings thank you Professor Adnan Hussein. We now go to Los Angeles, Well, we're going to go there in a second. I just want to remind everybody that we have a big, big show coming up February 13th. Comedy genius Martha Previtt takes on Robert Smigel, Rick Overton, and Diabetes, along with FBI informant Jim Earl. All the money we raise Saturday night goes towards Diabetic Fury, raising awareness about diabetes. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. This is going to be a funny, funny evening. I promise you, you will laugh your arse off. And go to davidfeldmanshow.com. It's pay what you want. Pay what you want. Hit the pay-per-view button. It'll take you to Eventbrite. Spend St. Valentine's Day Eve with us this Saturday night. It's pay what you want. Everybody who shows up will get a Valentine's Day card download, which will be very funny. And then there are various levels. Martha Previtt is a brilliant artist, and there are all these different tiers available to you. I cannot stress this enough. You will laugh. Robert Smigel, right? Professor Guy Nicolucci? Uh, Yes, David Feldman. You are the best human being I've ever met in my life. Thank you for recording this hostage video. (laughs) Robert Smigel will do... Oh, he's... he's, Robert's brilliant. 
Jesus, he's great. He'll be doing Donald Trump, and Rick Overton will be doing uh, Morgan Freeman and and Martha Previtt. Her Pelosi today made me laugh. Guy Nicolucci teaches screenwriting. Professor Guy Nicolucci teaches screenwriting at Montclair State University in New Jersey. He is an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer. He's written for countless television shows. His movies have been seen on Lifetime. He's currently working on a, a horror film. And welcome back. You Everybody loved you last week. Well, who's no everybody? <laughs> I know. I try to disabuse them of that. Thank you. Good. We don't want. To, we want to keep the expectations low. You By are a true. St- besides being a professor, and you have uh, higher degrees in this stuff, uh, but you truly are a scholar of. Ah. You are. Of what, David? Of, of what? comedy, of, of oh. movies. You you do study this stuff. It's it's amazing. Oh, I obsess over it. I absolutely, absolutely love it. It's. Um, but that's hard to be a comedy writer and love comedy, isn't it? You know, it is. And it is it's, you love the comedy. You, I, I shouldn't say you. I, I love, you know, the mechanics of it, the art of it, et cetera. You can hate the business of it. You know, which I think is a different thing we should get into. I mean, most stand-ups probably hate, you know, how they have to earn their living. They love when they're on stage, but hate everything else about it. Right. Haven't you encountered that? Yeah. Well, well, with stand-up, that's why so many, unless you make it really big, eventually you just get tired of Mm -hmm. the, the, the IEDs on your way to the stage. They're just, you're stepping, there are all these... It's hard yeah. to, the easiest part is the performing. Oh, that's, that's the best part. Well, the, I mean, reading this interview with Jack Lemon when he was talking about being an actor and he explained that he says that they don't pay me to act. He goes, I do the acting, the, the stuff in front of the camera, I do for free. What they're paying me for is everything around it, everything I have to deal with, all the, all the bourgeois. And I've taken that to heart. I mean, I'm just like, when I get a chance to actually write something funny, they're not paying me for that. They're paying me for everything I had to do to get to get to, get to that point. Right. And then everything that happens afterwards when they screw it up right. or throw it away. So what are you watching? What did you watch this week? Well, um, God, you, you ask me these questions and I go blank. I watch my neighbors through the back windows. Does that count? With Grace <laughs> Kelly. You're, you're, uh, yes, I'm, and Raymond Burr. And Raymond, I just saw Raymond Burr. Hang on, I just saw him as the heavy in a movie. What? What? Hang on, you know, it was really good. Oh, oh Clark Gable plays a, the mayor of a, a town in Washington State, and he falls in love with. I think it's Loretta Young. It's a western, right? No, no, no. And she's the mayor no. of. A small town in Maine, Harvard girl, a Harvard girl. Harvard girl, and Raymond Burr plays the town. He, he, he plays the town. Yes, <laughs> big man. <laughs> yeah, he plays the enforcer, and Clark uh, Gable, Clark Gable is a stevedore who gets elected mayor, and they all meet in San Francisco. Oh and, wow! And Raymond Burr, well, we won't go there. We won't go there. No, but no. Actually, what I've been watching is uh, there's this. Uh, 
Marla, a bunch of Marlena Dietrich movies from the 1930s directed by Joseph von Sternberg. And they're, uh, they're insane. It's like, they're like, um, you, sometimes you feel like you're watching a fever dream. And they're that, made in Germany. No, well, von Sternberg claimed to be Austrian and he may have been, but he actually lived in Brooklyn, uh, before going to Hollywood. I think his real name was Joe Sternberg, but they were made in America and they're beautiful. Who played beautiful. the chauffeur in Sunset Boulevard? Oh, that's Eric von Stroheim, who's another one who added the von to his name. That I don't know if he was Jewish. I think Sternberg was, but they both took on these Prussian, you know, Aryan kind of names. It'd be like David von Feldman. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so I've been watching these these strange Marlena Dietrich movies. So Cat von Dees is is Jewish. Who's Jewish? Kat Von Dees is Jewish. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But no, watching these old movies, and the great thing is, is that they don't really have to make logical sense. You know, they, you just kind of go along for the ride where bad things happen to this woman or this woman does bad things. In one, she played, what was it? The Scarlet Empress. She plays Catherine the Great of Russia. And I, I saw that on TCM. Did you? What did you think? Yeah, hard to get through. Yeah, but like I say, you the have horse. To the horse looked. <laughs> I gave you that. I was waiting. I don't know. I secretariat <laughs> was not an actor. <laughs> the horse had his own dressing room. He kept <laughs> screaming, "Why does she get the good light?" <laughs> oh, what What was really? the horse that captured uh, America's imagination? Well, that was a Secretariat or Mr. Ed, your choice. Right. Like during the Great um, Depression. I think it was Secretariat. Wasn't that the, they made the movie about 10 years ago? Yeah. 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 I don't know. As a comedy writer, all I can do is think about the horse on the set, you know, calling his agent right. and, you know, pitching and, you know. But I, never, I actually never saw the Secretariat movie. Me neither. Uh, but, well, you know he's gonna he's gonna win a race and he's gonna win or he's gonna lose, and you got to make me get him. This now, are you teaching? Yeah, actually, I I, I taught. Uh, this was the first week of school. Believe it or not, it's February. It's the first week of school. Yeah, they um, what they did is they pushed back the semester. This is all COVID related, and I know you don't talk to comedy writers about COVID, David, but um, it, for safety reasons. They decided to eliminate spring break and to keep everybody on campus, basically to keep the pod, the cohort together. So we're doing 15 weeks in a row as opposed to having a week off in the middle. So we had a very long break. And then on Tuesday, I started teaching again. I did my screenwriting. Today, I, I was teaching um, film story analysis, which is, again, what we were talking last time, teaching the children the structure of movies. And it was fun to be back teaching and hearing my own voice and being paid for it. Yeah. You know how that is. Yeah. But screen, uh, screen movie analysis, story analysis. Yeah. You know, the whole hero's journey. We show them, you know, we start with what do you need in a movie? You need a hero. Hero needs a goal and an obstacle. You know, Batman wants to make Gotham a good place. Joker wants to make it a bad place. And you start your movie from there. And you need an anti-hero or maybe not. No, you don't need that. You need a villain. You need an obstacle. The students always say, can the bad guy be society? And right. I'm like, 
unless society gets its own dressing room and you can point a camera at it, then do you want society personified by somebody? You you want um, you know, has the hero's we, journey. I mean, there it's there. You have alternatives in the hero's journey, right? You don't have to use no, yeah, all the all the stations of that cross. But yeah, uh, that's very Catholic of you, David. Thank you. But have it wasn't a compliment. Has the hero's journey changed? Is it the same as it was twenty years ago, thirty years ago? Well, it's probably changed. I think that the way since audiences have seen everything, you don't need to explain as much that, uh, that you know, well, it used to be in a movie where you would show the hero getting out of the car, close the door and walk into the building because you had to establish now you can just, he's in the car, then he's in the building. And so I think there are some aspects of the hero's journey that you can just use shorthand for. They're, they're there, or at least they're there in a, um, What's the word where it's there, but you don't see it? Subliminal? Uh, maybe subliminal. Subtext? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But they're... Imperceptible? Are, yeah, imperceptible. Maybe smelling faintly in the distance. I don't know. But... A whiff of? Two, the, two hours later, a hint? <laughs> a hint? <laughs> are there some movies... Are there some television shows that are too lean where they're they're almost designed so you have to watch them two or three times to figure out what the hell is going I, on i honestly i think the the opposite problem is what i've encountered i'll, I'll be watching a tv show and i'll start with a voiceover of a character saying i'm a sexy vampire living here and you know there's lots of vampires like me who do this kind of thing and and they're like just show me, just show me do it. You know, I feel there's a lot more explaining than there needs to be. But there are some, some shows that I've been talked into watching mm -hmm. and I'm having trouble keeping the characters straight mm -hmm. and I can't hear what somebody said. And I, yeah, I that's thought, old age. I got that. Nah, no. Cause I've watched it with my kids and, mm -hmm. and they've said, I didn't hear what he, what, what she uh -huh. said. And then I go to myself, are they making, not all movies, not all movies, not all television shows, but are some people purposely making product where you have to watch it three times? To, I don't know. Well, I mean, like Game I of think, Thrones? Well, I never watched it. I tried the first episode and go, not my genre, not interested. But the thing is, you know, it, it's an old trick. You leave something out or you, you, you refer to it elliptically. Maybe that's the word we were looking for yeah. earlier. But and so the audience isn't sure what's going on, so they have to pay further attention and have to dig further in. So that might be an intentional goal rather than you know Can you enjoy a movie or a television series where you don't know what the hell is going on? When you oh, sit yeah, down and yeah. you start watching it and I go, I can't follow the story or what and you're still I, enjoying it? Absolutely. There's always something to enjoy in a movie. Do you I feel mean, distracted like i would take my kids to you know these superhero movies mm -hmm. like star wars <laughs> you know yeah. the 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 role at the front of a star wars movie oh yeah in the year whatever the Empire and i'm going movies. what I, who's huh what yeah and, and then i'm i'm trying to pay attention to who the good you know yeah do people follow 
Star Wars, do they, on, on the first viewing of Star Wars, are they able to keep the storyline and characters straight? Beats me. I mean, I saw it when it came out in 1978 or whatever, and I was, you know, only 40 at the time, so I was still young. But um, I, the thing is, the whole Star Wars universe, the whole Marvel Comics universe, you know, it's become an alternate religion in which you have to do, you do have to follow it to get all the and, Easter And then eggs. you feel, it makes you feel special, then wow. you have an emotional investment in it. Exactly. And then the financial QAnon. investment. Yeah, fine. well, financial. But it's like QAnon, you, you know the secrets. And, uh, and that's the thing, it's just like everyone says WandaVision's a great show and I should watch it. Or not everyone, but I'm not interested because I'm just like, I'd have to like, I feel like I have to get indoctrinated. <laughs> you know, I'd have to like study for seven years like the Jesuits in order right. to join the Marvel. So there's Club. this in entertainment, even jokes, a, a great joke, I think, well, not all great jokes, but a great joke is something you have to get. Yeah. And it's like a crossword puzzle, not all mm -hmm. jokes, right? but if you laugh at a great joke, you feel you're getting it. And I guess it's you feel kind of proud that yeah. you figured it yeah. out, and, well, yeah, and your laugh stems from you want to tell other people, "I got that. That's funny." Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, I'm stealing this from Jerry Seinfeld, but he describes a joke as then the setup and the punchline. It's two cliffs, and then there's this leap, and you say something, and then you say this, and the audience has to make the leap to put it together. They do some work, and I think that's what you're describing. It's like Oh, I figured this out. It made me laugh. I'm smart. But if you watch 99% of the comedy specials, there's no leap. Well, I don't watch them. By the way, I shouldn't say I didn't watch comedy specials. Somebody sent me a link. 1970, Craft Music Hall, Roast of Jack Benny. And the oh, first Johnny movie, Carson. Johnny Carson, correct. And the Lucille Ball? Was Lucille Ball? Uh, no, I don't think Lucille Ball was in it. I think it was all men's. Um, I haven't watched the whole thing, but the first speaker is Spiro Agnew. Wow. And he tells a great joke. I'm sure he didn't write it. He says, I'm not here to make fun of Jack Benny's, you know, stinginess or age. I just want to say that the I got a report on him from the Social Security Bureau. His Social Security number is one. Right. And I'm like, great joke. And Agnew delivers it. But I, you have to make the leap. You have to know that Social Security numbers are multiple digits. Right. And you have to know that Agnew then, Agnew then pleaded nullo contendere after that broadcast right. and was allowed to go home. Right. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, but no, you're right. But a movie, a TV show is like, the, is like that, too. There are things, if they tell you too much, it's a lecture like me right now as opposed to an interactive experience where you're where the guy comes in, you go, oh, I don't think he, he's up to no good. He's going to do something. What's he? He's not telling me. You know, you're participating. Now, movies are on television. People aren't going to theaters anymore. I'm certainly not. Does that change the writing? Because people, do people stare at a screen when they're home the same way they stare at it no. when they're in a theater? So they say don't. What is it? Don't uh, tell, indicate. Yeah, oh, you know, show, don't tell or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think TV is a lot of telling. 
because people, I mean, I know I'm guilty. I'm sitting there with my phone, putting my phone or going to the refrigerator or whatever. So there's less active concentration on TV than you're sitting in front of a big screen. So I think they have to make stuff clearer and more explicit. Okay. Mank. Mank. Oh, well. Now let me, let me, before I trust your taste. All right. Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. Fantastic. Gary Oldman is fantastic in it. He's great. The camera works great. The lighting's great. It's all great. But, but, and, but and I'll do respect to David Fincher, who is one of the best directors of all time. The script, which is written by his late father, needed a revise. It's a, like so many projects. The weak script lets you down. And, um, I, you know, this, of course, ruins my chance to work with David Fincher. <laughs> But um, I'm bad-mouthing his late father. But the script is about, a, a, you know, a drunken screenwriter who's pissed away his career and then goes on to write Citizen Kane, and, or co-write, you can argue, and redeem himself. Now, the thing with Citizen Kane is famous for Rosebud, which is the symbol of how... Charles Foster Kane was injured as a child and permanently ruined and became the monster that he became. Rosebud, for people who don't know, was the, the sled's clitoris. The sled had a clitoris. And, <laughs> and the sled was called Marion Davies, yes. Uh, but in any case... Tell people, explain to people in case they don't. All right, well, Rosebud is the sled, which is taken away from him as a young boy. And allegedly, and I don't know if this is true, that Mankiewicz, who was... Um, friendly, friendly with, with William Randolph Hearst. Absolutely. Upon which... Knew that, yep. Knew that that uh, that uh, Hearst's nickname for Marion Davis Clitoris, Clitoris was Rosebud. Now, whether this is true or not, it should be true. But in any case, Rosebud is the symbol of Charles Foster Kane's wound. Why, why he is the monster he is, and it's what makes us sympathize with him because we see he's a monster, but something bad happened. He was taken away from his parents. And has lost his beloved sled, and blah blah blah. Now, now wouldn't you have? Wouldn't you have get, been given? Wouldn't you have loved to have somebody take, take me away from your parents and <laughs> make you the heir to a fortune? The way well, John, isn't, it, isn't this what isn't this what you what, what your people do, Dave? They come and kidnap us. I mean, and by your people, I mean podcasts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we don't keep you though. We just need to make the monster. <laughs> <laughs> the shoe bread. Uh, look that up. Uh, but no. So the thing is, we give it. We, we give a darn about Charles Foster Kane because we know why he's injured. The thing is, we're watching Bank, and all we know is this guy's a drunk, and he's he's a jerk, and you know he's allegedly funny, but we never find out why he is this way. So there's no real reason to care about him. So what you've got is a movie about a guy most people have never heard of who, and the plot of the movie is he wants to get writing credit on a movie. Let's face it. Most people have never seen. So why do we most care? people haven't seen Citizen Kane? Yeah, David, most people have not seen Citizen Kane. I find that hard to believe. That's because you live in a igloo or whatever you and never get out. But no, um, uh, most people have not seen Citizen Kane. Most people have not seen most movies. There's so much product out there 
there's so much new stuff that you just, I just assume if, you know, if I had to get, well, your students, what have, what, what is, what do you, what do your students consider the classics when it comes to movies? Tarantino, Tarantino, Star Wars and Harry Potter. Now I do have, there are exceptions. There are students that are total wonks and have seen great stuff, but, oh, they also love Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson, Tarantino, and all of them have seen Harry Potter. They've also seen a lot of the Pixar. These are the ones that formed them. And and what what's legitimate in your estimation? Pixar? Ooh. Wes Anderson? Pixar is the, they've hit the formula too often. Um, but you know, there's definitely there's definitely genius there, lightning in the bottle originally. Harry Potter leaves me cold. Um, it always felt like like a Lego set version of a movie to me. But again, I didn't read the books as a child, so I don't have the emotional connection. Right. Well, they're, they're very well done for what they are, but they don't speak to me emotionally. And then Tarantino is a genius, which means occasionally he's brilliant. Other times he's detestable. And as Wynton Marcellus was saying of Louis Armstrong is that he's a genius and you have to go along with the genius even when he goes to a place you hate because he's the genius and you'll learn something. Right, right. So, well, and, you know, they, they have the great books. Mm-hmm. Are we getting to a point where there, there's a canon of great yeah. movies? Like, sure. Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Goodfellas. Uh, Godfather's definitely the canon. Uh, Goodfellas probably is. And, and can uh, you do story analysis on Godfather 2? Yeah, I could. I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but it's, um, why do you want me to? Well, I, I often found, I, I, Godfather 2, I've seen it. I'm not making this up. I, at least a hundred times? At least. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, but it's not a clear story, but there's no, a hero, but there's a hero's journey yeah, the young, the young Don Corleone has a hero's journey in that, definitely. Uh, you know, the, but uh, Michael is has an anti-hero. Yes, it doesn't absolutely. end well, does it? No, no. Well, so is that a, so? What? Yeah. How do you do story analysis? I don't know. I'd have to look at it again. But the thing is, the hero can if it's a, if you think of the Godfather as a tragedy, the journey is from. In like, say, in the original, let's stick to the original because it's clear in my mind, he starts as a man who is against corruption and doesn't want to be with his family. And then he goes to the dark side. It ends the and and as the original Godfather, it really is about Al Pacino. He's the hero in that story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Though Not, not analysis, Marlon Brando. Well, it's funny. Um, Coppola says that it's a film about succession and that the first part of the film is about... Brando, because he's the Don. The second part is really about Sonny. And the third part is really about Michael. So, but Michael is the one who changes. He is the overall, and again, let's say protagonist, not hero, of that film. Is it conceivable that Francis Ford Coppola knows less about movie making than, say, you? I'm being serious. Is it? <laughs> no. That, no. That if, that... Which dog is that? That's Jack. Apparently a neighbor has had the nerve to walk by. So apologies. <laughs> I made you get Jack. 
You did. You did. You, you urged me. You, you, you were accomplice to my crime. We, it's been one of the happiest decisions of my life. Yeah, we, they, were, they were giving away dogs. <laughs> and and said, that one looks delicious, guy. I, no, I said to you, you got to get yeah. this dog. You will never find a dog cuter. Oh, no. He's dog. a sweetie. But I He's do a... that whenever there are, like whenever the ASPCA is, you know, they'll be outside with cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. I can talk people into adopting dogs. I was pretty good, right? Yeah, you're very good. You didn't. You had. A, you had. A, you had a willing accomplice. I was. Uh, I was ready to be sold. I'd walk I. I act for... like a matchmaker, and I. <laughs> and people think I'm. I'm Dolly. There is Professor uh-huh. Harvey J.K. Guy well, Nicolucci. Let's do this more well, often. Thanks for having me, David. Thank. Do you? Uh, do you see Paul Dooley at all? No, well, I don't see anyone. It's the COVID, remember? You should have him teach one of your classes. Uh, you know, I should have him online for that. You're right. That would be a, that's a fantastic. I had him guest at NYU once, so I should bring him back, along with his beautiful wife. What uh, was his name? Winnie. Eluding me. Winnie, Winnie. Yes. Wicked. I would love to have him. She wrote Wicked. I would love to have him both. Well, I miss all, all your hair. I miss all the, the fun that we used to have back in L.A. doing uh, the, the stuff we do. Thank you, Guy. Uh, Hopefully I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Okay, thank you. We'll be back with Professor Harvey J.K., but I want to remind everybody that this Saturday night, the genius Martha Previtt, you know her as the voice of Nancy Pelosi, Melania Trump, Martha Stewart. She takes on diabetes, plus she goes toe-to-toe with Robert Smigel and Rick Overton. In addition, FBI informant Jim Earl. All the proceeds go towards Diabetic Fury. It's pay what you want. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the pay-per-view tab. It'll take you to our Eventbrite page. And it's pay what you want. And there are various tiers. There's art. There are all these funny things, shard outs, you know the drill. Come see us the night before Valentine's Day. Spend Valentine's Day with us. We will be back with Professor Harvey J.K. Harvey J.K., he's got a lot to say about Thomas Paine. And FDR St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go Harvey J.K. is on the show today Harvey J.K. J.K. wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. Won't take a sabbatical. 
St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. I hope he's going to be at Office Hours Friday night. Please welcome the author of Take Hold of Our History, FDR on Democracy, Professor Harvey J.K. Also, also with us, also with us is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, Alan Minsky. You have, to, you have to unmute yourself, Professor Harvey J.K. I love having, I love, this is a new thing, the two of you talking. And, and I booked you guys last, so we have plenty of time. Great. Nothing to talk about. It's been I know, I know. Thank goodness Jamie Raskin quoted Thomas Paine in closing the uh, Democrats' case for, in, for impeachment. What did he say? Yeah, it was actually, actually, it was, I was impressed. So, but I'm noticing in the chat. That's why I'm bringing it up. He had, he had referred to pain along the way. I, I can't remember if it was the first day or the second day. And I thought, well, that's great, you know. And it may even be possible that he learned about Thomas Paine from his, maybe Alan remembers his father was Marcus Raskin, who was, okay, I, yes. right? Right. Right. And, um, Anyhow, but in closing, he he did something which is is actually kind of interesting. He opened his closure, you know, the last section with uh, a reference to common sense, Paine's revolutionary pamphlet. The way he handled it wasn't terribly insightful, but that's beside the point. The fact is, he referred to it. He used Thomas Paine's name, and then he shifted gears and and actually made it clear. And I was concerned he wasn't going to make it clear that it was actually in a in another pamphlet following Common Sense, which came at the very end of '76, when Washington's troops had retreated across New Jersey to uh, cross the Delaware to take refuge in Pennsylvania, but then returned to win the Battle of Trenton. But anyhow, what happened was that Payne began writing the pamphlet, the first of what would be 13 pamphlets known as the Crisis Papers. And uh, it opens with those you know, famous lines, uh, these are the times that try men's souls. Raskin made it, these are the times that try men's and women's souls. And he then quoted at length that paragraph, which is really, it, 
it was something. And it was great to hear. And it was really nice because I wasn't tuning in today as much as I had the other days. So I was getting this sort of flood of emails and texts. And, and one of them was really cute. A guy I know in Ohio who uh, works with Rick Smith on, for, to promote his radio show had this very cute sort of tweet that said, Oh, I, I can only imagine what Harvey K is doing on hearing Jamie Raskin. And it was this baby, you know, more toddler who was like going crazy. And, right. So it was kind of cute. Did, 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 he quote, did he quote Thomas Paine as a preemptive strike against the people who took the Capitol because they consider themselves revolutionaries in the, in the, in the tradition of Thomas Paine? They, you know, yeah. they, they yeah, said 1776. Really great question. Very, very good question. And I thought about that, too. So I'm glad you raised that because I wouldn't have naturally gone to it. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think that he went back to the, you know, the man who turned the rebellion into a revolution, but and did so. Actually, and I think he could have, that's where I thought he could have been a bit stronger, Raskin, and making it very clear that Payne's common sense was a call for, for democracy. And that in common sense, this is asking a bit much, Payne actually warned against mob violence that if that if Americans didn't act quickly to create an independent America with a democratic Republican constitution, they would get mob violence. And out of that mob violence, a dictator would emerge who would turn himself into into a king. Right. Uh, based on an Italian uh, Italian incidents he was referring to he actually has a, it's one of the few footnotes that he has in the in the pamphlet. So but in any case, I think you're right. I think he did you know, finish with Thomas Paine, which is also funny if he, if that's what he was afraid of, because as I've told you, you and I went through Thomas Paine at length, I think about a year and a half ago. And it's the case that, um, let me get, I want to put the, I want to get this straight, that, um, that for 200 and, I'm trying to do my math in this, anyhow, for 220, 200 years at least, conservatives and decidedly reactionaries despised Thomas Paine's memory and did everything they could to suppress his memory. And then all of a sudden, then in the wake of Ronald Reagan's use of Paine, especially on the campaign trail of 1980 and his, and his citing his quoting of Paine as well as Roosevelt and Lincoln in his acceptance speech of the Republican convention of 1980. Um, in the wake of that conservatives started to pay a little more attention to Payne's words and, but they limit themselves to a very select few at the beginning of common sense. Cause they don't want to talk about democracy. They just want to talk about government as a necessary evil. So it's interesting that in these last couple of decades, conservatives have made more of Thomas Paine than in fact, progressives and socialists have. So, good for for raskin to realize that this would be a great moment if you like to you know once again right. have at least progressives lay claim to tom Shane. sorry anyhow that's yeah let me i'll bring alan into this question because it's something i'm wrestling with i love history i'm fascinated by history i have a resistance to the idea that history is prologue and that the American people have a character rooted in history, and you can look at the Civil War and the Revolutionary War and our founding to explain where we're at right now. I have a resistance to that. And yet, if you look at the Civil War, 
it's still being played out in America. The, the, the old confederacy, the racism, the idea of secession, states' rights. Uh, we can't escape our past. Well, you know, um, two things there I want to say. Um, I was just, uh, while you were talking about Jamie, I was at the Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, Progressive Strategy Summit in 2019. I just went and found the video. I, of course, haven't gone through it yet. But if my recollection is correct, Jamie gave a talk there, which is all about Tom Paine. Really? Yeah. And I should yeah. mention that Alan, Alan is the executive producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. And Jamie Raskin was one of the original Nader's Raiders. Yeah, Jamie's a great Jamie's a great guy, and he's so humble. He's up there giving this great speech, and time is everybody only gets so much time. They were pretty strict about it. Sheila, I think Sheila Jackson Lee had spoken right before him, and he just stopped. He said, oh, "I'm okay. That's it. I'm just gonna stop." But it was a great talk. It was about Tom Payne. He's a really nice guy, actually. And of course, he's gone through an incredibly difficult, yeah. incredible difficult time. Um, as for history repeating itself, not uh, necessarily not, repeating uh, itself. Anderson, 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 yeah. Anderson, that, I didn't mean to say that. Um, I mean, just the continuum there around, um, you know, the Civil War, especially. I mean, look, you know, anybody who looks at the electoral map of the United States of America um, and, and how people have been voting, the Republican Party has been anchored in the Confederacy since Nixon's Southern strategy. Some hiccups there with Jimmy Carter and then Bill Clinton won some Southern states in 92 as a governor of Arkansas. Before, before they figured him out <laughs> as just a, another, uh, you know, coastal elite. And, um, and the rejection of politics that aren't Confederate in the Confederacy among white people, you know, you know we're seeing some cracks in the edifice right now, um, you know, and, and states like Virginia are changing, North Carolina, Georgia. Um, and I think, I think these, are, these are due to, you know, economic, macroeconomic, macrocultural trends, as you know, cities like Charlotte become very large, they become one major, major contemporary um, metropolitan areas, and of course Atlanta especially, and that's transforming the political culture of Georgia. And hopefully, the Confederacy will go out from there. But I mean, that's certainly been such a that's been a constant in American history since the starting of the country. And of course, it gets really solidified with the Confederacy and and um, you know, you know, we we and I don't know Harvey really can talk to this a thousand times better than I can. I was I was a history major, but that was a long time ago, and um, you know, in 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 Southern white culture, um, you know, there's a lot of the kind of uh, deep seated resentment of being oppressed by the North that has you know provided this kind of cultural glue, and I again I don't know that much about Southern white culture. Uh, I don't have yeah, never really felt comfortable uh, inside you know conservative Southern white culture. And, um, but my sense of it is, is that, uh, and I have once spoke to a friend, she was from Western Virginia, way, way, way Western Virginia. So uh, basically Appalachia. And there was a football game that was on. It was like Ohio State versus Tennessee. And she didn't give a damn about football, but she was rooting for Tennessee. And I asked why. You always vote for the team from below the Mason-Dixon line against the teams from the North. And she was, you know, very cool kid, very non-racist kid, but knee-jerk reaction. You know, this is this is solidarity. This is Southern white solidarity. Um, and it's racist to the hilt. And don't you know, there's no there's no way of like this papering over that fact. I had a friend who moved from St. Louis where I grew up down to Macon, Georgia. And St. Louis is a pretty damn racist place, but he could not stay in Macon, Georgia. He found the white culture. There he was a white guy just 
absolutely suffocatingly, blindingly racist and bigoted. And that was in the 1980s. So I, I'm going to apologize. To, did you want to say something, Professor? Yeah, I, 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 I like to be hopeful, but it's also the case, even as the South develops these sort of areas that may well transform the state, and I think George is an interesting case, I've also worried over the long haul, the degree to which Wisconsin and parts yeah. of Michigan and so on have, have actually right. been dixified. Yes, absolutely. Yes, stars and bars, pickup truck culture, gun culture. It really has a lot of overlap with Southern white culture. Yeah. You know, they did a, a study in the Washington Post of the men and women who were arrested for taking over the Capitol. And you had asked Professor Kay who these people were. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking for the story because it's very interesting. Did you see the stories in the Washington Post? No, I, and, and, and I get the post online, I, but I haven't had a chance to look at it a lot this week. Uh, they, the ones who were arrested all had financial difficulty, but they were not... Poor. I think I saw a piece of it. Yeah. Let me, let me give you the. the yeah, I'll go ahead. Sixty percent of the people charged in the Capitol riots have had financial troubles. Eighteen percent went bankrupt, including the woman who flew in on a private jet. The, the realtor, <laughs> she was bankrupt. Oh, God. Sorry, and, I got to laugh at that one. I know, and and I said earlier on the show, you know, I called it right yeah. after it happened, that these people all had financial difficulty. People were saying to me, these weren't poor white people. These were upper middle class, yeah. successful white people. And I kept saying, no, be, th these are white people who are, you know, deeply in debt. Uh, and the, the Proud Boy guy, Dominic Pizzola, has $40,000 in unpaid taxes. So um, the they interviewed in the Washington Post a, a political science professor, Cynthia Miller Idris. She runs the Polarization and Extremism Research Innovation Lab at American University. And she said that in Germany, they found in 2011 that the right-wing extremists also had financial problems, but identified as upper middle class. That so it is financial. It's it's losing what you thought you had. At least these people who gravitate to authoritarian regimes. These are people who. But there was nothing in the post piece that actually could speak to the class of these people, only that they had financial difficulties, right? Uh, they, they, uh, Pippa Norris, a political science professor from Harvard University, has studied radical political movements. And she says this fits with middle and upper middle class positions that were being threatened back in the 1950s that spawned right-wing extremists like the John Birch Society. You weren't finding, the John Birch Society didn't 
rise out of poverty. Right. Absolutely. Right. You know, Bill Buckley and that conservative, they disowned the John Birch Society eventually. But that racism that we saw in the 50s was not necessarily born out of abject white poverty. Yeah, well, I doubt it was... I doubt it was not a lot of whites were going through a great deal of financial strain in the in the fifties. Right, but then Martin Luther exactly. King got into trouble for pointing out that that black people and white people, uh, the poor people's march to to have it be non denominational. Late sixties, yeah, yeah, that where where it's and have the the role anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, financial difficulties is interesting. Too many people might project into that sort of people who didn't have more than you know that study that was done in the last couple of years that a, a crisis, a financial crisis demanding more than four hundred dollars would be devastating to the you know this incredible was it the majority of Americans mm-hmm. or something like that. And um, but of course that's that's different than to say financial difficulties. I mean, See, Madoff, a, Mad, Mad, Madoff had financial difficulties, too, ultimately. Right. Well, I do think it's interesting you bring up a Ponzi scheme. There's some, Alan, you know all about Ponzi schemes. You and I ran one back in the 80s. We did pretty well. Uh, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't have mentioned that. Franchises, you know, <laughs> what? I'm sorry? Yeah, we own some baseball teams here and there, you know, David and I, you know. There's a psychological trick being played especially on the, the men and women who seize the capital, they are losing ground. They are in debt, but they're working. And they're confused. They don't know if they're poor or broke. And they're offered credit cards. And, the, you know, prosperity is right around the corner. So they don't identify with who they really are, which is poor. They're poor. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's important to have um, class solidarity with working class people if you're on the left. But these and people I didn't think, know they were. The point I'm making is they've not, played not a, they've played a trick. They've played people. a trick on these people. They're poor. Oh, there's no no excusing hatred and race hatred and um, people don't know they're poor anymore. Some people that, don't. Look, I, I grew up in St. Louis, and um, there is no doubt that huge swath of Middle America at the at the end of the fifties into the sixties, halfway through the sixties at least, these were people thought they were living in, in the most prosperous country in the world. And it was only going to get better. And if you were really white, since that, if you were white, heterosexual and married, it, was, it also was probably the majority portion of the population. These people were if previous generations, you know, they were obviously the beneficiaries to a degree of white supremacy and the social arrangements they're in. Okay. But since the sixties and really since the seventies, um, those that huge geographic expanse in the middle of the country has basically been a society in decline. The trends have not been upward and they really haven't even been steady. Um, in even the metropolitan area that I grew up in, which has 
great number of assets and a lot of wealth in it still, a tremendous amount. Um, you, you have uh, no and the African American community. You, you know, people, the people who go to college from from St. Louis, Missouri, tend not to stay in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, the African American community was doing better. There was more yes. home ownership. The the, yeah. the 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 last Jamie Dimon, who created the the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, that uh, he's now meeting with. Biden to give a stamp of approval on the stimulus well, the, package. The, the, but, but I'm saying that, that, you know, there is, there are grounds for resenting um, from the white working class, resenting, you know, quote unquote, coastal elites, where you see a reorganization of the society that served other geographic regions of the country with no real concern for the welfare of the population in middle America. I can relate to that as somebody who grew up in the region. Um, I think their answers about it are really, really wrongheaded. Um, and as bad as the Democratic Party been, has been, it's been completely lousy and really has abandoned the hell out of um, the working class in general. It hasn't been as bad as the Republican Party. So turning to the Republican Party is even more inane. Um, but, you know, there's, you know, I think we saw some traction, especially that the 2016 Sanders campaign had there. And now that, you know, Biden is at least hinting at uh, the possibility of progressive economic policy coming out of the federal government. Uh, I think it's really, really important for progressives and people on the left to try to force that and try to really produce something that's good for a declining middle class wherever they're geographically located, you know, whatever their ethnicity, and also for the working class everywhere. And if that happens, then we as progressives on the left can recreate the kind of bonds that the Democratic Party built in an era that Harvey J.K. studied so well in the 1930s and 40s. Um, it's just, you know, I do think we are in a very transitional moment in our in our history, not just because of pan- the pandemic and the economic crisis, but also because of Trump and now we're post-Trump. And, uh, you know, either the Democratic Party is going to step up and respond to it in some kind of meaningfully positive way, or, yeah, we're going to, I mean, <laughs> we can start talking about whether we think Trump is going to run for president in 2024. And if the Democrats don't really respond to, I mean, they really have been handed a lot of aces here in terms of, you know, political possibility to succeed. And if they do not win the next set of hands, uh, we're, we're going to see something pretty fierce and ugly coming back, back at us, I think. I agree. The The intransigence of the Trump support, it's baffling. You, If you're a Republican and you vote for the trial, your state party condemns you. Sass, Cassidy... They pay a price for for even asking for an impeachment trial. What what did you see, Professor Kay, when you watched the videos of the insurrection? How horrible was it? I mean, you, you in, the, yeah, well, you in know, the safety of yeah. your own home, watching that through you have a month now to look. What was that? You know, let me put it. I'm going to take the question, but I want to frame it in a certain way. I thought the Democrats were actually, forget to break down Republican Democrat for a minute. I thought the Democrats are going out on a, on a limb to try to make the case that, that what happened that day specifically was because of what Donald Trump said at any given time. Thank you for saying this. Cause I, I really thought it was, I actually thought it was going to be, I, I didn't think they could, make the case effectively. Uh, I just didn't. 
Do you um, think that it was? But what, so what I was going to say is, but having watched the arguments made, especially Raskin, I mean, he, I think his was the most effective moments, but not the only ones. And then to see the, the videos, they constructed an absolutely flawless narrative by going back. They could have gone even further back, but they went back really to just this campaign year. And laid it out the degree to which it was, and, and in fact, we look. I think you'll remember. I never thought that Donald Trump was stupid, ever. Okay, outrageous, yes, but I always thought he had incredible political savvy, and I think that 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 he had some advisors who who may have wanted to control him more, but that they really knew what they were doing, and. For, and, we, and you'll agree, I think, that if there wasn't a pandemic, we'd be seeing another four years of Donald Trump. Who knows how many years we'd be seeing of Donald Trump. <laughs> and the Democrats really did overcome their sense that Donald Trump might in any way be a, a fool or an idiot. And they laid it out so effectively. The lies, the calling forth of things, and then ultimately the directions and what needed to be done. And and ultimately, he, where he got really anxious, Trump, and sort of overplayed his hand, probably, of course, was in inciting them to want to hang Pence. Okay? I mean, that, that's... I'm not saying that that's going to cost him in this trial, but I do think it, it was at that point that he... Oh, not to mention, it was just remarkable. They knew what he was doing, the time in which he was doing things, as the riot inside the Capitol building unfolded. I mean, it was a really effective argument. And I, I was, I mean, if I was on the jury, there would be no dissuading me. <laughs> no, no dissuading me whatsoever. It, it is incredible. Uh, you have audio of, of uh, in the middle of the insurrection where they're hiding Giuliani on the phone, trying to <laughs> slow down the, the count. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Contragate, where Reagan went on national television and said, you know, six months ago I told you I didn't sell arms, I didn't trade arms for hostages yeah. and give the money to the Contras. And, uh, but looking back, I now know that uh, that wasn't true. But in my heart, I still believe it's true. And people <laughs> looked at him and go, well, he's an effing idiot. And, and, and we he, let him and off. He clearly, he, by that time, he clearly was losing it and was scripted by Nancy and a crew of people. So people said, he's an effing idiot, let it, let it go. And there's a part of me, when I read about Trump going back to the Oval Office and watching the insurrection on television, and he doesn't like the way they're dressed, and he thinks, isn't this great? There's this part of me that goes, well, of course, that's who... That's what did you think he was? This, he's an idiot. He's a sociopath. He's yeah, but I mean, it really was. I mean, he was getting calls by by even his allies asking him to call off the mob, and he didn't do it. And it's it it's astonishing that these. Well, look, I mean, I can't believe I'm going to quote Hillary Clinton, and I did it today because it was just. Too, it was so easy to do so in a tweet. I mean, she said, look, the co-conspirators are, are in the jury, right? Mm -hmm. 
And but he, even the co-conspirators were calling him at times during that to call him off. And he didn't act. He didn't move. Right. Just didn't move. Didn't budge to make anything of it. Um, I know. I mean, it, what, just, what was I, I, I apologize to my audience. because I've been asking this the entire show. I have been watching the videos and I've been reading up on this and I cannot figure out what that was. What what that was on January 6th. What, what the events were. Yeah, what yeah, what what we know that Giuliani's saying trial by combat incited them. We know that Trump's saying, I'll march with you, I'll be there. We know that in a in a criminal trial, he would be held accountable for that that riot. That being said, was was there a plan? Did did Giuliani, who we know is is a a drunk, Trump is a, a sociopath. Was there a plan to take the Capitol? And if there was a plan, they didn't they, have they, look. They wanted to stop the final, you know, the final certification. Is that what it's called? The final count. Yeah. They wanted to do it. But there are other I mean, ways to, in other words, if you have the executive. Well, that may be the case, but the point is this. There could be no other purpose for it. There was no other purpose for it. I mean, okay? is it, it could he, it? He, he made it, they wanted those guy, people in D.C. He directed them where to, to march towards. Okay, I mean, it was classic, absolutely classic. And I know a lot of people on my left saying, oh, you know, it wasn't fascist, wasn't it? It sure as fucking hell was. Okay, I, I agree. They knew but... exactly what they were doing. They've been doing it for months in preparation for this possibility. And when he and when he couldn't look and when he couldn't make it work, when he called the, the attorney, not the was it the attorney's attorney general of Georgia? What, who was it? Rapsenberger, the secretary of state, I believe. Secretary of state. When he couldn't make that work, he could then try. I mean, he, every single step was a fairly clear in a clear direction. We're going to literally throw out this election. I won. I mean, you know, right. Whether we want to call it generically fascist or not, here's what I would say. Donald Trump himself has a fascist personality, period. Is he a fascist ideologically? I, don't, I, I mean, who cares? Right. The fact is the Republican Party, this is what people have to get into their heads. The Republican Party have become the closest thing in American modern history. Right. Okay. To, to, and by the way, fascism doesn't reappear in the same guise every time. Right. And what the Republican Party has become is clearly, after years of conservatives wanting to, if you like, keep democracy from growing, they've now gotten to the point where they don't even care if they have it. They don't want it. They just right. don't want it. And right yeah. now in state capitals around the country, when the Republicans are in control, they are calculating how to block even more votes to suppress more votes. Right, but you have a situation where even, you know, look, I think if Mitch McConnell was in charge of the Democratic Party right now and you had HR1 and S1 on the docket, he could get the support. I mean, so this is an inversion here. Mitch McConnell is 
a, a sort of mainstream Democrat, but he's in Chuck Schumer's position, and he had his uh, his tactical wherewithal, which he's quite a genius at. He would find a way to get that bill through, however he could get it through, and even if that meant ending the filibuster, he would get it through. Yeah, because the Democratic Party is so—I mean, they do not actually. There is something still inside the mainstream Democratic Party as a legacy from the years of being, um, uh, you know, on bended knee to Reaganism, which is what Clintonism was. Yeah, you were gonna, it's a central logic of, of Reaganism you were going to accept. And for years, by the way, you know, the flag, for instance, was owned by the Republican Party. And the Democratic Party accepted, you just accepted. They had no backbone. They wouldn't fight for what they claimed they stood for. And uh, they were not the patriotic party, right? And and there's still enough of that left that they can't. They're not. They're going to fail at stalling the further erosion of democracy in these 28 states where the Republicans are going to be able to achieve something through the state legislative process to further erode democracy because they can't get Cinema and Mansion to go along with passing uh, the For the People Act, which would undermine these Republican efforts. They would until they were challenged in the courts end them and they can't get it through. It would be an overwhelming. uh, uh, I still don't know if they'll, you know, could they still lose the midterm elections? Yes. But if they were able to get H.R. one through and S one through the prospects of the Republican Party winning any presidential elections in the near future would be severely limited. Right. And that's very significant. Right. You know, I just I just thought of something. I just want to point out that. In 1964, when Barry Goldwater won the Republican nomination and the far right took possession of the Republican Party, at least at that moment, um, there was a famous line, you know, that, that famous statement he made, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And I, I will tell you that that was a, an adaptation of words of Thomas Paine in a lesser known pamphlet back in Europe. And in, in what Paine had said, written was back in the 1780s or 90s, he said, um, moderation in temper is always a virtue. Moderation in principle is always a vice. And a guy named Harry Jaffa, who, in case people have any, you know, he, who was one of the West Coast, he is literally, he was the father of the West Coast Straussians, as they're called, Leo Strauss. And it's all built around the Claremont Institute, a very right-wing sort of, uh, uh, let's put it this way, hardcore. a place yeah. of idea. What's that? Hardcore. Yeah. Hardcore. Thank you. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to exaggerate hard. Exactly. Hardcore. And um, he wrote that he, he got called in because the Goldwater original speech was bad. So they asked Jaffa, who was a, who was a pretty smart political scientist. Could he rewrite the speech? And he, and I interviewed him. Um, and he, he said to me, look, I, I just went to Bartlett's quote, because I asked him, did you actually read much of Thomas Paine? He said, well, I read a lot of Thomas Paine, but I hadn't read those lines. I went to Bartlett's quotations. And I actually, I, I, and as a consequence, I actually bought myself a Bartlett's quotations, okay, back, back when I was doing the work. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and it was, he took it from there, and he just, because he must have looked under, like, extremism or something like that, whatever right. it was. And, and he plugged it in. It became, it became the most important. I mean, it's still quoted, you might say. And in fact, in its own bizarre, perverse way, it was that kind of prophetic remark, which we witnessed that day 
that day at the Capitol. But here's the, and maybe, maybe, I mean, you know, my fantasy is Jamie Raskin read my book, which reveals how that line came to be. And Raskin said, well, I'm going to turn this, I'm going to turn this around, you know. I, I don't get to talk to the likes of Raskin or Bernie or AOC and those, but, you know, I imagine. Oh, Jamie, Jamie would love you. Um, the um, I got to say, you are, you know you are in the presence of a great left progressive mind when the person quotes Hillary Clinton and Barry Goldwater and the person's making great progressive points. So there we go, <laughs> Harvey J.K. Yeah, that, that's why he gets the, that's why he gets the theme song and we don't. That's you guys, I love you guys. You guys are great. So the fascist playbook. We're going to sleep tonight. The fascist playbook <laughs> is you float these trial balloons, and you. It may not work today, but it might work next week. In other words, Trump, the day that he spoke, January six, he was floating the idea of go out there. He didn't think. Mike Pence would be hanging from a tree, right? That wasn't, he was just seeing, right? Did he want Mike Pence to hang from a tree? Think about it this way. Consider this. This is the same man who took out newspaper ads in hopes that he could persuade the New York City, literally, to stage a lynching of those Central Park kids. Right? I mean, what'd you say? I mean, that's what he was at. Look. What did he want to do? He want he, it was essentially an effort at a lynch mob. That's what he did to those kids. Okay. Well, put it together. This is a man you you said soci- sociopath. Okay. We're dealing with a guy who couldn't give a damn. Look, in his campaign, he said, "I go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone." Okay. By the way, I'm hoping they discover that he once did that and could literally try him for that. Right. You know, he actually was in a bloodlust mood at the time, too, because he was executing people pretty. Uh, yeah. right. Solid, Thank you. Beat, uh, boy, yeah. I, I should have said, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He had blood on it. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It was interesting. I, what I thought was smart. I've been watching all those videos that the Democrats put together, and they made it a point of showing the anti-police mentality which i thought was smart to, to show how these people hate the cops yeah now they hate law enforcement that yeah how does this uh before you guys go how does this we're not going to see a 15 dollar minimum wage correct you're right. I was on, but I was on a call the other day with a with a great activist, Larry Cohn, former head of CWA. And um, what is CWA? Know, Communications Workers of America. Workers of America. Um, and um, and he's also somebody who really just does unbelievably great work trying to lift progressive forces within the Democratic Party. The guy's just a great progressive organizer. And and you know he was pretty. He was he was. He was he was livid as well. He should be, and as well, all of us should be who who want to care about people who do a day's work and then find themselves in not just poverty, but a poverty level where they, you couldn't live off of it or get any housing in a major metropolitan area. And the truth of it is, is this is this is just all for show. I mean, I love what Pramila did in forcing fifteen dollar minimum wage to still be in the package 
So we're going to have this debate at least, but nobody believes, you know, Manchin has said straight up, he won't go past $11 an hour. The governor uh, the Republican governor of his own state in West Virginia is opposing him saying he's for $15 minimum wage. But, um, I mean, if we can get that through, I will be surprised. So it's very unlikely. And um, there are a whole bunch of other things, too, where there, where it's almost just about as bad as nothing more than virtue signaling is what we're getting. They I mean, seem about, to be, I, yeah. I seem to be hearing on MSNBC that they're going big. They're going big. Well, I judge Biden by what he does, not what MSNBC says. I judge Biden by what he does, not what he says. I, Can I tell you, I think they're going to go big, but not on the ways what we might want. In other words, they're, they'll go big on the budget stuff. The question is, where does that money go? And what other kinds of things are they going to go big on? I mean, going to $15 an hour, especially if it's going to be over the course of, what, five years, is not even going big. Right? Okay. We, we can all accept that. $15 an hour is not going big. I mean, that's... I agree a little bit, and I'm hoping they go big on infrastructure, and I'm going to push and push with everything I can with all the allies PDA has to try to have them and force them to go big. But why is it $1,400, not $2,000? If people complain about the fact that it's not means-tested, you say, great, you know what we do? We have fucking progressive tax. Yeah, That's why we have a progressive tax. And it is such a losing political hand, because guess what? Americans out in the middle of the country and across the whole country, everywhere in the country, every nook and cranny of it. Guess what the most popular thing is imaginable? $2,000 checks and not yeah, $1,400. The, 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 and by the way, if, if I'm, not, I'm sure I've said this many times. When Thomas Paine proposed Social Security, one of the things that he actually argued. FDR. In his What's that? You're confusing your... No, uh, Thomas Paine, when he first proposed Thomas Social Thomas Paine Security. proposed Social Security? Yeah, in 1790s, it's agrarian justice. You look on the Social Security website, unless Trump had it removed, they, Paine was the godfather of Social Security. And, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that um, Wat, not Wat, Yang, the Yang gang made such a big deal that, he was, that Yang was really just drawing on Thomas Paine for the UBI. Hmm. So Paine, but Paine said that the only way this can work is everyone must receive these payments, must receive the payments. And he said, you cannot return away the repayment. You can, you, the payment, you, you have to accept it. That way it can never be seen as a charity. If you then want to donate it or give it back, you can, but you must receive it. Similarly, it's essential, by the way, that everyone receive these payments. And then, you te- as Alan just said, it's, why, why are the Democrats so utterly unimaginative to not turn around and say, we're going to ta- we'll tax, and if you make over a certain amount, we'll be getting it back anyhow. That's what for Paulson... The sake of democratic equality, we are going to give it to everyone. Not to mention the fact we don't have to go through all the goddamn expenditure of figuring out who's eligible and who's not eligible. That was what I mean, uh, they did in 2008, what Paulson did with the banks. When he saved them, you're all taking the money. Right. He right. did. No, he did. Right. I know. I'm he forced them. And some of us, we don't need it. You're taking it. You're all taking this money equally. Let's right. we he, have. He read his Thomas Paine, I guess. Yeah. Sean Hayes, you have a question? And then we'll get to Rodrigo. I see he has a question. Yeah. Uh, Alan, um, Jimmy Dore apparently is no longer on KPFK. Do you happen to know why? 
Yes, I communicated with Jimmy. I happened to be in my car on the day that I heard Jimmy sign off. I don't go into my car very often. I go very few errands, very rarely leave my house. Happened to be in my car, turned on KPFK. Always uh, do enjoy listening to Jimmy, and he signed off. He said uh, very nice things about me. I was was very touched by that. And uh, so I got home and I texted him and asked him what's up. He took me a couple, took a couple days to come back. I heard all the rumors that he was, you know, kicked off for this or that reason. No, what it was, and this was something that goes back to when Jimmy started. It was always very tough for Jimmy to edit his show for radio because there were so many swear words. And he said it just become so burdensome. So maybe there were even more swear words than there were in the past. And he decided to um, just no longer pursue a radio show anywhere because of the burdensomeness of clearly now producing it where the, maybe the primary uh, product was no longer the radio show, all the free-flowing expletives. It was very difficult for him. This is how he explained it to me. Very difficult for him to edit them out. Uh, he, he would miss them occasionally, and I would have to, like, slap Jimmy on the wrist, by the way. Um, and uh, Especially Jimmy, since KPFK and Pacifica was responsible for the famous yeah yeah the seven carlin, words the george seven carlin. words that george carlin said yeah but that's what jimmy told me so you know and um yeah that, that was the explanation he gave me mm-hmm. yeah okay i just wondered if that had anything to do with the all the infighting that never seems to end and only gets worse there <laughs> yeah. uh, and apparently not and also uh, you know the rumors were of course that he was getting punished for political reasons and none of that is true Okay, thank you. It was self-censorship. He he canceled himself. That's how bad the cancel culture is. He (laughs) self-canceled. Yeah, it's a shame, too, because it's, um, you know, um, you know, I know we think everybody's just listening to podcasts and on platforms like the currently the David Feldman show. But uh, over there, radio is still even in the pandemic and after the pandemic, when people are driving more, it gets a lot of people and it reaches a very broad slice of society, too as opposed to something that's a little bit more just consumed by the professional managerial class or with their or wannabe professional managerial radio class. radio was killed by the pal memo they the, the right wing took over radio including npr uh, there are actually people who think that that extended radio's influence but um you know, um, for the right you know, radio, 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 actually, for, this is really a tangent here, but radio, of course, this is something I've written about and thought a lot about, um, actually, with the decline of newspapers and the and the marginalization of the three network news shows and the the, the news cable platforms uh, being dominated by Fox and MSNBC with their with their particular political angles, um, NPR, which I'm not the hugest fan of has, and I think everybody will realize this is the case, has really risen in stature in terms of its place in American media. You know, when NPR and those little news clips report on something, it's it's right up there with the New York Times as sort of a source of record. That was not true 20 years ago. So radio has proven strangely resilient. I disagree. NPR is, corp- is corporate owned and they run ads. Yeah, so the New York Times was always a mouthpiece for U.S. foreign policy, and it's it was the paper of record. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, within- the, the the Pacifica doesn't run ads, and money doesn't belong in politics. Doesn't belong. Pacifica, in- had, Pacifica had a very tough two decades these past two decades, and there was a lot of infighting. And for all the glories of Pacifica that happened 
from 1949 to 2000, there never was any show that was even remotely as popular off of Pacifica as Democracy Now. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, and, and she so does it, it, it had it had its great successes in the 2000s. When we the American people have to be taught this. When you take corporate money, when you take corporate underwriting, you are compromised. You make decisions accordingly. You are not free to tell the truth. Talk to have Washington, excuse me for one second, have Washington Post people on. And the Washington Post is a great paper. However, you don't, you're not going to get them to trash the homunculus Jeff Bezos. You're not going to get anybody from the Washington Post to really talk about Amazon and Bessemer, Alabama. And the, 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 the hit piece after hit piece on Bernie Sanders during his both of his right. campaigns. So anytime you're getting money from the plutocrats or the corporations, you are by definition compromised and not to be trusted. Period. Here's the thing, too. I'm going to say this, too, about Pacifica. I'm, I'm sorry that my the, the guy who hates me so much is apparently not in the chat. But when you look at Occupy and you look at Sanders, I mean, you look at Trump and you had Fox News and, and it sort of fed in the, the Tea Party and it fed into Trump. Occupy spread like wildfire across this country. There was only one media outlet in the country at that time that was saying the things. So how, are, how is this getting into people's consciousness? I mean, it's a shared awareness of the reality of the world that they're living in. But, you know, Pacifica and that kind of program, you know, it, it reached people and it resonated with people. People loved it. People shared the ideas they heard there. Democracy Now! was very influential. And so, you know, this stuff just doesn't come out of nowhere. But it's very telling that both Occupy and the Sanders campaign of 2015-16, there's nothing really, of, I mean, nothing out of Air America matched Occupy or the Sanders campaign. Maybe Tom Hartman matched the Sanders campaign. But only really Pacifica Radio is the only uh, no. widely consumed media preceding those two events that matches up with those politics. It's so, so inf it's so you're, infuriating. You're, you're making a great contribution, and you didn't even know. It, you know? It's so infuriating, and it, to me, Professor K, and then we'll get to Rodrigo. It's a cultural thing that that it's that especially people who lived through the '60s and even the '70s. We, we have a responsibility to remind Americans that there was a time when Bruce Springsteen would never do a commercial for Jeep. Never. It was, it was out of the question. And I I'm from Jersey. Bruce Springsteen is God. I love Bruce Springsteen. I, I love him, uh, but, and I'm sure he gave the money, I'm sure the, where that money is going, you know, lives are going to, for hundreds of years, lives are going to be better. Because, But there was a time when this culture knew that Chrysler was suspect, corporate America was suspect, Bruce Springsteen if he aligns himself with Chrysler, is suspect. And you have to, you have to change the culture. 
and, and tell people that 99.999% of what you're reading, watching, and listening to is corporate propaganda, and you're being manipulated, you're being sexualized, your emotions are being preyed upon to dull your senses or excite you to sell something and keep your eye off the, the, the handful of families that own you. And, and we knew that in the 60s, and we knew that some of us knew that in the 60s, and some of us knew that in the 70s. And I don't care what lessons you're getting from the Marvel Universe or for Star Wars. It's owned by Disney, period, full stop. Disney, Disney is selling crap to your kids and brainwashing them turning them into consumers. They don't believe in paying their employees. They're notorious for underpaying everyone from the top to the bottom. They have people at Disneyland who sleep in their cars. Was Bruce Springsteen pressing those albums back in the 70s or was some major corporation doing that? Columbia, Columbia Records, I believe. That's right. And I've yeah. looked this up, but I do remember an article in Time Magazine from like 1984, 85, about Bruce screwing the uh, the unions. He had it like he, the, oh, the people I love that. about but him. In 84, 84, he let Reaganism and Reaganites, um, he, his politics, I think, have always been pretty decent, but he did not speak out against the- Born in the USA. Um, the way that that was appropriated by, as, as a set of Reaganist memes. You know? Right, yeah. I, I, I vaguely recollect he did. I vaguely recollect. I mean, it, was, it was already. I think it was after I th- the fact. I Maybe think after, he. Okay. I, I, I think you're both right. But I do remember. Maybe it was primaries versus. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I yeah. remember. But I do I remember. I Springsteen when I was 18, by the way. Yeah, I remember there was a story about uh, the crew. His using and like dumping a union crew that was loading and unloading his concert. I love Bruce Springsteen, but yeah, thou, sh- thou shalt not worship false idols. First commandment. Who would have thought Dylan would be, music would be used in ads? Hell, I, I, the Super Bowl ad with Sesame Street characters blew me away. <laughs> <laughs> Commercials are wrong. Commercials are morally bankrupt. Children should not be seeing commercials. Children should not be taught to be consumers. You should not be selling drugs to kids or sugar. The, the cereal that they push on kids causes heart disease, cancer. It's immoral. This is a culture that has completely forgotten that, that they are turning kids into consumers from the time they're born. And it's morally reprehensible. And we have no scolds left. There's nobody scolding, uh, taking the moral high ground and saying, how dare you use public airwaves? How dare you use our utilities, these the, the cable companies, to turn our children into sugar addicts? It's immoral. And, and there, there is a responsibility for people like Bruce Springsteen to... And I love Bruce Springsteen, but car companies, climate change, 
the, 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 the problem, you know, Chrysler, Ford, GM, they, they have fought fuel efficient standards for decades. And Bruce is going to help them greenwash their image. I'm sure he got a lot of money. But there's, there comes a time when you have to start asking people, where does this money come from? It's not good enough to take money and, and give it to a homeless shelter. Where did you get your money from? Who gave it to you? There's such a thing as dirty money. There is dirty money. And you should not take it. I had a rabbi in, in Los Angeles and he'd say to me, well, you know, Eli Brode is a mixed bag. I go, what are you talking about? He's an effing pig. Well, he donates a lot to my, to our temple. Who's Eli Brode? Uh, the, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Democratic Party donor. He's a huge donor to foundations, universities, um, stuff in Los Angeles. He has a museum. He's a real estate magnet and um, generally a major force uh, in the conservative wing of the Democratic Party in California. He gives us homeless people. The, the, they're the people... And, char who, and charter schools, really And, and charter schools. schools. And charter schools. Yeah. You have to ask, what do you do for a living? Where does your money come from? You can't have a fortune without a crime. People need to know that. All great fortunes come from a crime. And what we get talked into doing is helping these people clean up. We're, we're like the Vatican doing indulgences. And, and, and people like Bruce Springsteen, people in comedy, people in artists have a responsibility to change the way people, the way ordinary Americans view the richest 1%. Where does your money come from? What do you do for a living? How did you get to be this rich? Nobody asks that question. And 99% of the time, there's some kind of crime against humanity. And these people should be held accountable, especially their kids. The children of the richest 1% should be shamed. Anyway, anyway, I'm right. Hunter Biden doesn't have the right to earn $2 million to write a book about his drug addiction. People shouldn't say, people say, doesn't he have a right to me? No, he doesn't. His father's a Democrat. He just got a contract for $2 million to write a book. Yep. About his drug addiction. And uh, I don't mean to be cruel, but he wouldn't be a drug addict if uh, he stood up for himself and, and didn't take the path of least resistance by trading off his father's name. That's what causes you. your drug addiction. I mean, you know, with, with everything you've said, you know, you know, obviously all of all of the wealth that you know, sloshes around the world and is in the hand of, hands of the elites, there's, there's, there's serious criminality at the heart of a lot of it, including how, of course, it gets tax sheltered away. You know, there's more or less 
corrupt ways that these, you know, fortunes have been won, but obviously all of them are rooted in, in systems of social imbalance, social oppression, inequity. But the thing now that we have, too, is simply that, look, we, we have had social organization over the past four decades where political and economic power has become so concentrated and how we break that and how we push against it. That is about as important a question as we can possibly have to frame things. And it goes all the way to whether we're going to be able to, um, you know, not just continue to drive towards, you know, a climate catastrophe for humanity. Because, look, most most rich people now make most of their money by handing it over to money managers who make their investments. And, you know, there's not a lot of decisions making about where rich people's money gets invested. It's done by money managers. And, my advice, uh, my advice know. to all Americans is look at the names on your museums, on your medical centers, and at your colleges, and act accordingly. I will not step foot in any museums in, in New York City. The Sackler Wing, they created Purdue Pharma. They're responsible for 450,000 dead Americans. And there's the Sackler Wing. There's the David Koch Plaza at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And so when I, like, what kind of art are we looking at when, I mean, let, when let, the Guggenheim is funded by that manufacturer of, of tear gas? What You think you're going to be allowed to make a political statement at the Guggenheim? You, you you think you're going to challenge the the class structure at the Norton Simon Museum, the the Resnick Wing at LACMA? The Resnicks own Fiji Water. The Resnicks are destroying the island of Fiji and California. The Resnicks are growing almonds and using potable water and read about the Resnick family. You think you're going to see any real art at LACMA in, in the Resnick building? You know, you think the Re- they just uh, you gave know, you, money. You're, you're, you're hitting on the museums, but you could be hitting on the university. And the, and the Resnicks these- just gave money. I think it was to Caltech. Yeah, so, and Broad has a whole, whole building out at Caltech. So too. go to where Adnan Hussein went to college. Or go to a state university. Hey, you know what? I want to do one little thing, and I've rarely done this on your show, but we're, we're, we're going long here. But you're so not going to get an education. If, if, there, if there's a David Koch building at your university, what kind of education do you think you're going to get? Okay, you're, you're saying a number of great things here, very, very uh, you know, sparks a lot of things. There's a great moment in Manufacturing Consent, the Noam Chomsky movie, where he talks about you know, how much the elites have to be brainwashed. The general population, not so much. They have their, you know, their, at the time there was no internet. So there are ridiculous things at the checkout stand that people can buy about all the celebrity gossip and the guys get sports, right? And the elites really have to be inculcated in uh, sort of a, uh, a system of education so that they serve the status quo. That's in Chomsky. Okay, look, on Sunday of next week, on the 21st, we're going to try to do something at PDA, which is to launch a movement for tuition-free public college in the United States of America. There are these great professors who have uh, this document called the $66 fix. The average price 
per California household in income tax would be $66, and you'd have complete tuition-free public college, the community college level, the state university level, and the University of California level, tuition-free. And it would lift the cost per student up into the average range in California, because right now they spend on each student in the three lowest of all the states in the country. So um, here's the thing. What do you do at Harvard and Yale? What do you do at Princeton? What do you do? You break them up. You break them up. What about what about the University of California, the University of Connecticut, New New Haven, the University of uh, California, Palo Alto? You stop building. You 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 you, I'll tell you what you do. Right. Because because if you have tuition free public college, David, the risk you run in this society within its imbalances, even if we can push that through in the current context and achieve that. You really run the risk of a two-tier, a really divided two-tier education system where the elites are only going to go then to Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Good, and, and let them all develop hemophilia like the British aristocracy. Let them inbreed. They're all idiots. <laughs> There's too many Good. people for that right now. No, no. Two, well, two you have like 15 elite colleges. Let them let all the rich people go to these 15. They'll just be ja- one Jared Kushner after another, they'll all be hemophiliacs and unable to reproduce because they're inbred. F them. They're not getting an education there. I keep trying to channel your brilliant ire into my banal do-goodism. Well, I'll tell you how to solve the, the, the public university problem. The chancellors can't make more than the, the highest paid professor. Get rid of the administration and stop yeah. building. You don't need gyms. You don't need a football team. You don't need nice dormitories. You need to pay the teachers, the professors, a, a, a livable wage. Get rid of the administrators and stop with the building. You don't I mean, need... If, Calif- if California were to jump out ahead of every state with tuition-free public college, with the great universities and public universities we have in California... I mean, I'm not here to do California boosterism, but I think that would be genius for the welfare of California going forward. The people, so, the people who run—is it Janet Napolitano? Who who was the who ran Berkeley? No, no, no now it's uh, some guy named Drake. Um, they, so they they, they are they they are gangsters. This is what I this is the 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 people who run the pu- public universities figured out what the mafia figured out in Las Vegas. The mafia figured out, no, you don't own the casino. Construction, build, build more casinos, build. That's where the money is, in the building. So if you go to Las Vegas, Caesars, isn't, it's run by a corporation. But they're always building. Harris is always building. That's what the mafia figured out. And, and, and the public universities... They're run by mobsters who figured out that if we keep building, that's how we can launder money and skim. That's what the hospitals have all figured out. I'm right around the corner from a hospital that uh, that's named after Sandy Wheel. Remember Sandy Wheel? He smashed Glass-Steagall. He was the one from Travelers who called President Clinton and said, guess what? The Glass-Steagall Act, we've overturned it. And Clinton literally said, really? Like, oh, okay." And and, and Sandy Wheel merged with Citigroup 
in violation of Glass-Steagall. They call Bill Clinton. It's his last year in office. And he literally said to Bill Clinton, it's okay, we're going to get Glass-Steagall overturned. And Bill Clinton goes, oh, great, great. And then Sandy Wheel destroys the economy. Once Glass-Steagall is overturned, it, it, that created the financial crisis, decimated the entire African-American community. Homeownership in the African-American community is down like 80% because of that financial crisis, because of Glass-Steagall being overturned. Sandy Wheel retires to Napa, says in retrospect, I shouldn't have done it. And now he gets his name on a big building on a hospital here. F him. One of, the few hedge funds, one of the few hedge funds, what was it, SAC? That Steve Cohn, who owns the, the Mets, Mets. And, he, and, and he was guilty of, he pled guilty to insider yeah. trading. He should yeah. be in prison. Yeah. His wife right. and the divorce yeah. accused him of racketeering. Yeah. Own the Mets. But he gets to own the Mets. And he's uh, shorting uh, GameStop. He was the guy who who poured more money into the hedge fund that was shorting GameStop. These um, people are criminals. Mm -hmm. yeah. But their kids, they go to Harvard, ski vacations. They build buildings in Harvard. And they build yeah. buildings and they throw, here's a million dollars to a charity. Aren't I a good person? No, you're a piece of shit. And your father should be in jail and you should be sent to a re-education camp. This is why I say with, with you got to go for their kids. You got to go for their kids. It's child abuse. It's that anybody who's a billionaire and is raising their kid in a, in a $70 million penthouse on Park Avenue, that's child abuse. The, the government should come in and take their children away from them. They all, they're, the kids all end up as drug addicts. It doesn't end well. You know, David, you're never going to be nominated to be the head of the Office of Management and Budget if you keep saying these kinds of things. <laughs> no, you will. You will. Tandy, you will. <laughs> well, you're, of course. What right. do you mean? Yeah, this is the pathway to the position. Yeah. $36 million. <laughs> hey, David, got. you're going to have to suffer some ridicule before your, you know, your party line vote um, passage through the committee. I just take their kids. You can keep, I, I say to the richest 1%, you can keep your money. We're taking your kids away from you. This is child abuse. And you know what? All of them would say, sounds fair to me. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's the first thing I fully agree with you. you said, but most of what you said, I 85% agreement with, but that I completely concur with. But how sick is Jeff Bezos? How sick do, do you have to be? And by the way, does NPR report about the Bessemer workers in Al in Alabama, the Amazon workers? I, I, trying again, to I, was out in the, I was out in the car and I caught one or two things on NPR the other day, but you know, I don't listen to it too often. All right. I haven't been following, but of course, it would be nice if they did, and I doubt that they do. All right. Uh, well, Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of FDR and Democracy. This is all things considered, <laughs> or as Ralph Nader says, some things considered, as long as it's not too menacing to the status quo. Hey, you, Ralph and you guys on the next show and on the David Feldman show, get some of those workers from Alabama. I, uh, we we, ha we do. We, we, on Tuesday show, we did. 
my show. Boycott Amazon. That's what people should do. Thank you, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. Thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. Sorry, I, I, I'm a little burnt out, so I'm running on uh, anger. I figured if I just let you speak, you'd eventually just yeah, I, I, run down. Rodrigo, thank you. I was trying that, but I felt compelled to jump in a few times. You know what it is? I'm depressed. Obviously. And I find if I lash out, I won't go outside and buy a sheet cake and just eat an entire <laughs> birthday cake. But if I, if I can, with depression, you either. You know as soon as you said sheet cake, I got hungry. But I, I won't need it. You know, it's like if, if I'm, depression is what? Anger turned inward? So. I guess, yeah. Rodrigo? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's enough time for my question. I wanted to ask Alan. Uh, ben Burgess says, uh, a lot of people say that Bernie should be okay with getting rid of the filibuster. I say that, do we trust Biden not to cut uh, various things in social security to balance the budget and say, See, we did this bipartisan thing. That was my question. Well, if he tried to slash Social Security, you get a lot of Republican votes, and there are a number of Democrats he wouldn't get. Um, we, you know, one of the ways, actually, we've avoided that previously is the Republicans just wouldn't vote for anything that Obama was doing. And then Harry Reid, actually, of all people, I think mainly for political reasons, uh, stepped in and prevented uh, him uh, by Obama charging after. Remember, he was going to do change CPI? And it was Harry Reid who blocked that, but I think mainly for the political fortunes of the Democratic Party is the reason he did that. Uh, but Bernie Sanders noted that actually in the debate in 2016 and credited Reid, who of course was actively stabbing Bernie in the back <laughs> as that <laughs> debate was happening in 2016 in Nevada. Um, but um, uh, no, I don't think the filibuster reform would, would have any impact on that particular vote. And, uh, um, you know, you know, to, to hell with any of them who vote for that at this point, or and at any point, actually. The damn thing needs to be expanded and not cut into at all, and it could be achieved very easily, an expansion of it. Um, so, um, no, but I don't think filibuster reform would impact that. Bernie Sanders didn't support that um, for the reasons of reconciliation, which I think actually says a good, interesting things about Bernie and the degree to which still, even having gone through the two presidential campaigns, his consideration of economic budgetary items is really at the fore of Bernie's thinking as a politician, uh, because, you know, you really needed to reverse the filibuster. I have any chance at passing, uh, you know, social non-budgetary, you know, legislation that doesn't have a price tag on it. Um, for instance, immigration reform. Um, you know, that's just virtue signaling that's going on with Biden on immigration reform. He'll have some decent executive actions. But in terms of all these people who are just living in limbo, they're going to be stuck in limbo until the filibuster is removed. How is that know, not no, the no, only no story? How is this not the only story? People, evictions expire. Like you could start, they're, they're already evicting people. A lot of stories to choose from right but, now. But I mean, but, but the end of March, you can start evicting again. Landlords are complaining that they're not getting their rent. Yeah. It's ugly. It's really ugly. 
billions and billions, billions and billions of dollars in back rent. How is this not the most important? A roof over your head? I mean, I'm going through the news stories that we didn't talk about today. Look at this. Right now, as we speak, 100 million Americans are under winter weather advisories as temperatures dip below zero ahead of five storms. 100 million Americans. You live in Wisconsin, Professor Harvey, JK. The, the only thing we should be talking about is evictions and people not being able to pay their rent. And the stock market's going through the roof. U.S. home price. How is this possible? Home prices post a 15% jump. How, how is it possible? Who has money to buy homes? Well, that $600 check is really getting spent. Larry Flynn. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, it's um, again, it's, um, there's a lot of money to be made in major, major population centers if you can rent them out. That's what that's where why the, the 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 real estate goes up and up and up in places like Los Angeles. That's not individual homeowners driving it up for demand and moving at all. That is institutional buyers. Jeep has pulled the boss's Super Bowl ads because Bruce was arrested for driving drunk. Just <laughs> responded for selling his soul to yeah. Jeep. Yeah, we'll we'll destroy the planet. The planet has five years left because of Chrysler. But Bruce drove drunk, so we have to disassociate ourselves from him. I like what Don Cheadle says. He calls the cancel culture a fabrication and says those who cry about being canned have a long history of poor behavior and don't fall out of favor for just one controversial comment. I, I believe that. I, I think I, talk, I said almost that on one of your shows about three or four weeks ago, at yeah. least as it relates to me and, you know, because, you know, whatever kind of public figure I am now, I, I don't worry about that stuff. Fox News. I, I, I hate to do this, but I got to get going. Cause okay, I'm going to go through the news. Thank you. We keep the laptop in the, in the bedroom. My wife wants to be able to go to bed. Okay, thank you. It's great seeing you, Harvey. Thank you. See you guys. Professor Harvey JK, follow him on Twitter at Harvey JK and uh, pick up his books. Fox News, 17% jump in pre tax profit. It's like number three in the ratings, but Fox News is still getting, is still profitable, even though nobody's advertising. How much money is Mike Lindell from My Pillow giving them? This is a great story. The Lincoln Project. Have you been following this, Alan? Weaver, one of the founders of the Lincoln Project. For those of you who are listening overseas, the Lincoln Project is made up of Republicans who hate Trump, and they've poured millions and millions of dollars into advertising to get Joe Biden elected. They're Trojan horses, essentially. They're going to destroy the Democratic Party. Joe Biden feels he owes the Lincoln Project more than he owes Bernie. And it turns out that one of the co-founders, Weaver, came on to about 21 underaged boys. He gets fired. And 
Now a new investigation shows that there's about $50 million in opaque finances. They can't explain where all the Lincoln Project money went. It was a grift. It was a grift. We knew it was a grift all along, right, Alan? Yeah. Yeah. Robert Kennedy Jr., 67, has been banned from Instagram for sharing false claims about COVID-19, including a theory that Bill Gates is pursuing a Marxist plot to destroy U.S. sovereignty. Robert Kennedy Jr. is an anti-vaxxer now. He was such a great man. Huh? Yeah, I knew that for a while. But like during the during the W administration, the stuff he wrote about the oligarchs and the commons, he he was such a great lawyer and a great. He was such a uh, he took on the Christian right, and uh, how did he get there? How did he lose it? The anti-vax stuff. Yeah, how did he lose his mind? I've known that for quite a while. It's been a couple of years, but but yeah. not re- like I think a little longer than that. Not not more than not more than ten. Like a decade ago, he wasn't an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he had that show Ring of Fire he was doing, and uh, and he it was on KPFK for a while, and then it was off, and then people wanted to bring it back, and and that's when I'd heard he was an anti-vaxxer. Dangerous. Colorado shatters marijuana sales record with. $2.19 billion in 2020. Yeah, Mila just posted in the chat that, that she feels there's nuance to his position on vaccines. Um, all, all I can say is actually when I was program director, I, I did look into it and the stuff I thought was aggressive enough that I was, I was uncomfortable about it. What about Bill Gates pursuing a Marxist plot to destroy U.S. sovereignty? <laughs> if he keeps this up, he's going to end up running Pacifica. Uh- <laughs> mm-hmm. There we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I think that's like Andrea Mitchell got a line from Macbeth wrong. She thought it was Faulkner. I guess Ted Cruz said the second impeachment trial was full of sound and fury, and yet signifying nothing. And Andrea Mitchell corrected Cruz and said it was William Faulkner. There's a title of a Faulkner book called The Sound and the Fury, but it doesn't right. signify nothing. So Right. But that's <laughs> from Macbeth that. when that's he's trying correct. to wash yeah. the blood off his hands. And Andrea Mitchell should know that scene because she's married to Alan Greenspan, <laughs> who still can't wash the blood off his hands, Lady Macbeth. You should know you're Macbeth, Andrea Mitchell. You're married <laughs> to Alan Greenspan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think we covered everything. Well, it's always a pleasure being with you, David. Yeah. Why are you so angry? (laughs) I don't know why I'm not more angry. I think I'm too busy to be as angry as I'd want to be. People need to be angry Mm -hmm. and stand in judgment (laughs) and say, I accuse. People need to stand in judgment. And, and, um, um, by the way, the thing I have to do when I get off is I have to, I still, you know, executive produce that show that you're a co-host of and looks like a good show this week. I have to post it. Tom today. Hartman's on it. I think Tom Hartman. It says Erica Payne. Just oh, Erica from, Payne is, from Patriotic Millionaires. Patriotic no, Tom Hartman? Uh, he's on next week. We had somebody from Patriotic Millionaires on. 
Uh, thank you, Alan Minsky, Progressive Democrats of America, and uh, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. <laughs> Are you still here or did you just go to bed? I don't blame you. Hey, um, come to office hours Friday night, starting at 8, and then this, this Saturday night, spend Valentine's Eve with the brilliant Martha Previtt, the voice of Nancy Pelosi, the voice of Martha Stewart, the voice of Melania Trump, Robert Smigel will be back to play Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani February 13th, Valentine's Day. Another comedy genius, Robert Smigel, as well as comedy genius Rick Overton and FBI informant Jim Earle. I want to thank all our guests for, for coming. Please sign up for my newsletter. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com and sign up for my newsletter if you would like to attend a live taping of our show and sit in the Zoom room to ask questions and participate in the chat. Go to David Feldman Show. Hit attend a live taping and office hours every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. I think that covers everything. Thank you so much. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a